This is Audible. Podium Publishing presents The Silver Thief, Book Two of the Cycle of Galand, written by Edward W. Robertson, performed by Tim Jared Reynolds. Chapter One. The ship bore the assassins across the sea. A storm mustered to the north. Black clouds that promised reckless winds. Captain Narren stood on the prow, swaying with the roll of the ship. He faced the coming darkness. Dante clutched the rail. Is that as bad as it looks? The corner of Narren's mouth twitched. Are you worried we won't make it, or that we will? Gladick doesn't worry me. You're that sure you'll be able to kill him. He's extremely dangerous, Dante said, but everyone has to sleep sometime. The waves were larger by the minute, heaving the carrack up and down like children bouncing a ball on a taut sheet. Behind Dante, sailors called to each other from the rigging, trimming the sails to the shifting and strengthening winds. The air smelled of sea spray and rain. How long do you think it will take? Naren said. A few days to locate him, then a few more to remove him. But there's more to this than Gladick. Killing him sets things square for the murder of Captain Twill, but we still don't know why Malin is so interested in the Chardon. They've gathered hundreds, if not thousands, of shells. I don't like to think what they intend to do with them. What do you suspect them of? Too often, Dante said, when they've had that kind of power... They've used it to kill people like me. The captain nodded. He hadn't wanted this position. It had been thrust upon him when Gladick executed Twill. But Naren had always borne a sober authority, and he wore his new office well. My crew and I may be able to find you, the Chardon, Naren said. Think so? Over our years in Bressel, we've developed a number of resourceful contacts— he smiled thinly. After all, we're nefarious pirates. As the clouds neared, Dante retreated to the cabin he shared with Blaze. Blaze was installed in his bunk with a stoppered jug of rum and one of the books from the ship's surprisingly large library of Picaroon novels. I've got to tell you, Blaze said, swinging his bare feet to the boards and waving about the book, it's a lot more relaxing to read about these things than to live them. Good news and bad, Dante said. Storm's on the way. Tell me that's the good news, because it's one of those storms that drops live fish on the deck. If I have to eat hardtack and salt cod for one more day, then I'll eat it. I'm not going to starve, after all, but I will complain about it. By all indications, it's a non-fish-bearing storm but it shouldn't delay us more than a few hours. The good news is that while we're locating Gladick, Naren's offered to drop some feelers on the black market and try to track down the Chardon. That could save us some time. With a hollow plunk, Blaze unstoppered his rum and took a swill. The smell of spices mingled with that of the coming rain. He is not concerned about being spotted. Last time he and his crew were seen in Bressel... They were stealing a piece of the Royal Navy. We're landing down the coast at Averoy. We'll sneak in overland, 
Naren has plenty of friends in the city who'll help him keep a low profile. So we slit a throat and then go catch up with some shells, which should be relatively easy given that they're snails. Think any of this will blow back on Narashtovic? A sudden swell sent Dante reeling toward the wall. He caught himself on a line running along the ceiling and used it to guide himself to his bunk. We'll be as careful as we can, but you know as well as anyone that there's nothing harder to clean up than spilled blood. The ship plummeted down another swell. Outside, rain began to batter the deck. The storm abated by morning, leaving them with calm seas and a cool, steady wind. Two days later, a sailor cried out that he'd spotted land. They made port that evening. Averoy was a prototypical fishing town, weather-beaten seaside cottages, outnumbered by scores of small docks. Boats heading in and out of the bay anchored around the small rocky islands, gulls everywhere. Squadrons of pelicans glided over the low waves. Sometimes one would break rank, tuck its wings, and plunge straight into the sea, bobbing to the surface a moment later. Dante had visited the town a few times as a boy, and had always been charmed by its houses. Some stood on short stilts, while others had screen slits below the roof and at the base. His dad had told him these features allowed the sea breeze to keep the interiors cool, but Dante had imagined better uses. The slits were there for the passing of secret notes. Meanwhile, when their neighbors annoyed them, the stilted houses stood up and walked away. That day, they had no time to take in Averroes sights. As soon as the Sword of the South made birth, they located a tailor, paying her well to start immediate work on sets of simple trousers and the short-sleeved jerseys favored by rural Malish folk. With this arranged, Dante and Blaze returned to help unload the ship, which had picked up a great deal of goods during its voyages to the plagued islands and the lands further south. The garments were ready by morning. Five sets in all, enough to accommodate Dante, Blaze, Naren, and the two sailors accompanying them to Bressel. Blaze dressed in his trousers and jersey, then turned in a slow circle, holding one arm slanted up, the other down. I make a pretty striking peasant. Good thing, Dante said. If you screw this up, I'm demoting you to chief potato tiller. With funds in short supply, the five of them struck out on foot toward Bressel, which lay over twenty miles up the coast. The remainder of the crew stayed in Averoy, tasked with smuggling some of their goods into Bressel, which shouldn't be any more complicated than hiring another boat one that wasn't manned by the Malish crown. The rutted dirt road stretched through a forest. Stumps and clearings indicated the woods were harvested regularly for lumber. So did the thunk of axes. Naren told them to keep an eye out for the baron's men. The trees were far too short for use as masts in the Royal Navy, and the king had hence ceded the land to the baron of Averoy, who'd found it more profitable— or less work, anyway, to sell his trees to shipwrights and those in need of firewood. That meant a steady presence of Baron's men collecting payments and ensuring no one took more than had been agreed. Most likely, these men wouldn't be on the lookout for Naran, Dante, or the Sword of the South, 
but you could never be too careful. Less than half a mile west of the road, the ocean beat against the shore. It was high summer, cool enough beneath the shade of the trees, but sticky and humid, which meant Bressel was going to be murder. They met a trickle of traffic on the road. Dressed as peasants, but armed like soldiers, Dante and the others drew a number of looks, stirring Dante's paranoia. Yet by late afternoon, no trouble had come to them. Instead, they came to the deforested plains around Bressel. Naren left one of his men in the woods, along with all of their swords, which were illegal in Bressel without the proper writs. Dante and Blaze strolled into the grassy fields surrounding the great city. They were accompanied by Naren and Jonah, a sailor with a black and red beard, who'd proven more than capable of keeping his head in a tight situation. A trait that was about to be put to the test. The outskirts of the city were a haphazard mash of slums, homestead farmers, and transient markets, all of which ebbed and eddied like the tides and currents where the chance had flowed into the Aster Sea. Yet the city's interior was blocked by a contiguous and quite permanent wall. Barring more advanced sneakery, the only way inside was to pass through one of the gates, all of which were watched over by Bressel's finest. Remember our story, Dante said, angling through the grass to the dirt road leading to the city. If questioned, we're sharecroppers from Avroy. We've been saving our money for months in preparation for a trip to Bressel. Now that we're here, we intend to spend every last penny. Blaze bit his lip, peering at the sprawl of cheap buildings and the walls and spires beyond. This is a bit slapdash even by our standards, isn't it? The ship's barber cut her hair short, got rid of the beards. We're dressed like commoners. What more can we do to disguise ourselves? Beseech Leah to grow us each a pair of breasts? Does she do that? Blaze motioned to the wall. The last time we were here, it was to escape from prison and steal a royal vessel. On top of that, you're essentially the king of Narashtavik, Malin's most ancient of enemies. What are the chances they'll let us through without impaling twenty of their guards on our blades? It's been weeks since the last time we were here. The guards see thousands of people every day. What's more likely to cause trouble? Walking through the gates like normal people, or climbing over them like wretched crooks? All right, Blaze said. But if they spot us, I say we do the honorable thing and run away. The stink of leather tanneries wafted nearby. Goats brayed to each other from the yards of single-room homes. A steady flow of pedestrians and the occasional rider passed up and down the dung, thick street. The rich brown hue of Naren's face drew the occasional glance, but none lingered. Bressel was the biggest city for a thousand miles in all directions, and home to people of all stripes. The sun sat low in the west, pouring yellow light across the ramshackle buildings. The day was cooling, and the smell wasn't so bad. Within blocks, the houses stood shoulder to shoulder, newer wooden structures grafted onto the slanted bones of older ones. The wall loomed ahead. The gate was a two-door iron grill, currently open but occupied by two men in the dark blue of Malish military. On their shoulders, an embroidered silver ring indicated they were city watch. 
people massed about the entry, waiting to be assessed and let through. Others departed without issue, business in the city, done for the day. Dante exchanged looks with Naren, and the four of them joined the crowds. With the sun setting, they came before the guards. "'Business in the city?' asked a man with a thick, pale scar that started halfway up his forehead and continued well beyond his hairline. "'We're from Averroy,' Dante said. "'Here for a bit of fun. We've been saving for—' "'Yes, yes.' The guard's eyes travelled to Blaze's waist and the long knife sheathed on his belt. "'That a sword, son?' "'Why, no,' Blaze said, the portrait of innocence. "'Swords are illegal in Bressel.' Then I hope you're not attempting to commit a crime. Give it here. Blaze unsheathed the dagger, handing it hilt first to the watchman. Careful, I hear these things are sharp. The man took it, squinting at its point. Dante reached for the nether lurking in the stone walls around him. Shadows winged to his hands. Not enough that anyone untrained would notice, but enough to be ready. The guard laid the blade along his forearm, crossbar resting on the inside of his elbow. The tip almost, but didn't quite reach his wrist. He tossed it back to Blaze, who snagged the hilt midair. An inch longer and it'll be mine, the guard said. Don't let me see it out of its sheath again. Blaze smiled brightly. Frankly, the damn thing frightens me. I only wear one so no one else will use one on me. The guard beckoned them past without looking at them, already losing interest in favour of the next batch of travellers waiting to be let through. Without obvious hurry, the four of them walked west in the general direction of the river splitting the city in two. Close call, Blaze said. For a minute there I thought he was going to confiscate Matilda. Jonah glanced away from a young woman at a fruit cart. You name your knives? You don't? Then do you call every woman you know, girl? Behind the safety of the walls, the buildings leaped to three and four stories in height. Towers and temples dwarfed these. Further west, the spire of the Odellian seemed to climb halfway to the clouds. It was said that Bressel was home to half a million citizens. That sounded impossible, but after more than a month spent in the sparseness of the plagued islands, two more weeks on the featureless sea, and a day in sleepy Averroy, the crush of people made Dante believe it just might be true. As it had been in Averroy, however, they weren't there to gawk. Naren led them straight to the wharves. Dante gestured ahead of them. You said your friends with an innkeep? He was fast friends with Captain Twill, Naren said. After what Gladig did to her, he'd no sooner turn us in than he'd swallow his own arm. The inn was set on a small hill overlooking the river, whose waters were deep grey in the twilight. Lanterns burned from the prows of barges and skiffs. The inn's common room was boisterous and crowded, smelling foully of tallow and sweetly of rosemary. Despite the clamour, the innkeep came over to Naren at once. After a quick talk, the man showed them up to their room. He closed their door firmly behind him, pressing his broad back against it. 
Tell me you're here to answer what they've done. Indeed. Nara nodded to Dante and Blaze. With the aid of my new friends, our answer will thunder like Gashon's axe. The innkeeper smiled, mustaches bunching. Any help I can give is yours to take. He returned downstairs. Blaze clapped his hands to his knees. So, shall I remedy our appalling lack of fighting steel? We should be back before midnight, Dante told Naren. If you haven't seen us by morning, change lodgings. Naren furrowed his brow. You don't trust my man? If we're not here, it means we've been taken, and it won't be long before they've tortured us into confessing everything we know. Then might I advise not getting caught? Dante headed downstairs, Blaze beside him. They exited the inn, the common room's laughter fading quickly. The wharves drew drunks aplenty, time-beaten men who tossed dice in warm night air and argued over whose turn it was to buy the next bottle. The city's soldiers had better things to do than police rowdy laborers who largely only hurt each other. Dante and Blaze didn't see their first watchman until they were halfway back to the gate. The gate's interior was surrounded by a sprawling plaza of pubs and shops, which remained lively despite the fall of night. Blaze hooked into a crooked alley that terminated against the twelve-foot wall, leaving the two of them surrounded by blank stone on all sides. Good, right? Blaze tipped back his head to take in the surrounding buildings. No one's going to be able to see me unless they're standing in my pocket. Dante nodded. See you in an hour. Blaze departed the alley, and Dante headed out after him. As Blaze strolled toward the gates, Dante installed himself on the patio of a tavern with a view of both the gate and the alley. He ordered a wheat beer, sipping without hurry. When it was empty, he ordered a second. By then, the city lay in full darkness. Shouts and cackles rebounded through the streets. It was strange to sit in Bressel as a common traveller. Malin's capital was separated from Narashtovic by many hundreds of miles, and the two regions had warred on multiple occasions, most recently little more than a decade ago, in the conflict that had relocated Dante to the north. Yet, if you plunked the two cities side by side, the main difference would be the architecture. Beyond that, they could very well be different neighborhoods of the same settlement. An hour after Blaze had left the city, guards called out from the wall. Iron squealed. The grilled doors swung shut. A heavy bolt clunked into place. Dante stirred, wandering toward the alley. It was presently empty, but it smelled more strongly of urine than the hour before, he summoned the shadows to his hands. The air was thick, humid, hot. With the breeze blocked by the walls, sweat popped out along his brow. Shadows stirred. Dante straightened, tightened his grasp on the nether. A figure materialized from nowhere, resolving into blaze. He carried a long bundle of thin sticks of kindling. It was a bulky load enough to conceal several swords within it. Any problems? Dante said. Blaze shook his head. 
Naren's men are on their way. Tell them to meet us at the inn. Anything on your end? Nope. I drank beer the whole time you were gone. How come you get to sit around drinking beer while I'm lugging pounds of metal through a dark forest? Because you're the one who can walk through walls. Fair enough. Blaze narrowed his eyes. He sniffed at the air. Are you sure drinking beer was the only thing you did? They left the alley and made their way back toward the inn. Between the darkness of the night and the crowds during daylight, it felt as though they would be able to come and go without fear of being recognized, but Dante knew they couldn't grow too bold. If the wrong set of eyes drifted their way, it could botch everything. And the closer they got to Gladick, the sharper the eyes would be. Blaze shifted his grasp on the clacking bundle of sticks. Maybe we should forgo all this sneaking around and forge ourselves a writ of arms. I'll buy one from the armsmen's guilds. I still know some people there. The swords are only for emergencies. I'd rather not carry them at all. It would only draw attention. Yeah, I suppose writs would cost money. After the last few weeks, we're a bit short on the currency of the realm. Or the currency of anywhere else. Then after we kill Gladick, let's not forget to rob him. They returned to the inn, where all had been quiet in their absence. Naren's other crewmen arrived within half an hour. Dante was glad for his haste. It had been a long day of travel. Although he wished to spend as little time in Bressel as possible, he'd now been away from Narashtovic for more than two months. At that moment, what he most needed was sleep. Before going to bed, he used needles of nether to kill two moths flapping around the candles, then set the bodies next to his bed. He woke early, disturbed by the stirrings of the sailors as they headed downstairs to eat breakfast and start running down leads on the Chardon. After a meal of bacon and hash, Dante got to work too. The city was enormous, even larger than Setevan, the Gascon capital. Under other circumstances, finding one man within its sprawl would have been a daunting assignment. Gladick, however, was an Orden, a highly ranked priest of Tame, with public responsibilities. On top of that, Dante already knew two of the places the man often spent time, a small temple grounds in the middle of the city, and the Cheni, the giant prison tower, where Dante and Blaise had been held captive during their last visit to Bressel. Back in the privacy of their room, Dante called to the shadows, pulling them from the crevices in the planks of the floor. He sent them into the corpses of the two moths he'd slain the night before. The small, brittle bodies soaked up the nether like rain-hungry sand. The moths' wings stirred. They lifted, beating clumsily. Across the room, Naren raised an eyebrow. What's this? Remorse for killing them? I'm putting them to work, Dante said. They'll be able to see into places I can't. The captain, normally stoic, watched in wonder as the two bugs swirled across the room. Are they... alive? Reanimated. As soon as my connection to them is severed, they'll be as dead as before. That's remarkable. That's one word for it, Blaze said, 
Another might be a crime against man and gods. That's six words. Dante sent the moths winging to the window. Anyway, it's only a crime if it doesn't work. The two insects passed through the half-open shutters and ascended into the sky. Dante sat on his bed and sent his vision into the moths. Early morning light glimmered on the wide river running down the middle of the city. The panorama below, houses, temples, shops, stables, spires, was so dizzying Dante had to cling to the bed for support. He sent one moth west to cross the river and the other to circle the city. He could have located the Cheney by description alone. It was one of the largest buildings on the west side, a brute block of stone eighty feet high, many of its windows blocked by iron bars. Dante stationed the westbound moth above the double doors of the front entrance, where it had a view of the street. Finding the temple took considerably longer. This was a small central building on a grounds of raked pebbles and manicured plants. Compared to the offices of other priests of cladic stature, such a simple edifice was almost, but not quite, an ostentatious display of humility. An iron gate enwrapped the grounds. Dante posted the second moth on its highest spike. Then he waited. Soldiers in blue uniforms came and went from the Cheney. Sometimes they bore miserable-looking men and women, blasphemers and scofflaws, bound for the cells, their faces cut and bruised. At the temple, monks strolled between the hedges, chatting or admiring the small slice of nature within the city. Morning turned to afternoon. Afternoon drew on, sweltering and lazy, as the sun came to its rest on the horizon, Dante withdrew his sight from the moths, rubbing his aching temples. I haven't seen him all day. He stood, legs stiff and sore. I need a break. Blaze reclined on his bed, spinning a small knife between his fingers. We're in no rush, are we? He didn't gather all those chardon to decorate his beach house. He has plans for them. I'd rather not give him time to fulfill them. You're assuming he was in charge of gathering the shells. Those orders might be coming from above. In any event, he could have gone anywhere while we were in the islands, Dante said. We might have to expand our search soon. He gave himself a few minutes to stretch his legs, then returned his sight to the moths. After nightfall, there was very little traffic at either the temple or the chenny. Dante watched listlessly. As midnight neared, Naren returned from the streets. He had a bounce in his step. Have you found Gladick? Nothing, all day, Dante said. Don't tell me you did. I did not, but I do have a lead on the Chardon. Dante pulled his attention from the moths. Where are they being held? I said I had a lead, not the answer. I'm friendly with a woman named Frey, quartermaster on the Hound's Tooth. She informed me that a malish vessel called the Sunfinder arrived from the Plagued Islands early this morning. Can you put eyes on it? Blaze said. It's being watched as we speak. See if you can learn its schedule, Dante said. If it heads upriver or to another port, it could take us straight to the Chardon. 
With the prison and the temple both so quiet, he grabbed a few hours of sleep. The next morning was more of the same. After two fruitless hours of Dante spying through the moth's eyes, Blaze popped to his feet. I'm not doing us any good in here. Blaze planted his hands on the small of his back and stretched his spine. I'm going to take a peek around the street. What if you're caught? Then those who catch me will regret having shown up to work today. He glanced yearningly at the bundle of sticks concealing their swords, then exited into the hall. As the hours wore on, Dante found himself drowsing off. The room was stuffy and hot. He opened the windows wide and stood beside them, out of sight of the noisy street. Blaze came back shortly after the four o'clock bells of the Odellian. Sweat sheened his face. I found Gladick. Dante heaved himself to his feet. How'd you do that? By possessing functional eyes and ears. He was riding in a carriage, surrounded by dour men ringing bells and yelling to draw crowds. They were leading a wagon full of prisoners. Word on the street is that Gladick intends to execute them. Executions? When? By the look of things, any minute. Dante went for his shoes. If the crowd wants an execution, then we'd better go give them one. Chapter 2 Bells rang around the carriage. A wagon rumbled behind it. Criers exhorted the crowds at the sides of the street, the members of which replied with a hailstorm of questions. Hooves clacked on the cobbles. It added up to a racket so tremendous that the man sitting beside Gladick on the carriage bench had his palms clamped to his ears, scowling. Gladick soaked up each and every note. Only the untrained ear heard cacophony. The trained ear heard the most beautiful music known to the gods, that of heresy being corrected. The carriage took its time coming to the plaza of the hour. Gladick didn't mind. The vehicle's roof kept off the sun, while the walls were open to allow a breeze. In time, they rolled around a corner and into the square. Four hundred people were there already, jockeying for portions of the shade cast by the three-story buildings overlooking the cobbled grounds. Vendors scurried to the square, hauling hand-drawn carts laden with pastries and smoked fish. Followed by the wagon, the carriage came to the stage, a chest-high wooden platform at the north end of the square. The stage was often used for plays, fiddling, foolery, and other entertainments and diversions. Hence it was no mystery that it also shared its space with public punishments. The vehicle rocked to a stop. A footman set a small staircase beside the carriage and backed away, bowing low. Gladick stood and descended. Rowan approached from the stoop of the temple at the corner of the square. His grey robes were unable to disguise his unseemly bulk. Golden bracelets jangled on his wrists. The three blue stripes on his collar announced him as an Orden. Officially, that was Gladick's rank as well. Like a barge towed upstream against the current, Rowan drifted beside Gladick and smiled at the prisoners as a farmer might regard a crop of swollen melons 
Where from? Where do you think? Colin again? Gladick nodded once. In Colin, heretics grow better than any plant, as if there's a flaw in the soil itself. Rowan dabbed his perspiring brow with a crisp white cloth. Why persist in open worship of Aron? They know exactly what will come of it. These people weren't arrested for worshipping Aron. They're here for worshipping Carvajal. Carvajal? But our people worship Carvajal. He's a member of the Selesad. Blue-shirted guards arrived, unlatching the wagon's gate. The chained prisoners plotted down the ramp and into the plaza. Eight men and four women. Twelve total, aligning with the twelve houses of the Selesad. Its significance would be lost on no one. Don't be troubled, Rowan, Gladick said. I have no intention of persecuting those who bend their knee to Carvajal, Lear, Sim, or whoever they so choose. Then why do so in Colin? Won't that only spark further unrest? If it exposes further heresy, then so be it. Here in Bressel, indeed, across Mallon, all acknowledge that Father Tame stands first and foremost in the Selicet. The other gods have their role and may speak more loudly to you than the father, if that is how your ear is attuned. But there is no questioning who stands at the head of the heavens. Rowan grunted. Except in Colin. Gladick nodded, ignoring Rowan's obvious commentary about Colin in favor of watching the prisoners being led to the stage. Gladick never tired of the sight. They knew what was coming, yet they were all so docile. It was as though, in the end, they admitted their guilt and wished to be relieved of it. Correct, Gladick replied once the guilty had disappeared behind the platform. If no one understands Aron's place, then there is no danger in worshipping Carvajal. But if one venerates Aron, as the coloners do, then one's vision of Carvajal will be warped as well. For Carvajal is Aron's brother, yes? And while he stole the fire of the gods and delivered it to humanity, this wasn't a good act. It led to the corruption of our souls, the defiling of ether with nether. I fear that in Colin they fail to understand this. Until such time as they do, those who worship Carvajal must be corrected. Rowan frowned. Does the Elder know of this? Does he know of it? Gladick glanced over his shoulder, as if expecting the Elder any moment. Why, it was his idea. For the day's events, a scaffold had been built across the stage. From it dangled twelve nooses. Guards brought up twelve stools, placing one beneath each noose. The crowds ventured away from the shelter of the buildings and their awnings, braving the summer sun for a better view. Heavy footsteps trundled up the steps of the stage. A shaved head rose into view, supported by a broad-shouldered body wearing the grey robes of Tame and the red trim of Gashen. Seeing the Haldak, the crowd murmured. The large man was followed by a much shorter male. 
Haldak directed the heretic to the stool on the far left of the stage. The man climbed it. The Haldak secured the noose around the offender's neck. The executioner left the stage and returned with a young woman, securing her in the noose beside the first heretic. The Haldak repeated this process until all twelve stools were filled. This took several minutes and was not particularly exciting. That, however, was the message. Justice was implacable. It played out without haste because it was inevitable. Watching the Haldak lead the guilty to their places one by one, it was hard not to imagine yourself being led up to the stage, placed atop a stool, and fitted for the rope. When all were in place, Gladick straightened, ensuring that his robes, collars, and sleeves were tidy and straight. Guards maintained an open path through the middle of the crowd. Gladick nodded to Rowan and walked along this path toward the stage. The crowd smelled overwhelmingly of sweat, along with the perfumes of jasmine and florine they used in an attempt to mask the odor. He was sweating as well, but he never minded that. Sweat was the body, purging itself of ill humors. Its role was the same he played for the city. A small platform stood across from the stage. Some preferred to take the stage itself, the better to speak directly to the crowd but Gladick felt it was necessary to create a space between the condemned and he who passed judgment. He took the platform, eyes moving from one prisoner to the next. As mortals, our existence relies on the order of the heavens. Gladick gave a short pause between each sentence, enough time for them to begin to absorb his words, but not enough time to dissect them. Disorder above reigns chaos on those below. Hence, the violation of celestial order is a threat to all those who are capable of death. Again, he gazed at each of the condemned in turn. Only three were angry or prideful enough to meet his eyes. But perhaps that is the goal. Gladick took a step toward the edge of the small platform, turning his back on the heretics and facing the crowds. These people worship death. Aron. I have, in my investigations, heard some go so far as to say that it is their duty to kill their fellow men, because that reunites them with Aron all the faster. The jeers of the masses obliged him to pause again. Bits of fetid cucumber flew toward the stage. Gladick turned back to the condemned, stiffening his spine. Regardless of their goals, it is our goal, our sacred charge, to oppose them, to stop them from breaking the heavens and the earth along with it. When so much hangs in the balance... If we show mercy, we only hurt ourselves. He pointed across the dozen noosed men and women. They who stand before you are heretics, threats to the order of the skies and our lives on earth. For this, there is only one fate. He fell silent. 
the hall duck thumped back up to the stage. This time he carried a long red crook. He walked to the far left of the platform, hooked his staff around the leg of the small man's stool, and yanked. The man dropped a foot, not nearly far enough to snap his neck. The crowd bayed, hands lifted above their heads. The hanged man swung in a slow circle, legs kicking. The Hulduck moved on to the young woman. He hooked her stool and removed it from beneath her feet. He turned off each prisoner with the same patient inevitability he displayed in leading them to the stage. By the time he saw to the twelfth heretic, the first had quit moving. The hanged man was quite likely still alive, however. Gladick had seen a man hang for thirty minutes, get cut down and tossed in a pile with the other corpses, only to gasp for breath and sit upright. The peasants had thought it a miracle. Faced with the possibility of a hostile mob, the attending priest had had no choice but to agree that Tame himself had pardoned the criminal, and thus so must the city. Since then, Gladick ensured that, in any hangings he oversaw, the offenders would be left to swing for no less than sixty minutes. These ones were lucky, he mused, projecting his voice. He held up his palm, lightly cupped, elbow bent, as he gestured across the row of heretics. Each one of their faces had gone red and purple, the eyes bulging grotesquely. Those on the right end of the stage continued to kick and jerk. There is great pain in strangulation, yet, compared to some deaths, it's a mercy. From his robes, he produced an oversized book and held it aloft. Its binding was black. Its front cover bore an image of a white tree. The cycle of Aron, he said, turning in a circle, book held aloft for all to see. The words with which they poison your souls, turning you away from the face of the truth. Some poisons are so vile, there is only one way to be rid of them. He drew the ether from the air around him and the sky above. Shards of light glinted on his upstretched hand. The shards grew brighter and brighter until flames leapt from the pages of the book. Smoke billowed away, pages crackling, yet Gladick didn't drop the book. Instead, he summoned more ether to the base of the book, letting it absorb and disperse the heat of the fire. Ash swirled around his head. From this day forward, just as this book burns, so will all who follow its lies. His eyes shifted across the field of sweating faces. He prayed for a riot, an uprising, anything that would allow him to crack down on the city, as he had done in the Colin Basin. Some of the crowd looked leery or fearful of his announcement, but none appeared angry or outraged. He shouldn't have hanged the latest apostates. He should have burned them, should have... He went still. Someone was watching him. In fact, many were. Some members of the audience had returned their attention to the swaying bodies, but others continued to observe him for further pronouncements. But this person 
was watching him with something more than physical eyes. Gladick reached into the ether, feeling for any signs of its use. Nothing. He withdrew. With terrible caution, fearful of being caught even though it would also be heresy on the part of the observer, he extended his focus into the nether. Nothing there, either. No secret awareness or hidden spies. Yet he had learned to trust his instincts. They had been honed by years of use, allowing him to look into a man's eyes and see the innocence there or the treachery. As opposed to the instincts, the mind couldn't be trusted. It was too eager to explain things to itself in the manner it wished to hear them. In this case, his mind wished to tell him that his feeling was no more than paranoia, or a false expression of his senses, like when lights dazzled the eyes from within. The soul, however, had finer instruments of detection, and rather than yearning to delude itself, it hungered always for truth. He cast down the smoking remnants of the cycle, tattered pages fluttering. The book struck the ground with a thud. Remember what you've seen today, he said, and remember it again if ever you hear their lies. He had intended to say more, but he stepped down from the platform, the feeling of the presence hurrying back to his carriage. It had spooked him, yes, which in turn angered him. Anger clouded most minds. For Gladick, it made him as sharp as a razor. He climbed the steps to the open-walled carriage. Most people in his situation would have opted to go to the Chenny. Much safer there, with its guards and host of monks. He, however, opted for the temple and its much greater privacy. He gave orders to the driver. The carriage rattled away through the summer streets, making any number of turns, yet whichever way it turned, the presence followed. He had been away in the Collin Basin for more than a week. The number of letters awaiting him at his office in the temple was enough to make a lesser man beseech the Celeset for help. Yet correspondence was influence. Influence was policy. Gladick stretched his fingers and wrists, got his ink pot and blotting sand, and began to answer his letters in the order in which they'd been received. With the afternoon wearing on and the heat finally beginning to abate, a knock sounded at the door. Gladick's head jerked up. With a lurch of light, he summoned the ether to his hands. Who is it? Prior, sir, a man called. From the Eldor. Gladick exhaled through his nose. Enter. Pryor opened the door and stepped into the chamber, coming to a stop fifteen feet from Gladick at his desk. The man was so thin it looked like he'd been crushed in the hand of a giant. Though he was one of the Eldor's favoured assistants, he had a nervous, twitchy cast to him that called to mind a small, long-legged shorebird. Pryor placed one foot forward, bending at the knee in the appropriate bow. My lord, I have stunning news from the plagued islands. Gladick waited. His cheek twitched. Has this news stunned you into silence? No, my lord. Then speak. 
The Sunfinder arrived in port yesterday morning. According to Captain Krieg, the Torren have been defeated. Defeated? Gladick's throat tightened. And the Sunfinder arrived yesterday? Yes. Then why am I being told of this today? Pryor swallowed. Captain Creek had fallen ill. It was decided that he must be treated and healed, lest he spread that illness to his questioners. Surely one of the monks could have questioned him while the others were tending to him. But, my lord, if his sickness were contagious, then we would quarantine and treat any who fell ill. Gladick's hand gripped the padded back of his chair. This information concerns the fate of the kingdom. Before that, one life is nothing. Do you understand? Pryor lowered his head. I'll make a note of this policy at once. Gladick clenched his teeth, waiting for his anger to retreat. The Torren had subjugated nearly the entire island. How were they defeated? An alliance united against them, spearheaded by the Kendaeans. What is the extent of the Torren losses? Warden is dead. Delardi's army lost at least five hundred men, with reports of as many as a thousand. The Delardi Tolaka have splintered. Most have already made peace with the other regions. And the Chardon? There are none available. Some were spent in the war, but there seems to be a great deal of hoarding. Even if supplies are restored, the Torren won't be able to provide a tenth of what they were giving us before. Gladick closed his eyes. Years of work dashed apart overnight, and through no fault of his own. In fact, he had asked to send Malish soldiers to the island to buttress the Torren. He had been denied on the grounds that the soldiers would suffer the island's plague and would hence be stuck there for the rest of their lives. Yet now that the Torren allies had fallen, it exposed how short-sighted such thinking had been. How many lives would it have cost to garrison the island? Three hundred? Five? What a paltry sum to pay for the permanent security of the Malish nation. Gladick spoke slowly, keeping his emotions in check. We made very certain the Torren had all they needed to claim the island. I want a full investigation of how they could have lost the war. That may not be necessary. Pryor shifted his gaze past Gladick's right ear. The reason the Candaeans won is because they had the aid of Dante Galland. The name hit Gladick's head like a mole. Dante Galland? Yes, my lord. He used his skills with the dark art to lay waste to the Torren army. There are rumours that he's the one who stirred up the war between the islanders in the first place. How reliable is this? Any number of Kendaeans will swear to it. Descriptions from the Torren soldiers support their claim. Deeply troubling. If Galand is... His mouth clicked shut. The loss of the Chardon's power was a disaster, yet if Galand was behind it, it was also an opportunity one that could finally convince the king to move on Narashtovic. Unlike others, he knew, Gladick had never spoken directly to the gods. 
Sometimes, however, he was granted flashes of insight so deep and pure that they could only have come from the divine. In an instant, he understood whose eyes had so disturbed him at the executions. And that Galand was here to kill him. He wasn't sure why. Either the man had some personal tie to the plagued islands, or he discerned Gladick's involvement. But Gladick knew in his soul that it was so. His skin crawled with simultaneous dread and thrill. I require time to digest this information. He gestured toward the door. Let Horstad know that no one is to disturb me tonight under any circumstances. Do you understand? Not even the Eldor. If the Eldor wishes to see me, he will summon me to him. Now leave me. Pryor bent at the knee, backed up two steps, and turned for the door. Once he was gone, Gladick bolted the door, climbed the stairs to the crow's nest in the temple's modest spire, and gazed across the raked pebbles and trimmed hedges of the yard. Again, he touched both Ether and Nether, and again he felt no foreign spiders scrambling across the strands of the celestial web. Yet they had returned to the city, and their first act had been to come watch him. To underestimate them, to downplay their intentions, would be to risk his life. He remained in the spire until twilight. When at last he descended, he checked each room of the temple. All were empty. He barred the front doors, moved to his inner sanctum, and bolted the entry. The bones were already in place concealed beneath the floorboards, arranged in their hexagon. He walked to his desk, removed a knife from the drawer, and lifted his robe, exposing his stomach. He pressed the knife against his skin until blood welled forth. He held his arms out to the shadows. They rushed from all corners of the room. His outstretched hands shook. The ritual was wrong, foul a corruption of life and sky. He could feel its wrongness in the heat of his blood and the cool of the shadows. Yet experiencing its allure, the rush of it, the power, allowed him to understand the minds of those he stood against. Come forth, he whispered. A silhouette emerged from the heart of the shadows. Chapter 3 One by one, the condemned were marched up to the stage. Dante watched from the rear of the plaza, shaded by the overhang of a pub. Blaze stood beneath the awning of the bakery next door. Close enough to support each other if they were spotted, but far enough away that they wouldn't be recognized together. Across a sea of hundreds of citizens, Gladick ascended his platform and spoke. Dante listened to his rhetoric and condemnations with a growing sense of disquiet. Malin had always persecuted Aron's followers. That's what had driven Dante to Narashtavik in the first place. Back then, though, you heard very little talk of heresy 
and blasphemy, largely because every Auronite with a lick of sense left Malin at the first opportunity. So what was the increased fuss about? Had an Auronite underground blossomed in Bressel? Or had Gladick and his ilk decided that, after witnessing the revival of Narashtivik, Auron's ancient homeland, Malin would be the next to fall, unless they put a stop to it here and now? Whatever the case, Gladick was a believer. Dante could see it in his gestures, hear it in his voice. Dante was too, of course, but there was a frenzy within Gladick's eyes that marked him as something more, the breed of fanatic for whom there could be no coexistence. Gladick made a final pronouncement. The red-trimmed Haldak mounted the stage. Dante moved to the neighboring awning and stood beside Blaze. Let's get out of here. Blaze kept his eyes on the stage. Why? We're not going to do this here, are we? Not unless you want to be added to the main event. But I'd like to see what they're about to do. I'll give you a clue, Dante said. It's going to involve a lot of dangling. Right. And seeing that will cement my resolve to see this through. Dante fell silent. Once upon a time, Blaze had held no qualms about putting the blade to anyone who needed it. But times had changed, and so had Blaze. If he needed to witness the executions to hone his motivation, Dante wasn't going to complain about having to see another twelve dead bodies. The next few minutes unfolded exactly as expected. They kicked, bulged their eyes, spun in erratic circles. Dante thought for a moment about killing them from afar to put them out of their misery, but he couldn't risk drawing Gladick's attention. Eventually, the stage went still. Well, Dante said, looks like justice has been served. Blaze turned down the corners of his mouth. Justice is a bit like baking macaroons, isn't it? One misstep and you've ruined everything. Not everything can be compared to cookies. In front of the stage, Gladick was banging on about heresy some more. As Dante and Blaze withdrew from the plaza, Dante sent his two dead moths soaring high above the square, circling erratically. He might well have been able to kill Gladick on the spot, but the assassination had to be clean. If the act exposed him, it could mean war between Malin and Narashtovic. The city had had a few years to recover since the wars with Gask and then Spiron, but it could only bring to bear a fraction of the resources Malin had at its command. They returned to the inn without any trouble. Before leaving to see the execution, they'd left a note asking Naren to stay put if he returned in their absence. He awaited them now, along with Jonah. We've located Gladig, Dante said. Wherever he goes, I'll follow him. We may be able to move on him this same night. Naren smiled grimly. I was hoping this news would bring me more joy. The most that can be said is that it feels like catching your breath after a deep dive. Considering the alternative is drowning, that sounds pretty great. Is there anything I can do to help? As a matter of fact, there is. Some weeks ago, you told me a group of Norrin had set up trade in the city. 
Indeed. They came to sell their craftwork for local silver. That's excellent, Dante said, because before we risk our lives and nation going after Gladic, I'd better alert my people as to what we're doing. There are any number of our courier services in Bressel. Why the Norin? They're the only people I trust to deliver a letter. After all, Blaze and I have been made official members of a clan. Hang on, Blaze said. You want to send a letter? Dante eyed him. That's the idea. Or do you think we should yell really, really loud? I think this is like Lyle's parable of the man who withheld a carrot from the starving family and showed them how to grow a garden instead. Rude and obtuse. Send Narashtavik a letter if you want to tell them something once. But if you want to talk with them, you should send them a loon. The loons were broken when we traveled to the plagued islands. Dante's cheeks went hot. But I can make more. Allowing us to talk to them as much as we want. Though, for the sake of your reputation, you might want to leave out the part where you thought it was a better idea to send them a letter. Captain Narren, please arrange a meet. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to give some rats a very bad day. Jonah and the other crewmen gave him a quizzical look. Naren stood to go. Dante followed him outside and down the stairs. While Naren trotted off into the depths of the city, Dante located the nearest alley. It smelled like most of the city's alleys did, which was to say, like shit. For once, though, this was to the advantage. The very rot that repelled humans drew numerous rats— after a glance to all sides, Dante summoned the shadows, killed two rodents with lances of black force, and pocketed the bodies. He returned upstairs. Fair warning, he told Jonah and the other sailor, as he removed the corpses from his pockets and set them on the table. This is about to get messy. Without being asked, Blaze provided him with three knives of varying length and thickness. With practiced quickness, Dante chopped off the rat's heads, peeled away the skin, and scooped out the pink-gray mush inside. After a thorough rinse in a bucket of water, he was left with two relatively clean skulls. Blaze scooped the shavings and remnants into an empty bucket. The two crewmen watched in fascination and disgust. Using the butt of his heftiest knife— Dante cracked the skulls, separating a portion of the ear canal and jaw from each other, then pairing a piece of ear bone from one rat with the jaw from the other. He got out his own knife, thin-bladed with a handle carved from a deer's antler by a Norin craftsman, and cut the back of his well-scarred left arm. At the first whiff of blood, Nether flocked as thickly as migrating swallows. Dante poured the dark blots into the pieces of skull, while at the same time drawing forth the shadows that lurked inside the bone itself. As carefully as he could, he linked the nether within each ear to the opposite rat's jaw. He eased his touch back from the components. The links held true, the shadows within them moving as slackly as the currents of a broad and level stream. This was the most delicate part of the construction. If the links were faulty, the nether would bleed away, 
leaving the bones inert. Yet, after a full minute, they remained strong. Dante picked up a set of paired bones and handed them to Blaze. Excuse the blood. Blaze took the pieces. If I had a penny for every time I heard you say that, then I would have a few hundred pennies. As the two smugglers watched in consternation, Blaze headed into the hall, closing the door behind him. Dante held the other two pieces of rat to his ear. Muffled footsteps receded down the hall. Testing, Blaze's disembodied voice said into his ear. Ahem, the recipient of this message owes its sender a sum of no less than one thousand silver chucks. Denied, Dante said. Now get back here. Er, Jonah said. Last time I checked, we are here. Dante waved a hand. I'm talking to Blaze. No, you're not. The door swung open. Blaze walked in, juggling the two pieces of skull in one hand. Worked like a charm, which I suppose it is. Jonah rose halfway from his seat. Hold on. You mean to say that you... He pointed at Dante. We're in here, and he was out there, and you heard each other. Dante eyed the two men. What you're seeing is a military secret. If this fell into the hands of King Charles or King Modigan of Gask, it would cause the loss of thousands of innocent lives. What are you suggesting? That we'd sell them the secret? Don't tell me it wasn't your first thought. My first thought? Jonah folded his arms. Sure was. Luckily, I'm so rich with thoughts I had a second one, and this time I thought about how Charles is the bastard in charge of the people who killed Captain Twill. As for Gask, they've been beheading pirates and smugglers since the days of Lyle. I've lost a dozen friends to their axes. To hell with all of them. Dante turned to the other sailor, an older man named Fenk, who grew profuse grey whiskers. What about you? Fenk snorted, shoulders hopping. I look like I give a shit and a half about the lords of the land. I'm a seaman, through and through. Glad that's settled. And without any death threats, Blaze said. That's a first. Dante ran his finger over the delicate portion of rat jaw. They're a Norrin invention. Ingenious design. If they get us back in touch with Norashtovic, we'll be able to call for aid against anything that crops up here. Jonah scratched his multicolored beard. You talk like we're starting a war. Ain't we only killing Gladick? That's the plan, but wars have been started for far less. The looms were almost but not quite finished. Between the pockets of Blaze and the two smugglers, Dante turned up twine, shell, and even a bit of wire. He used these to tie the pieces of each bone together. When he finished, he had a pair of dangling objects that resembled Norrin earrings, of rather poor quality, admittedly. If they'd been in Gask, that would be a clue that they weren't Norrin at all, the Norrin being fastidious craftsmen. But they weren't in Gask. They were in Bressel, 
where Norrin were virtually unheard of. With the loons completed, there was nothing left to do but keep the moth's eyes on Gladick's temple and wait for Naren to return from arranging the meat with the Norrin. A few minutes later, a robed monk departed the temple. Weary of the disguise stunt Gladick had pulled on them in their last encounter, Dante sent one of the moths after the monk as he travelled on foot through the city. The man arrived at a temple of Gashen. There were no signs out front, but the brutal architecture identified it at once, and entered. Dante kept the moth right behind him as he found a cell, got a book from the shelf, and began to read. Ten minutes later, Dante was reasonably sure the man was exactly where he appeared to be, yet he left the moth with the monk anyway. There was no other activity until Naren came back at sunset, sweaty from travel. The Noren were disinclined to act as letter carriers. What? Dante lurched to his feet. But they must be sending people back and forth to the Noren territories all the time. It wouldn't cost them anything to bring something back with them. Which I argued to no avail. However, after I let slip that the interested party was from Narashtovic, they became rather more accommodating. They await you on the north end of the city. Blaze squinted at the captain. You couldn't have opened with that part. They waited until the fall of twilight to head downstairs and trot north toward the mead. The trek took them through a number of piers, then around an enclave of white stone buildings, and at last to the northern fringe just outside the gates, which remained open despite the coming night. There, lively bunches of merchants haggled under the gleam of pungent oil lanterns. Shoppers and pedestrians circulated between the stalls and shacks. The Norren had staked out a small field between a stable and an inn, whose frame leaned us off-kilter as the drunks supporting themselves against it. The Norren had put up half a dozen of their characteristic round yurts. Typically, their walls were thickly insulated to deal with the harsh winters of the hills of the Norren territories. To deal with the heat of high summer in Bressel, the yurt walls had been replaced with single-layered deer hides, most of which were currently rolled up to let breezes blow in and out. Eight Norren sat on the trampled grass outside their tents, gathered loosely around a small cook-fire. Though they were seated, their size was as imposing as a bear. The shortest of them were top six feet, with most of the men closer to seven. Their bodies were as stout as barrels, their limbs as thick as the branches of a mature oak. The men grew beards that grew from the base of their throats to the heights of their cheeks. The only small thing about them was their ears. These were round and petite, almost lost in the tangle of hair and beard. Dante came to a stop fifteen feet away. The Norren looked up from their work on various wood carvings, paintings, and fletching that represented their nula, the life craft the Norren dedicated themselves to perfecting. Pardon me for not introducing myself properly, Dante said, but I believe my friend Captain Naren has already done so. Two men and a woman rose from their seats around the fire. The woman took two steps toward Dante. She towered over him, hair collected in a single rope as thick as any they had on the Sword of the South. 
That depends, she said, on whether you believe it's possible to introduce someone from afar. Dante's mouth twitched. It had been a while since he'd dealt with Norrin pedantry. If not, I'm here in person to complete that introduction. In that case, my name is Lena, and yours isn't necessary. This is my friend, he gestured to Blaze. I don't think you need his name either. I don't. I must say it's surprising to see you here in Bressel, unless you have business here. In that case, the surprise would be if you weren't here. A pause ensued. One of the seated Norrin resumed whittling, a steady scrape of iron on wood. Dante said, What clan are you from? Wandering Bear, Lena said. She kept her gaze steady on him. The ancestral enemy of the broken herons. Dante nodded, touching his chin. Years ago, to earn the support of the Norren during the Chainbreakers' War, he and Blaze had become official members of the Herons. The Norren penchant for inter-clan squabbles had decreased since winning their independence from Gask, but as the war had receded on the seas of time, some of the old grudges had been re-exposed. Well, Blaze said, then it sounds like we're in a unique position to begin to mend that rift. Lena laughed, but it didn't necessarily sound like she was amused. What do you want from me? Dante nodded to the north. Do your people come and go from the Norrin territories? I'm not currently in the territories, so I can't be sure. If you're asking whether the wandering bears in Bressel sometimes return to the territories, the answer is yes. I need something delivered to Narashtovic. The object in question is quite small. He produced one of the loons from his pocket, holding it up to the moonlight. It's a long way to deliver an earring, I know, but it would be a great comfort to know Ollivander had this in his hand. This time, Lena's laughter was more jovial. We could try to find room in our luggage. What do you offer for this service? I thought you'd undertake it free of charge in recognition of our shared interests. You mean I should do you this favor because you helped us win the Chainbreakers' War? Blaze chuckled. Norrin precision is as bracing as parting your hair with a bowshot. That's right, Dante said to Lena. You should help me for winning the Chainbreakers' War. She eyed him. I would say that war was won by many thousands of Norrin including hundreds and hundreds of dead ones. I would never imply otherwise. You just did. She waved a thick hand, cutting off his objections. This argument isn't worth its words. You may think you're famous for winning the Chainbreakers' War. You're right to think that, but that's not where I first heard of you. Really? Then how do you know me? From Dolendon where you were the first human player to master Nulladoon. At the very sound of the word, Dante's heart lifted. Nulladoon was, without doubt, the most engrossing game he'd ever played. It resembled a pitched battle in miniature form, 
complete with tiny landscapes for your toy-sized soldiers to manoeuvre through. However, these soldiers weren't mere men and women. They included sorcerers, giants, dragons, and countless other creatures of legend. Combined with the fiendishly complicated strategies involved in deploying, moving, and engaging them, Noladun made chess look as complicated as a coin flip. Since its play exposed so much about the two opponents' mindsets, Noran sometimes used it as a measuring stick for the people playing it. I love the game, Dante said. It's been way too long since I played. But what about it? The about it is simple. Leonard gestured to a yurt. Play me, and I'll do you your favor. I don't have time. Then I don't have time to deliver your loon. I'm not exaggerating, Dante said. I have critical business that must be taken care of tonight. She folded her arms, rocking on her feet. Fearing she'd topple and crush him, Dante had to restrain himself from stepping back. We're here to sell our nulla, she said. This makes the wandering bears grow stronger. In asking me to send one of my people away, you ask me to weaken my clan. But it's for the good of Narashtavik. If my city stays strong, we'll be stronger together. The clans don't need your city. When great trouble comes, a city has to stand and face it. But a clan can walk away. This argument had the flaw of implying that her clan was already strong enough to withstand whatever ills came its way, but Dante didn't think that would sway her. He gritted his teeth, casting about for answers. He could offer money, but he had no real cash on hand. And anyway, the Norrin didn't always care about silver. He could offer to play her on a later date, but if he killed Gladick, he needed to get out of Bressel before the body went cold. The relationship between Narashtavik and Norrin had been his trump card, yet Lena had brushed it aside like a cobweb. You don't really want to play Nolodoon here in Bressel, Blaze said. Yes, Lena said. I do. The Nolodoon we learned wasn't a game between two players. It was a sport with an audience. If you want a real match, you can't play it here, with the nearest Norrin are five hundred miles away on the wrong side of the mountains. You two should play in Dolendon. That sounds like a good deal for you. Largely because the game will take place so far in the future, it may never happen at all. Blaze laughed heartily. Trust me, if we weren't in the middle of some very nasty business, Dante would be setting up the playing field as we speak. I'm surprised he hasn't decreed it a part of Narashtivik's weekly church services. She thrust out her jaw, mouth pursed. Promise me we'll play by year's end. I swear it, Dante said. So start thinking what your wager's gonna be. Lena smiled, fox-like. I'll have your loan in Narashtavik within one month. He handed over one of the two loons. She inspected it, then wrapped it in a piece of soft leather. After a quick goodbye, Dante and company were back on their way to the inn. I've sailed two thousand miles in all directions, Naren said with a glance over his shoulder, and the Norrin are easily the strangest people I've ever met. 
Lena's one of the more reasonable ones. Blaze stepped over the jutting legs of a man sleeping in the middle of the road. I've met Norrin who wouldn't even talk for fear of saying something untrue. The nine o'clock bells rang minutes later. By the time they got back to the inn, it was nearly ten. Naren cleared his throat. So, is tonight the night? Dante paced across the room. I'm going to confirm he's still inside. If so, I see no reason to wait. What do we do after? Run as fast as we can, Blay said. When the powers that be find a body, they tend to pin it on whoever's closest. And what about the Chardon? Dante peered out the window at the blackened streets. From what I can tell, Gladick's in charge of the shells. We're not talking about a crop of potatoes here. The Chardon are extremely valuable. If Gladick dies, the scramble to secure them will be so obvious we could see it from the Colin Basin. Blaze thumbed his nose. I say we light out to the woods for a few days, leave Jonah and Fenk here to keep their ear to the street while you watch with your scouts. That works for me. The question for Naren is this. Does your involvement end with Gladick, or will you continue to help us hunt down the Chardon once he's dead? Naren moved beside Dante at the unshuttered window. My gut tells me I should sail away, for the good of my crew. But... But the Sword of the South has profited so much from the Plagued Islands. Twill might not have had the ship without them. They lost hundreds of lives defending themselves against Melon. I feel like I owe them a debt. You're a good man, Blaze said. That makes it harder. If you don't find a way to shuck off the weight, it'll crush you forever. Hands planted on the windowsill. Baron bowed his head. We'll help you find the Chardon. And destroy them. Dante said nothing. Command, be it of a ship or a city, came with many burdens. Heaviest of all was the choice to do what your heart commanded, at risk to your people, or to walk away and keep those people safe. Those who never had to make that choice were always fastest to judge. For himself, he had come to believe that, in the end, every choice was wrong. He seated himself. I'm going in. He delved into the mind of the moth that remained in flight above the temple. The insect landed on the outside wall and crawled toward the window. This was glass, but it had been left open to let the night breeze do its best to cool the structure. Dante stopped the moth on the sill. Inside, a tall, sepulchral man sat at a desk reading a thick tome, his back bent like a fishing pole with a whopper on the line. There was little light, but there was no mistaking Gladick. He's still there, Dante said. He's alone in a small temple. You'll be able to walk right through the walls. I say we move now, before he has the chance to relocate somewhere more secure. Sounds like a plan. Blaze raised a hopeful eyebrow. Swords? Besides, I don't intend for you to come in contact with him. Then how exactly do you mean for me to kill him? Pray for a spate of indoor lightning? You're there to get me inside, 
and watch my back while I take care of him. In that case, I hope he's got a stuffed chair I can kick back in. You're not insulted, Dante said, that I want to handle this myself. He's an ethermancer, right? Right. And some sort of covert nethermancer? Also right. Blaze held up a palm. So he has not one but two eerie powers capable of tearing me to shreds. If you want to take that on yourself, be my guest. Dante turned to Naren. It shouldn't take us more than three hours. If we're not back by the three o'clock bells, you should leave the city. Naren tensed his jaw. My vendetta against Gladick doesn't end if you die. Yes, but it will end after he tortures us into revealing your location, then burns you on a pyre. If we fail, you can return in a few months after things have quieted down. Dante killed a third moth and sent it three hundred feet above the rooftops for a clear view of the streets between their inn and Gladick's temple. With assistance from Naren, who knew the city fairly well, he worked out a route and committed it to memory. This done, Dante and Blaze descended to the street. The night was warm, smelling of the river and its muddy banks. They walked to the bridge, a stone structure whose middle was raised high enough for sailing vessels to pass through its arches. Its center sported a cluster of homes and shops. Dante skirted around these, laughter and the clank of pottery drifting on the air. Out on the open streets, with the goal of murdering one of the capital's highest-ranked priests, it felt as though a sign was hanging over their heads. Yet to the observer, there would be no clue as to the dark intent of their hearts. How many others were walking about at that very moment with malicious plans of their own? The thought was enough to make Dante want to retire to the highest and remotest tower he could find. Past the other side of the bridge, a pair of watchmen glanced their way, but paid them no special mind. Dante played out the possibilities in his head. Blaze would shadow-walk through the wall and unlatch the door. With the moth watching over Gladick, Dante would know if the man became aware of their entrance. If Gladick remained oblivious, Dante would sneak up behind him and put a bolt of shadows through his brain. If he got up to check on the disturbance, Dante would ambush him from the darkness. Whatever course the killing took, it would have to be as swift as a flood. While Dante had finally learned to touch the ether in the plagued islands, he remained a rank amateur. Gladick, meanwhile, would be as skilled with the light as Dante's council members were with the shadows. And the priest knew the nether as well. If it came to a toe-to-toe -to -toe fight, Dante's money wouldn't be on himself. A brisk walk took them through the quiet neighborhood around the temple. Soon enough, they stood outside its grounds. A wrought iron fence surrounded swaths of raked gravel and small topiary gardens. In the center, a modest edifice looked over the neat surroundings. Its walls were round and stone, its main building three stories high, topped by a short spire just large enough to contain a stairwell. So... Dante said softly. Got an idea on the fence? I was thinking we might climb it. Any ideas where we're not witnessed by everyone who glances in our general direction? 
Blaze peered up at the row houses around the temple. Most of them appear to be asleep. I say we find the darkest spot, climb on up, and get inside before anyone has the chance to raise an alarm. Dante had been considering conjuring a shadow sphere to cover their entry, but the patch of pure darkness would be more conspicuous than two silhouettes. When you had powers that reflected those of the gods, it was always tempting to use them. But often, the down and dirty route was more effective than any magic. They retreated from the pavement around the temple, circling through the back streets to approach from the north, where few lights shined in the row house windows. After a minute of silent observation, they crossed to the fence. Blaze grabbed hold of two pickets and hauled himself up, latching onto the upper rail. He hooked an elbow around it and reached down. Dante grabbed his hand and pulled himself up, catching the rail. The pickets were topped by spikes, but with some careful maneuvering, the two of them dropped to the other side of the fence without injury. Dante moved behind a square of shrubs trimmed to resemble hourglasses, then stopped and shifted his vision into the moth just inside the window of the temple's third floor. There, Gladick remained hunched over his desk, eyes scanning the pages of his book. We're looking good, Dante murmured. Care to step inside? A plain wooden door sat in the building's north face. Dante checked to see if it was unlocked, but it held fast. The two of them retreated to another growth of shrubs. What happens if something goes wrong up there? Blaze whispered. Are you expecting me to run away? Dante eyed him. How long have we known each other? Just checking. In that case, if he starts to wallop you, try to stay clear of his neck, belly, and groin. Why? Because that's where I'm going to be stabbing him. Nether rushed to Blazer's form. Fast as a blink, he vanished. As he moved toward the temple, he felt a ripple in the shadows that Dante was able to follow as long as he concentrated. He watched closely, hoping that this would be the time he witnessed the key to teaching himself to shadow walk, but by the time Blaze passed through the stone wall of the ground floor, Dante knew no more than ever. A minute later, the wooden door opened soundlessly. Either they were very lucky, or Gladick didn't brook disturbances from squeaky hinges. A silhouette moved into the opening and lifted its right hand. Dante emerged from the shrubbery and met Blaze inside. Blaze motioned to the ground floor, gesturing that it was all clear. Dante pointed to Blaze, then the ground floor, then himself and the upper floors. Blaze nodded and pointed out the stairwell. Dante stepped into it, letting his eyes adjust to the near total darkness. The steps were stone, no chance of creaking. He got out his antler-handled knife and nicked his arm, feeding the blood to the thirsty shadows. He ascended slowly, Netha held tight in his hands. He'd been in such situations countless times, but as always, his heart raced in his ears. Though he'd found that you could learn to ignore your body's fears, he no longer believed he'd ever be rid of them. Gladig was on the third floor, Dante paused at the second-floor landing to listen, but the chambers beyond were silent and dark. 
he continued to the third story. Two candles flickered at the far side of the chamber, light and shadow battling for control of the walls. At his desk, back to the stairwell, Gladick turned a page, reached for a quill, and jotted a note on the parchment beside him. Something rustled below, the sound so faint that, a second later, Dante wasn't sure it had been real. Gladick showed no sign of having heard it. The man was as quick as a snake with both Nether and Ether. Dante would have to hit him before he knew the shadows were upon him. Inhaling through his nose, Dante called the Nether in a rush so thick it threatened to blot out the air around him. The instant it was in his grasp, he launched it forward in two bursts, one aimed for Gladick's head, the other for the center of his back. Both blows struck true, and both dissolved like a pinch of sand cast into a breaking wave. Dante yanked the Nether from its holes in the crannies in the stone. Gladick stood stiffly, spinning on his heel to face Dante. Dante launched another volley of black bolts at the priest, Gladick didn't so much as raise his hand. He summoned no ether or nether in defense. As before, the assault vanished into his body, the shadows swirling into him as if he was drinking them. Acting on instinct, Dante drew on what little ether he could command. It coalesced into a pearly ball the size of a marble. He shaped it into a point and jabbed it toward Gladick. The priest jerked backwards twisting his shoulders. Rather than taking him in the throat, the ether struck him in the right collarbone. With this, all the color faded from him. Not that he went pale. Rather, from head to toe, he turned pitch black, including the glossy claws that now curled from his fingers. His eyes, though, these gleamed silver twinkling with the coldness of the stars. Dante's blood ran even colder. Chapter 4 Rorschach trudged up the stairs behind gates. He was always lively, but that night he had an extra bounce in his step. Under normal circumstances, she would have resented this. But tonight was different. Tonight was payday. He emerged onto the rooftop, six stories high, the top of the Marigan, in a touch of irony the den was still named after the blue blood who'd built it, held a commanding view of Narashtivik. To the north, the bay glimmered under the stars. To the west and south, the city spread before them. And to the east, the spires of Ivars and the blunt body of the sealed citadel stood as monuments to history. Black-eyed gates strolled to the iron railing enclosing the rooftop. He leaned his forearms over it, smiling at the distant bay. The early summer night was already cooling, the breeze tousling his ear-length black hair. Quite a view, isn't it? he said. Marvellous. The sea breeze was stirring less pleasant scents as well, but after so many years living in the slums, Rorschach took them as a natural part of life. Is this a ploy? For what? To put me in a good mood so you can negotiate me down. Gates had a flair for the dramatic. 
As he swiveled his head to regard her, he ducked his chin, only to swing it up at the last moment. You think I'd try to lowball you? For the talk of Dalda? I think you'd try to lowball me for the soul of your own mother. Yes, but in this case, I care about the talk. He turned back to the knight, twisting one of his many rings. We're not up here to soften your brain. Then why? We'll get to that. With a movement so graceful it bordered on magic, he produced a leather bag, its bottom sagging with weight. Payment in full. In exchange for one priceless talk. Do you even understand what the word priceless means? Don't get technical. If it has no price, then I owe you no money. Rorschach grabbed the sack. She jogged it up and down, clinking the silver coins inside it. Feels light. Do I need to bite it? Gates shrugged one shoulder. He was wearing a new shirt, looked like silk. Fedder died on the job. This wasn't some secret rat with no family or people. He was a scion of Dalagor. Do you have any idea what it takes to cover up something like that? Shouldn't cost a thing. A foolish boy went missing. Happens all the time. In our circles? Sure. But people like the Dalagors? They're going to call in trackers. Bounty hunters. It's in our best interests if they're fed certain crumbs, led in certain directions. Doing that, without it coming back on us, gets expensive. After a moment, she pocketed the bag. You said you had something else for me. Gates wandered toward the east side of the roof, giving Rasha no choice but to follow. He folded his arms, holding his right elbow in his left hand, as he regarded the towering silhouettes of the sealed citadel and the cathedral of Ivars. Those two structures hang above us like a pair of proud gods, he said. Wherever you are in the city, they're watching over you. Rasha moved to the railing. Can't be that powerful, or else they wouldn't need those walls around them. Indeed. Now what else? The cellar set has twelve gods, not two. I think there's room for far more deities in Narashtavik. Let me know when you're done being abstract. He snorted. Do I need to spell it out for you? This city's been resurrected. It's got money spilling from every pocket. Nobody's going to notice if we help ourselves. By the time they do start to figure out what's happening, we'll be rich enough to buy an army of our own. He gestured grandly to the dark buildings beneath them. We're up here for perspective, to find the vision to restore the order of the alley to its former glory. Very inspiring. Now, what about the job? Can't you allow yourself one moment to dream? Every moment spent dreaming is one you could have spent working to make that dream real. Gates sighed. But he was smirking. He pointed toward the citadel. Galan's gone. He's been gone for weeks. No one knows when he'll be back, or even if he's alive. I think it's high time we redistribute some of the citadel's treasures. To ourselves? That counts as redistribution. 
Rasha smiled. What's the target? The Jerilic collection. Your standard baubles and jewellery, though more ancient than most. It's rumoured there's even some gold in there. She couldn't help raising an eyebrow. She'd only seen gold twice in her life. This is in the sealed citadel? Correct. You know, that's not just a name, right? Got an entrance for me? We have someone inside who'll be working with you. And how do I get inside? This is the heart of the city's government, Kate said. It's home to priests, monks, soldiers, staff. There are hundreds of people inside those walls. Now, you may never have been inside the citadel, but you've passed by it, right? How big do you suppose its garden is? Not nearly enough for hundreds of people. She tipped back her head. You want to sneak me in with her food delivery? He nodded, grinning toothily. The wagons come every fortnight. Only this time they'll be carrying an extra... He looked her up and down. One hundred and thirty pounds of human surprise. What about extraction? I can't stay there two weeks until the next delivery. These hundreds of people produce more than their share of garbage and waste, too. That cart goes out three days after the food comes in, and when it does, it'll be carrying an extra 130 pounds of human X. Save it, Rasha said. That's the best you've got, cramming me into a mound of shit. He did his one-shouldered shrug. It's a little trash, that's all. Just pretend it's that apartment of yours and you'll feel right at home. She stared at him. It's not about the trash. It's the risk. Three days inside? What would you prefer? That we load you into a trebuchet and fling you onto the roof of the keep? Sounds less likely to get me killed. You're the best sneak we've got. I say you're up to the risks. If you've got a better idea, I'm all ears. I don't. As she spoke the words, though, an idea came to her with spooky clarity. Goosebumps touched her arms. This was a habit of hers, if you could call it that. Sometimes, when she expressed a firm belief, it was disproven in the next instant. By and large, she wasn't superstitious. People said all kinds of things about the gods, but the gods never said anything back. When it came to her jinx, though, there were times she was afraid to express her beliefs out of fear they'd be turned on their head as soon as she expressed them. Hold up, she said. I heard rumours that during the war they were bringing people in and out of the citadel while it was under siege. Those aren't rumours. Gates motioned to the hill north of the citadel. You're talking about the tunnel from the carnitarium. The body locker. You got it. The place where they take the dead to be poked and prodded until they reveal what killed them. Or the investigators find what they want to believe. These newcomers are strange. That's probably why they built the tunnel, so no one can see what they're inflicting on the bodies. He clasped his left fist in his right hand, drumming his fingers over its back. Won't work, though. The tunnel into the citadel was closed as soon as the war ended. Unless you can muffle a sledgehammer, there's no way in. Or so they want you to think. 
I'm going to see for myself. Do not get made. If they catch you sniffing around, and the next day the crown jewels go missing, they may be able to add two with two. I'm the only one you trust to get inside, right? So trust me to investigate my own route in. This is about much more than you. He swung away from the railing, bringing his face within a foot of her own. His expression, normally wry, was now as hard as the slopes of the Woden Mountains, his eyes as bright as their glaciers. This is the first wave in a sea change for the Order. Do us proud, or step back and let someone else turn the tide. In other circumstances, down in the bar, say, she would have deflected his earnestness with a quip. You know I can do this, Gates. If you didn't, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, he said. I know. He finished with the details. She headed downstairs and straight toward the strong box. There, Trunk checked her for picks and pry bars, his meaty hands deft through years of practice. Done, he stepped back with a nod. Inside the vault, she located her box and opened its door with the key around her neck, releasing the crisp smell of metal coinage and the musty smell of papers. It was rumoured that some members of the Order kept enough in their box to keep them fed for a decade. Rorschach had enough for two or three months. She put her payment for the talk inside, fishing out a few bits of silver and iron for walking-around money, then locked the box and replaced it in the wall. Downstairs in the bar, she stopped to write a note, folding it into her pocket. She hit the street, angling northeast toward the high hill facing the citadel. Within blocks, the neighborhood toughed. The blades on her hip, a knife and a longer weapon with pretensions of swordhood, dissuaded anything stronger than glances. It was early summer, and there was still a bit of a chill to the night's marine air. After a long walk, the buildings faded behind her, replaced by ragged grass grown high during the spring rains. A dirt trail led toward the base of the hill. It was easy to be accepted in places you had no business being. The first trick, which even the civilians knew, was to avoid notice. Act like you belonged there. Stride around like you owned the place. Absolutely no gawking or shifty eyes allowed. If you couldn't escape notice, you discouraged interruption. A man and a woman posing as a feuding couple could dissuade even armed guards from approaching. Under the right circumstances, applying makeup or lightly poisoning yourself to appear diseased could ensure nobody got close enough to ask you any questions. Lastly, if you failed to avoid notice or discourage interruption, you had to convince the man who'd marked you to disengage and move along. Easiest way to do that was to tell them the story of why you were there. Any story had to be plausible on its face, but the absolute best ones had something beyond that, details that would make anyone questioning you too uncomfortable to ask more. Hints of sex stuff shut down some people fast. Another way was to convince them you were there as part of a fun, harmless conspiracy. Say a servant stopped you in the baron's halls, and you told him you were an old friend there to surprise him. Did it work every time? Not even close. 
but it succeeded often enough that a good story could be a better defense than any sword. So she would walk into the carnitarium like it was her second home. Traversing the walls, she'd unfold the note she'd written to herself and appear to be inspecting it. And if anyone stopped her to ask why she was there, she'd explain that her husband, who'd been unfaithful to her, had been killed in a duel. His body was here, and she needed to see it. Alone. Thieving could be a lot of work sometimes. She came to the cave set in the base of the hill. A lantern flickered weakly in the entrance. Damp air oozed from the cavern. It was heavy with incense, but that couldn't mask the smell of bloating flesh. Seeing no one, she picked up the lantern and walked into the tunnel. She'd only gone a few feet before the passage forked. The way ahead smelled foul. The fork, though, smelled more like your run-of-the-mill cave. She took it. The stone walls were eerily smooth. The hallway descended, stretching on for hundreds of feet without any doors or side passages. Bit of grit on the floor, but nothing else of notice. As best as she could tell, and she was definitely fuzzy on this, she was heading south or southeast. The tunnel continued for what felt like a mile, then ended so suddenly she almost walked into the blank wall of dark basalt. She reached out and touched it. It was as perfectly smooth as the walls. She lifted the lantern. No gaps or seams where the wall met the ceiling. She felt it from top to bottom. All rock. Solid. She went back to Gates and told him she had her way in. With no need to coordinate around the Citadel's incoming wagon schedules, Rosha wasn't slated to hit the job for another four days. Even so, the morning after visiting the carnitarium, she got up early and returned to the Marigan. There, she removed nearly her entire payment for the talk from her locker and divided it equally into six small burlap pouches. Cash in her pocket and blades on her hips, she headed to the first home communal building on Flinders Street. Not a great neighborhood, but there were much worse, including hers. Inside the building, she climbed the musty stairwell to the fourth floor, found the door with the two dogs' heads carved on it, and knocked. A woman answered, a little old to be a mother, but a little young to be a grandma. Seeing Rasha, her face crinkled with a smile. Back so soon? I had a good month. Rosha said. How was yours? The woman, her name was Perry, rolled her eyes. Busy, no thanks to you. I warned you. You did, and I didn't listen. If at any time you're not happy, Perry slashed her hand through the air. None of that. I've never been happier. The busyness is the main reason why. Rosha smiled. How's Avi? Running wild with a pack of others. She makes friends like a cobbler makes shoes. Rorschach laughed. When she'd found Avi, the girl had been living alone, hiding in one of the abandoned ruins on the town's outskirts. So alone and wary of strangers that Rorschach had to coax her out by leaving almond pastries on a stone and retreating far enough that the girl felt safe to come out and get them. A year later, 
She had more friends than she had fingers and toes. A lot of that was Perry's doing. The woman acted like a curmudgeon, but Rorschach knew that, behind the bluster and the scowls, she was as soft as warm wax. Be sure to buy her something nice. She's got a sweet tooth. Rorschach handed over one of the smaller sacks. Perry accepted it, blinking at its weight. This is way too much. Then save it for the tough times. I never had this much growing up. I don't know how long I'll be around, Rorschach said. Could be a year, could be twenty, or anything in between. It's my job to make sure they'll be fine long after I'm gone. Perry snorted. I'll take your money, if that's what you want, but I've heard the stories about you. I've got a feeling you'll outlive us all. Rorschach spent a few more minutes catching up, spending as much time asking about Perry, who had recently been taken on as a clerk for a justice of the peace, as she did about Avy. After twenty minutes and a cup of tea, Rorschach extricated herself and went on her way, walking downhill to the home near the bay, where George Fenner lived with Fenn. George answered the door with a grin. Before he could finish saying hello, then sped from the depth of the house, crashing into Rorschach's legs and hugging her waist tight. She laughed and hugged him back. During the thirty minutes she spent catching up with them, sipping from a cool glass of wintrell spiced tea, she forgot all about the scheme against the citadel. But as soon as she hugged Venn goodbye and stepped outside, there it was, a stone block in the sky, a monument to itself, paired with the great spike of the cathedral. Just as Gates had said, everywhere she went, they followed. At her next visit, Mr. and Mrs. Kinnell were out, but Bina was there, along with the Kinnell's older daughter, Yenna. Everything seemed fine. Next was Svin, who already looked an inch taller than the last time Rorschach had seen him. Fifth on the list was Fed and his foster father, Herrick. They lived right outside the Pride Gate in a two-room house, standing on a time-worn foundation of black rock. The yard was littered with bits of wood and pieces of furniture salvaged from the thousands of homes that had been abandoned in the outskirts of Narashtivik prior to the coming of Dante Galand. Nearly every piece showed pale green mould or lichen, and was apparently so valueless it could be left out in the open without being stolen. Rorschach knocked on the door. After getting no response, she gave it a good pounding with her fist. She went around back, but the yard was empty. She knocked a third time, waited, then walked away. On the street, she glanced over her shoulder. A shadow moved behind a cracked shutter that had been closed tight a minute before. She finished her rounds with terror, dropping off the fifth of her six coin purses, then returned to the Marigan. Gates was asleep, so she killed time down in the bar, returning a sliver of her payment to the order in exchange for a light afternoon buzz. Once Gates was up and about, he summoned her to his room. The view heard nothing on the roof, but the space was meticulously tidy. Got my maps, she said. He hoisted a mug of tea. They're coming tonight. Tonight? The more time I have to study, the better the chances I pull this off. 
You know, most snakes don't even get maps of the hit. Sure, Rosha said, and most snakes aren't trying to break into the most well-guarded structure between here and Setevan. You're the one who thinks the guards won't be a problem. Getting in is no problem. Staying alive once I'm inside is another matter. Will I have the authority of the knife? Gates tipped back his head and set down his tea. This is the sealed citadel. We want a zero-casualty mission, and that includes you. But if push comes to shove, then, yes, you're authorized to do whatever it takes to protect your life. But, Rasha, for your sake and mine, don't let it come to that. She nodded and returned to the bar for another ale. The afternoon was growing hot, a sluggish breeze meandering through the open shutters. Judging enough time had passed, she got up and headed past the inn-gate, sticking to the northern faces of the buildings to shield her from the sun. Half an hour later, she exited the pride-gate, returning to Herrick's trash-strewn yard. He was out in the yard, tossing around sticks and debris. Seeing Rasha, he straightened. He'd cut his black whiskers short for the summer. Rasha, he smiled, dirt griming the creases of his face. Didn't expect you for another two weeks. Surprised? Where's Fed? Sent him over to the market, with a few pennies of his own to spend, too. Don't expect him back until nightfall. Too bad. She jingled the pouch in her pocket. Maybe next time. Herrick's brown eyes lingered on her pocket. You keep that safe until then, yeah? Yeah. Keeping her eyes on Herrick, she stuck her fingers in her mouth and whistled. It had been one of the first things she'd taught them. The front door swung open. Hesitantly, a young boy emerged into the sunlight. He was as tan as a Brasselian, his hair black and shaggy. You get back inside, Herrick hollered. Teeth gritted, he glanced back at Rorschach. The boy was already reaching for the door handle and retreating inside, but it was too late to cover the puffy black ring around his right eye. Rosha grabbed the collar of Herrick's thin grey blouse, yanking him close. Is that your work? Get your hands off me! He grabbed for her wrist, but she snapped his thumb, levering it back until he stopped resisting. I said let go! She released his thumb, swept her hands to her belt and drew a knife. She put its edge against his throat. I'm going to ask you some questions, Rosha said. You're going to answer. He tried to pull his neck back from the knife, but she kept it tight. He grimaced. It's broad daylight. Then everyone will be able to see how black your blood runs. All right, all right. Why? Herrick grimaced. A bead of blood ran down his neck. He's more trouble than he's worth. That's one of the reasons I pay you, Rosha said, so you can make the effort to help him lead a civilian life. What do you think I'm trying to do? How else am I supposed to get him to listen? You don't hit them. No matter what, you don't hit them. That's the first rule. I know it is. Then why? He doesn't listen. I give him chores, nothing more than I had as a kid, mind, enough to earn his keep and build some discipline, and eight times out of ten, when I come home, he hasn't lifted a finger. 
And you think if you hurt him bad enough, he'll become a perfect gentleman, happy to do your bidding without a trace of resentment? Herrick's jaw hardened. So maybe it don't make sense, do it? But you tell me what else to try when you already tried everything else. Try again, she said. All right. I'm going to ask you one more question. It's very simple. It's not a trick. Do you want him or not? A tear slipped into Herrick's whiskers. I do, Rasha. I wouldn't have taken him if I didn't. Then act like it, she said. Because if you don't, I can find him another home. But if you do, then you'll never lay hands on him again. She withdrew the knife, wiped the veneer of blood on the leg of her charcoal trousers, which were dark for reasons exactly like that, and sheathed the weapon. As Herrick rubbed his neck, inspecting the smear of blood on his fingers, Rosha stalked to the shack and opened the door. Fed stood inside the dark room, staring up at her. He hit you, she said. The boy nodded. She moved closer, touching his shoulder. If he does it again, you tell me. You understand? The boy nodded again. She walked outside. Herrick stood in the yard, squinting, although his back was to the sun. Roshaw got out the sixth sack of coins and underhanded it hard at his chest. He turned away from it, shielding his head. The sack struck him in the ribs and fell in the grass. He grunted, stooping to pick it up. I am something nice, Rosha said. Like some shoes. Herrick reddened beneath his summer tan. Rosha turned on her heel and walked back toward the gate. During their conversation, she'd kept her cool, but now she steamed like a kettle. Before she could turn back and do something stupid, despite everything, she believed Herrick when he said he wanted to keep the boy. She broke into a run drawing looks from a pair of guardsmen in the black and silver of the citadel. But maybe she should hurt Herrick. These were her kids. She'd pull them off the street, often places far worse than the street. She'd found them parents she trusted to do right by them. It had started two winters back. Dead dog in an alley, covered with snow and two tiny cloth-bound feet poking from beneath it. She'd pulled away the dog. Its legs were stiff, but it hadn't yet frozen through. And underneath it was a toddler. The boy sat up to look at her, pressed back to the wall, but he didn't look afraid. Are you here to hurt me? His voice was a young child's, but his tone was a veteran soldier's as if he didn't even care in the end, but just wanted to know how the rest of his day was going to turn out. No, Rosha said. No, I'm here to get you out of here. The boy stared, then reached up. His hand was as cold as the snows. One of his fingers was already discolored. Days later, however, it would turn out to be the only digit he'd have to have amputated. That had been Ven. She'd found Bina two months later, and Avi a few months after that. Now she was up to six. She wasn't sure how many more she could handle. Costs added up. 
The people she chose were the good ones, honest, wanting to help. Too often that meant they were nearly as poor as their former street urchin fosterlings had been. Rosha's purse was only so deep. But if six was as many as she saved from a life like hers, then she would have done far better than most. She went home. The apartment was small, stuffy, hot. Inside, bugs crawled on the moldy walls. Outside, human vermin walked through the mucky streets. Rasha stretched out in bed, hands behind her head, and smiled. Well, Gates said, don't you think you should tell me how you intend to make entry? Rasha wagged a finger. Trade secret. Why would you need to know? So that if anything happens to you, I'll know where to recover your body. Anything happens to me, you won't want to get within a mile of the citadel. The less you know, the better. On the one hand, this is completely true. He regarded her with a look that almost, but wasn't quite, a glare. On the other, it's damned annoying to have no idea how you intend to do this. If I told you, it would only frustrate you more. Great. Now you've made it even worse. Gates sighed testily, turning toward the distant citadel. Night lay on the city, but lights gleamed in the windows of the keep. I believe we're done here. She was making entry that night. She'd had the map for two days. It was crude, but like Gates had said, most times you had no map at all. Maybe it was better that way. A map made you think you'd know your way around, gave you false confidence. But it didn't show you where the guards were patrolling, where the servants would pass by at the exact wrong moment to land you in the dungeon, or at the end of a noose. No sense sitting around. Rasha pushed off from the railing around the roof. Keep a bottle handy. I'll be back before morning. She already had everything she needed. Map, knives, a doughty pack, her personal lockpicks, and some more specialized tools checked out from the supply room. She set out to the east. It was only nine o'clock and the streets were thick with pedestrians out for a night on the town. The Cathedral of Ivers grew taller and taller. Eventually she stood beneath it the sealed citadel across the plaza, its outer walls thirty feet high, and the keep far higher. Though the church doors were closed, a few pilgrims stood outside, laying down prayer boards, thin wooden squares carved with the position of the Celeset's stars during their birth. Otherwise the plaza and the fortress across it were nice and quiet. Rorschach headed north without any hurry. On the fringe of town, she stopped at a tavern for a beer and a plate of beef hash. When the midnight bells pealed across the sky, she rose and continued to the hill with the cemetery on top of it and the body locker beneath it. It was as quiet as her first visit. This time, though, she was carrying a small shop's worth of burglary equipment. She moved to the side of the cave, bit her lip until she tasted blood, took a deep breath, and stepped into the shadows. The world became a place of shadow and silver, 
mercury-colored light glowed from anywhere it pleased. The trees on the hillside, the flies on the air, from within the cavern itself. Even where there was no light, she was somehow still able to see through the darkness. The air tasted sharp and metallic and refreshing. Her body felt like an arrow in flight. No time to waste enjoying herself. She jogged into the cave. A hooded figure sat inside the foyer, reading by the light of the lantern. To him, she was perfectly invisible. She still hadn't had to use the cover story she'd devised for coming here. It was a shame how much prep work went to waste on most jobs. She made her way to the tunnel she'd investigated the other night. It and the hallway leading to it were deserted. She stepped out of the shadows and into a darkness so total she had to reach out to the cool stone wall for support. Knowing the floor was smooth and unbroken, she walked forward blind, one hand trailing along the wall while the other reached out before her. After what felt like forever, her leading hand touched blank stone. Rorschach moved back into the shadows. Within them, walking through the rock was no trickier than walking through a gauzy curtain. She emerged into a prison cell, the bars on its small window swirling with silver motes. She returned to the humdrum world, opened her pack, and changed into a set of servants' clothes, a grey shin-length dress with ties at the end of the sleeves so they could be secured above the elbow if the weather warmed. A white tree embroidered on the breast marked her in the employ of the citadel. The disguise was as basic as basic got, but she couldn't move through the shadows for more than ten or fifteen minutes a day before her brain lost its hooks on the place and she tumbled back into reality. There was no way around it. Most of her time inside the citadel would be spent out in plain sight. She returned to the shadows long enough to slip through the wall and into the hallway beyond. This was empty and totally dark. Recalling the map, the stairs were to her right. She shuffled that way. Rats, she thought, skittered through the darkness. The air smelled like mildew, old sweat and gentle rot. Eventually, her toes banged into a stone step. The stairwell took her up to a yawning hall with a lantern at the far end. A quick poke around revealed a score of large storerooms, aching to be burgled, but that could come later. She continued to the ground floor. She exited into a small foyer next to a high-ceilinged hall. Voices murmured somewhere ahead, carrying across the vast stone spaces. Without pausing, Rosha forged onward, following the wall until it came to the stairwell to the upper floors. This sported a lantern at each landing, providing enough light to climb by. The Gerolic collection was supposed to be housed on the top floor. She ascended, stepping lightly. The air smelled dusty, but otherwise clean. A door creaked above her. Heavy footsteps began their descent. Rorschach carried on. At the next landing, a man in a thin black doublet with a white tree on the chest glanced her way. He was heavy-set, mostly muscle, 
with a thick beard and an air of authority. Rorschach lowered her eyes and stood to the side of the stairs. He moved past her with the slightest of nods. She recognized him. Salamander, Olamander, something like that. The chief in Galan's absence. Rorschach climbed upward, reaching the top floor without interruption. The hallway was lit well enough to see it was empty. Her target was three doors down on the right. Door was locked. She bit the inside of her lip again, drawing enough blood to make the shadows happy, and walked into the realm of black and silver. She crossed through the stone wall. The room beyond was empty of people, but crowded with cabinets and display cases. She smiled and departed the shadows. The room was pitch black. She groped around her stuff until she found her flint and lit a candle. Jewels and silver shined from pegs and the dark cloths used to showcase them. One case held nothing but gold rings. Rasha gave herself a moment to enjoy them. After all, a good thief had to know what the best merch looked like. Enough admiration. Time to start grabbing. She wrapped the larger necklaces and idols in cloth so they wouldn't clink, and sorted various rings, bracelets, and earrings into a compartmented wooden box. Finished, she hefted her pack. By weight alone, she was carrying a fortune. She crossed back into the hall. At the far end, a silvery figure entered a door, closing it behind themselves. So far, everything had gone as smoothly as Rosho could have asked. Getting inside the citadel was the hard part. Once you were there, and dressed as a servant, nobody was going to pay you any mind unless they caught you somewhere you weren't supposed to be. All she had to do was walk downstairs, hit the dungeon, and get the hell outside. But something held her back. The man of the house was gone, and his room was just down the hall. Sending a quick prayer to Carvajal, who looked over all thieves, she walked forward, counting down doors. At Galan's, she tried the knob. Locked. A quick jaunt through the shadows got her inside the room. She relit her candle, revealing a space that was both orderly yet cluttered. Shelves along the walls were full of books, most of which looked older than the bones in a crumbling tomb. Benches and desks displayed a crazy amount of knives, scalpels, small skulls, bits of bone, a glass case full of pinned moths, assorted gewgaws, and tiny wooden statues so well crafted they had to be Norrin craftsmanship. For the right person, there might be treasures here, but nothing hit her eye as worth carrying out. The candlelight glinted from something hanging on the wall, a sheathed sword. The scabbard was black and curved, filigreed with silver, though not half so pompously as the blades of most nobility. A bright blue sapphire winked from the scabbard's tip. Rorschach set a chair beneath the sword, climbed up, and unhooked the scabbard's strap from its pegs. She began to draw the weapon, but stopped when she'd only exposed the first six inches. The blade was white. She tapped her nail against its flat. Wasn't metal. 
Almost felt like wood. Or more like... bone. Rasha unsheathed the rest. The entire sword was white, gently curved, edged on one side. It was lighter than expected, as if it was hollow. There wasn't a single nick on its cutting edge. Ceremonial? She set the edge against her thumbnail to test its dullness. She cocked her head and took a second to look across the room. All those trinkets, scalpels, pieces of animals. Aside from the strangeness of the collections, some of which looked like active experiments, these were the personal quarters of Dante Galland, Nethermancer extraordinaire. Rasha withdrew her thumbnail from the sword, walked over to the desk, hosting most of the pieces of bone, and laid the edge against the wood. As soon as she pressed down, the sword sliced an inch into the table. With a gasp, she dropped the hilt. The blade remained embedded in the wood. Effortlessly, she pulled it free, eyes traveling up its white length. Uh-oh, Rasha murmured. Looks like someone left their favorite toy behind. Chapter 5 Gladick moved forward, silver eyes shining from the infinite darkness of his body. Dante reached for another bolt of the ether that had finally knocked Gladick back a step, but he produced nothing but a handful of sparks in the air between them. Even so, Gladick halted in his tracks. Dante followed up the sparks with a lance of shadows, as before Gladick absorbed the nether without so much as a grunt. Dante lashed out wildly with enough nether to knock down a small house. Gladick inhaled, chest swelling as the shadows sank harmlessly into his body and stepped forward, lifting his claws. Dante turned and ran for the stairs. Blaze! His feet thundered on the steps. We have to get... Blaze spilled out onto the second floor landing right beside him, clutching an armload of papers. What's happening? Dante raced down the steps. What are you doing up here? Why are we running? Blaze fell in beside him, glancing back up the steps. Did you ruin everything? No time for talking. I'm taking that as a firm yes. Dante came to the ground floor and raced toward the door he'd come in through. His leg banged into a table, spilling him onto a plush rug. Shin throbbing, he got to his feet. Blaze had gone to open the door, sword in hand. As Dante reached him, his eyes went wide. Oh, Blaze said. Run! Gladick's silhouette seemed to flow across the dim room. Dante sprinted outside. He and Blaze dashed across the moonlit plaza. A dog barked nearby. Dante flung himself at the wrought iron fence, grabbing tight and hauling himself over its points. Blaze dropped to the other side, landing in a crouch. Dante came down beside him, stumbling, his wounded leg threatening to give out beneath him. He sent a wave of shadows to his shin. Attracted by the blood leaking from the gash there, they soothed the wound at once. What in hell? Blaze said. Don't know, Dante panted. That thing looked like it was carved out of coal. That thing was Gladick. Blaze swerved south, putting them on a parallel course with the distant river.
You're sure about that, because I have a distinct memory of Gladick being human. I've been watching the temple all day. Gladick never left. When I went to the room, he was sitting at his desk. I hit him with the nether, but it was like he absorbed it. He didn't even have to do anything. When I struck him with the ether, that's when he turned into... whatever that was. Maybe that's what he's always been, and the ether only revealed his true form. They entered the tailor's district. With the shops shuttered for the night, the street was quiet, their footfalls echoing from the walls. Blaze glanced back, but they appeared to be alone. Here's another thought. What if it wasn't him at all? What else could it have been? You're the wizard, you tell me. You know how to use the nether, too. Yeah, but for me it's only a hobby, Blaze said. For you, it's more like your wife. They veered east, heading back toward the river. Dante slowed his pace. I have no idea. But that felt like a trap. Not a very good one, given that we're currently running away rather than bleeding to death. If that thing wasn't Gladick, that means Gladick knew we were coming for him. Even if it was him, it felt like he was ready for us. So what do you want to do now? Tell Naren what happened, Dante said, and that we're going to have to back off. Blaze raised an eyebrow, but said nothing. As they came to the bridge, they slowed to a walk. The warm night was tranquil, but every scrape of feet or distant laughter felt like a sinister intrusion. The further they got from the temple, the more Dante questioned his quick decision to run. Could he have fought harder, tried more subtler methods of attack, called up Blaze to help him? But there was no denying what he'd seen Gladick do. The Nether had been useless against him. If Dante and Blaze had stayed to fight, they'd be dead. To Dante's relief, Naren, Jonah, and Fenk were all in the inn, awaiting their return. Naren lurched from his chair, eyes darting between Dante and Blaze. Well? The good news is, we're alive, Blaze said. The bad news is that Gladick is, too. Dante explained exactly what had happened. Aaron's expression went from shocked to nonplussed to his typical stoniness. Gladick, or this thing pretending to be him, did it hurt you in any way? I didn't give it the chance, Dante said, but I think the claws and the inexorable advancement toward me were strong indicators of intent. Then we don't know how strong Gladick is. You left before finding out if he has the power to hurt you. That sounds amazingly close to an accusation of cowardice. Naren's brow creased. It's a statement of fact. I do know that my weapon of choice didn't so much as scratch him. We need to back off and reassess. Your strategy for disposing of him? Or whether that's possible? There's more at stake now than vengeance on Gladick, Dante said. I suspect this was a trap. If he gets proof that Blaze and I were involved, he'll use it as fuel for his anti-Aron propaganda. He may even use it to stoke war against Norashtovic. The captain squeezed his eyes shut, sighing through his nose. He ran a hand down his face. Then what do you suggest we do? Get out of the city. For now. Let the situation cool down. 
In the meantime, we'll try to learn everything we can about what happened tonight, and if that's really Gladick, how we can kill him next time. If you're still committed to your vows, then we've got no quarrel. Where do you intend to take us? I hadn't thought that far, Dante said. Wetton, maybe. We know our way around, and we could get back to Bressel within a few days. I think you should consider the Colin Basin. Colin, why would we want to go there? Because, Naren said, that's where the most recent shipment of Chardon have gone. He went on to inform them that, while they'd been out dealing with the Norren, Jonah and Fenk had been keeping tabs on the Sunfinder, the Malish vessel that had returned from the plagued islands. They'd been assuming that its cargo would either be offloaded in the city or piled onto a barge to be taken further up the Chancet River. To their surprise, however, the crates had been piled into a wagon caravan, which had set off down the road to Colin. Makes sense, Blaze said. The Malish have been clamping down on the Colanders lately. Bet you they're using the shells to power their oppression efforts. Dante frowned. The Malish aren't supposed to be using Nether at all. It's blasphemous to tame. I'm sure the priests giving those orders never touch the stuff then. Just like they never drink wine, eat to excess, grope youths or curse. We might be able to net two fish with one swoop. Collins never rejected Aron and the Nether, the way the rest of Malin has. As we're figuring out what the Malish are doing with the Chardon, I may be able to research what just happened with Gladig. You think the coloners will have any clue about that? If there are any archives on the Nether anywhere in Greater Malin, they'll be in Colin. After consulting with them, Naren decided that Jonah and Fenk would stay in Bressel to keep eyes and ears on local developments. Dante and Blaze started packing, preparing to leave that same night. Fast as he could, Dante constructed a new loon, giving Jonah one piece of it and keeping the other. By the time he'd finished, Blaze had returned from downstairs with the staples of the road. Sausage, cheese, crusty bread, dried apricots and figs. The five of them left the inn together. Once they were out of sight of the building, and reasonably sure they weren't being followed, Fenk and Jonah parted ways, meaning to find a new spot to hole up in, on the off-chance Gladick knew where they were staying. Dante, Blaze and Naren continued to the late gate, so-called because it remained open all night. Passing a rustling alley, Dante stopped to slay a pair of rats, and then reanimate them, sending one ahead of them and the second trailing behind. I'm not seeing anything, he told the others, but that doesn't mean they're not there. Blaze swerved around a malodorous puddle. Now that we've had some time for our brains to settle— do you have any idea what went on back there? If anything, I'm more confused. Hey, when I made my tactical retreat, were you stealing Gladick's papers? I thought I'd make myself useful. I didn't have anything else to do. Besides, watch the front door. I could have done that, but then you'd be without these. Blaze reached into the shirt of his peasant garb and retrieved a thick roll of papers. Dante itched to read them, but it was the dead of night, and he had a city to flee. He tucked the roll into the round leather case that carried his other papers. 
As he walked northeast, following Naron's lead, he flicked through his internal archives of everything he'd read related to the use of the nether, casting about for anything similar to what he'd seen in Gladic's temple. There was one story from the cycle of Aron that rang a bell. Starthus the Wise, one of history's most venerated nethermancers, had taken many disciples under his wing. One of these, Kenan, was considered a favorite to take Starthus's seat, but when Starthus died, that honor passed to a different disciple named Vanya. Grossly slighted, Kenan had turned to darker and darker methods to undermine his new superior. Dante couldn't remember the precise phrasing, but one of those methods had involved a shadowy reflection who could tell you your enemy's secrets in exchange for an awful price of some kind. He wished he could consult the book. At that moment, however, he didn't have a copy of the cycle, both because it weighed five pounds and he was traveling, and because, in Bressel, owning the book would get your hands chopped off. Or these days, get your entire body burned on a pyre. He didn't think the story had much more to say about the shadowy reflection, but once he had access to the cycle, it couldn't hurt to check. With some thinking, he was able to recall a few other stories of silhouettes, doppelgangers, and demons that were as black as caves. None mentioned silver eyes, though. Two hours after leaving the inn, they came to the late gate. The blue-clad guards gave them a long look, then waved them through. The three of them headed southeast, through various slums, until they came to the long arm of the king, the nickname for the cobble and mortar road, striking east toward Colin. This led through a few miles of sharecroppers, then the stumps of harvested forest, and then into the forest itself. By that point, it was nearing five in the morning. Sunrise wasn't far off. At Blazer's suggestion, they headed off the road and into the woods to clear a quick camp. Dante laid out the blanket from his travel kit. The abruptness of their departure from the city still had him reeling. We're sure this is the right move. It was your idea, Blay said, so absolutely not. Naren rolled his spare shirt and trousers into a pillow. I'm not happy to leave, but I understand the threat staying would pose to Narashtovic. There's the honor of the Candaeans to think about as well. Capturing the Shaden will help disarm those who try to conquer the plagued islands. Dante stretched out his blanket. I just hate to step away from a task before it's complete. Maybe this is a part of that task, Blaze said. For all we know, Gladick's using the Shaden to do whatever it is he did back there at the temple. He kicked off his boots and wriggled around for comfort. Besides, if we stayed, what was our next step? cowering in our room until Gladick gets so old and senile he forgets how to summon the ether. Better to move on. Like my dad used to say, fighting the current is the best way to drown. Dante agreed, yet it still felt like defeat. He closed his eyes. That night, he dreamed of silver eyes, black claws, and Nether that refused to come no matter how hard he called for it. They woke a little before noon, ate, stretched, and got on their way. The forest wrapped them in welcome shade. 
Eighty miles lay between Bressel and the border of the Colin Basin, and another forty miles from the border to the city that gave the basin its name. The long arm of the king was in excellent maintenance, however. Dante thought they'd arrive within five days of hard walking. He kept his rat scouts ahead and behind them. Traffic on the road was light. Once, when a group of mounted soldiers approached from the west, heading toward Colin, Dante and the others diverted into the trees and waited for them to pass. By the end of the first day, the land began to rise, the cobbled road spooling up and down the low hills. Whenever they took a break from travel, Dante dived into Gladick's papers. Most of the material was either administrative trivia or theological discussion of the glory of tame. Dante was about as interested in these topics as he was in the mucus patterns of nightcrawlers. Even so, he read the works to the end, eyes sharp for anything that might help him understand Gladick's plans, abilities, or mind. Two other pieces held far greater potential— one was three pages, front and back, devoted to the matter of a Brasselian monk who was able to use the nether and had requested Gladick's permission to do so in service of fighting the enemy. Gladick's response considered the matter fairly, but eventually found that no matter how noble an act of heresy might be, it was still heresy. The letter concluded with the fact that if they stooped to the use of the nether, they would destroy one monster— only to replace it with themselves. The second piece filled less than half a page. It was highly cryptic, with multiple references to those that once walked and star-eaters. The overall thrust involved deducing the location of a site in the northeast, one where lives fell like rain and blood sloshed to the knees. It finished with this. With the finding of this site, the star-eaters, in all their terrible purity, might be returned to scour that which— It broke off mid-sentence. Dante read it several times. Could star-eaters refer to whatever he'd encountered in the temple and its star-like eyes? If so, were they an outside force Gladick wished to ally with, or was he himself a star-eater? There would be no answers to be found in the forest, but perhaps he could find the truth in the libraries of Colin. As night neared, they made camp in the lee of a hill. It was warm enough to go without a fire without any discomfort. There was no hint of rain on the air either. They scraped the ground clean, stirring the too sweet smell of rotting maple leaves, ate, and bedded down. So, Blay said, before we get to Colin, you want to tell me what the place is like? You grew up in Bressel. Dante gazed up at the dark boughs and the stars beyond. How could you not know about the Colin Basin? Oh, I don't know. Because I grew up in Bressel, a city so big you could live in it for eighty years and find a different street to walk down every day, where all the world comes to us for a taste of our overflowing wealth, culture, wisdom, and style. Where the people in the streets are as many as the stars in— It's probably because you were illiterate. Are you at least aware that Collins the most rebellious territory between here and Voss? Everyone knows that. If there's anyone who didn't, it would be you. 
Colin is the only holding in all of Malin that hasn't permanently renounced the worship of Aron. And during the times they have renounced it, it's been due to malish military coercion. How have they gotten away with that? Blay said. Malin's gone through three scours dedicated to burning, smashing, and defenestrating everything Aron and Aron adjacent. The last scour was only a century ago. Because... Naren's deep voice contrasted with the chirp of the crickets. They're the only ones who've always been willing to fight back. That's the gist of it, Dante said. Colin's been trouble from the start. In the early days, the fighting was so bad, Queen Ingrid considered giving up all claims to the land. She eventually settled on a policy that's endured, with exceptions, to the present day— that Colin be allowed to follow its own laws and customs so long as it pledges fealty, pays taxes, and contributes soldiers in time of war. Blaze shifted on his blanket. Let me guess. That arrangement functions so well that, every few decades, a malish king will notice Colin's at perfect peace and decide that means he can afford to squeeze them again. Exactly right. But it runs both ways. The Colin government is a democracy. They elect their leaders like a small-town guild. Blaze laughed. They elect their kings? Every few years. Typically, the first order of business of a new despot is to undo everything their predecessor did, often through the use of bonfires and street mobs, actions which have the unique property of attracting malish soldiers. This system sounds about as stable as an eight-year-old on his ninth pint. More than a few coloners aren't too impressed with it either, meaning that every few generations a group of seditionists tries to abolish the electoral process and install a monarch. The smart ones bring the malish in on their side, promising that in exchange for the crown's help, the basin's new regent will pledge complete fealty. As a result of all this, some historians have compared the Colin Basin to a colony of dagger ants. I disagree. Dagger ants might never stop fighting, but they never fight with themselves. I see, Blaze said. And we're going there on purpose? The others went to bed. Before doing the same, Dante summoned as much ether as he could, condensing the light from the air itself. Ether was the only thing that had hurt Gladick, or whatever had been pretending to be Gladick. Dante had only just begun to use the lightness during their trip into the afterlife. Considering it had taken him over ten years to learn that much, he feared his skills would never be more than trivial. The only way to avert that fate was constant practice. The next day took them higher into the hills, some of which might have qualified as small mountains. Pines replaced many of the leafy trees, Despite the increasing ruggedness of the terrain, the road remained cobbled, though portions were cracked or showed erosion of the mortar between the stones. Rare to find such a well-maintained road so far into the wilds. Dante supposed the armies of Malin often needed to get to Colin in a hurry. The hills crested and began to descend. The trees thinned to scattered stands, replaced by grass gone long and yellow in the summer. It was far warmer and drier than on the other side of the hills. With little shade, they sweated crazily. The road straightened, heading directly northeast. 
a sluggish stream oozed beside it. Dante would have suspected the road was built to parallel the stream, but both were so straight he began to think the road came first and someone dug the creek later. Soon the grass thinned too, replaced by pale green sagebrush, swaths of yellow cheatgrass and gigantic round balls of thorns. A few villages sprung up around the road and waterway, small farms mostly, but with the occasional outlet for provisions. Most of the locals were blonde, with the washed-out blue eyes so common to the basin, their skin tanned light brown from the constant sun. Captain Twill was from here, Naren murmured as one such village passed behind them. Blaze swiveled his head, taking in the broad brown vistas. No wonder she wanted to get away. Naren gave him a severe look, then laughed. At least it's very difficult for anyone to sneak up on us here. In one of the villages, a merchant sold canvas-covered wooden hoops you could hold above your head with a thin rod, keeping the sun off you as you travelled. If Dante had had any money, he might have bought one. Miles ahead, buttes rose from the horizon. Years ago, Dante had read many books about Colin, including two or three that had been illustrated. Buttes featured prominently in all of them. Seeing them in person made him smile with recognition. Green tongues of farmland ran between the buttes, sprouting in sharp contrast to the grey and yellow surroundings. The crops were wheat and asparagus, irrigated by ditches just like the one that ran beside the road. Some of the buttes bore stone towers overlooking the farmland. More than one of these towers was a ruined shell. As they neared the city of Colin, Dante's loon activated. Jonah had a piece of news. While there had been no talk on the street of an attempt on Gladick's life, Gladick had left the city just hours after Dante. Jonah had only caught wind of this after the fact, meaning he hadn't been able to follow Gladick, but word was that the priest had been heading north, making it unlikely he was following them to Colin. Dante passed this along to the others. If Gladick's gone, is there any reason for Fenk and Jonah to stay in Bressel? Maybe not, Naren said, but there's no reason for them to leave either. Tell them to remain in place and try to learn whatever they can without exposing themselves to danger. Dante relayed the orders, then continued along the road. A few miles later, the pavement quit abruptly, a rutted track extending from its end. Bits and pieces of river stones and mortar lay half-buried in the dust. What do you think caused this? Blaze nodded at the wreckage of the road. The Great Mule Rebellion of 719? Dante towed a loose rock. Does this look recent to you? Blaze bent for a closer look. Unfortunately, I let my membership in the Roadmasters Guild lapse years ago, but the break still looks pretty jagged. I think it was intentional, and I doubt it was the malice who wrecked their own investment. They moved along the rutted path. As the day drew on, what remained of the road led to a great butte. Dante knew at a glance this was the city of Colin. The plateau climbed two hundred feet above the plains, its top stretching four miles across. 
At the base of its southern rim, a second town thrived. The smaller houses were wattle and daub, the roofs thatched, doors and windows enclosed by the hides of deer and sheep. The larger buildings were comprised of mud bricks. Most of these were pale grey, but the bricks of some structures had been dyed orange, yellow, or light blue. What little wood was in use was generally reserved for doors and shutters. A few homes and temples sported wooden stumps carved into elk, bears, the dragons of Joris and Daris, or relief images of hunts and battles. The lands surrounding the butte were crisscrossed with ditches and heavy with farming. A road switchbacked up from the town on the southern side of the butte. Semicircular holes had been carved from the rock along the switchbacks. People went in and out of the caves. Large basalt-hewn towers jutted from the top of the plateau, swarmed by the rooftops of hundreds of smaller buildings, most of them made of pale brick. I'm guessing most of the interesting places are up top, Dante said. First we'll find a place to stay. While you two start after the Chardon, I'm going to do a little research. The closer they got to the bottom of the butte, the thicker traffic got. Farmers, mostly, wearing loose beige clothing, driving wagons drawn by a mule or two. The lower town smelled like dust and animal sweat, and looked large enough to house a few thousand people. On their way to the switchback path, Dante drew a great deal of looks, far more than Naren, whose deep brown skin and elegant features were rare even in cosmopolitan Bressel. Blaze, meanwhile, received almost no attention at all. After a while of this, Dante glanced at Blaze. What are they looking at? Is there something on my face? You mean, besides your face? Blaze said. Naren cocked an eyebrow. Blaze jokes, but he's correct. Your dark hair. That thin nose and sharp cheekbones. You look more malish than the king. Dante blinked in sudden recognition. Blaze was blonde, with eyes blue enough to be a coloner. And while Naren certainly looked foreign, his appearance wasn't inherently threatening to the coloners. Dante, by contrast, looked as unwelcome as a rattlesnake. Blaze chuckled softly, reaching the same conclusion. Looks like I'll want to do the talking. What else is new? Dante said. Naren gave them a sidelong look. Exactly how long have you two known each other? Since our youth, which may explain why we seem to be stuck there. The base of the road up to the butte was congested by a pair of mule teams who'd gotten snarled trying to pass each other. Rather than unhitching the animals to manoeuvre them free, their owners appeared to be attempting to untangle the mess by screaming at each other. Both men were red-faced, dust flying from their short sleeves as they gestured at each other. The larger man offered an insult of some kind, the smaller man lifted his fist and stepped forward. A woman darted from the crowd. Her arms and legs looked carved out of ironwood. A golden ribbon fluttered from her right elbow. She intercepted the shorter man's wrist mid-punch, sweeping her leg behind his plant foot. The move could have sent him crashing down hard enough to break his arm, but the woman guided his fall so gently, he barely winced. Good training, Blaze murmured. Don't fight your brothers! 
The woman kneeled over the mule driver, still holding his wrist. She grinned at him. And if you have to fight, don't do it on the road. He blinked, mouth hanging open. His expression swiftly darkened. I'm an Earther. How dare you touch me? You'll have to forgive me, but it was in service of protecting another Earther. The downed man scowled. The taller man, who remained standing, barked with laughter. Get your ass off the dirt before you spoil it. He extended a hand to the fallen man. Come on and let's get this sorted out. The short man gave the woman a burning look, then took the other man's hand and stood. The onlookers dispersed, hurried along by the woman with the golden ribbon and the arrival of the three well-muscled men who wore different coloured ribbons of their own. With the way cleared, Dante and the others continued upward. The switchback was steep, but carved twelve feet into the hillside, it didn't feel at all treacherous. They reached the first turn. Smoke rose from the heights above them, but there was no visible fire. On the next leg of the path, caverns had been holed into the rock along the trail. Baking bread and roasting meat wafted from the entries. People wandered in and out, munching pastries. New mission, Blay said. Acquire pies. Dante pointed up the butte. The city is right up there. And it will still be there after we've had our first warm meal in a week. The sooner you bow to my demands, the sooner we'll be on our way. Dante sighed through his nose. They backtracked to a bakery. The interior was warm from ovens, which were vented out the slopes above, explaining the smoke they'd seen earlier. In some ways, the soft flatbread and flaky pastries reminded him of Tetonin, another wheat-rich farmland. In Colin, however, the meat was slow-roasted on long skewers, the air thick with cloves, bay leaf, gannon seed, and green pepper. Rather than beef and poultry, the meat appeared to be mostly goat, lamb, and venison. It pains me to admit it, Dante said, dealing with the last of something flaky and stuffed with crushed raspberries, but this was an excellent idea. They paid in malish coin, which the proprietor stared at. In the end, though, the man scooped it up, proving once again that money always trumped politics. Back outside, the sunlight was blinding. Once they trusted themselves to move, they carried on up the switchbacks, which seemed to comprise a town of their own, complete with residences dug into the cliffs. The levels below them spread out in slanted terraces. A shout drifted from the top of the path. A second rang out a moment later. Dante frowned and continued up. The shouting grew louder, angry and chaotic. At the top of the switchback, people surged into the path, running downhill in a rooster tail of dust. Someone slipped, skidding down the slope and landing heavily on the trail below. A cloud of dust followed them down. Oh, hell, Blay said. He reached for his sword and charged up the trail. Chapter 6 Dante swore, taking off after Blaze. Naren followed, an alarmed look on his typically stoic face. 
They were already two-thirds of the way up the road and soon ran into the first of those who'd fled from the top. What's going on? Dante called out. Why are you running? Several people brushed past him. One woman glared at him, jaw held tight. Your masters are killing our people. My masters? She turned to the southwest and spat over the cliff's edge. The malish. I'm not malish. I mean, I was, but now I'm... Blaze grabbed the shoulder of his shirt. There will be plenty of time to renounce your bloodlines later. Now come on. They hurried upward, dodging the citizens streaming down from the plateau until the trail ejected them into an open square on the top of the butte. Ahead, buildings stood thickly, towers rising above them. A welcome wind blew steadily from the southwest. Ahead, shouts turned to screams. Dante and Naren ran after Blaze. After passing through a few blocks of low brick buildings, they skidded to a stop at the edge of a plaza. There, a contingent of dirty malish soldiers in dusty blue finery faced off against a crowd three times their size. Both groups hurled insults back and forth. Dante's eyes roved for the leader of the mob. Before he could identify one, a stone flew from the citizens and cracked into the soldier's forehead. A malish sergeant brandished his sword. Charge! The bluecoats rumbled forward, blades in hand. Blaze unleashed a string of profanity salty enough to make Naren blink. Let me guess, Dante said. You want to give them a hand? Like hell, Blaze sputtered. The last time we got involved in a fight like this, it dragged us into the middle of a war. The citizens broke, rushing towards the buildings behind them. Some flung stones back at the Malish. A man tripped into the rectangular sets, paving the square. Two soldiers fell upon him, kicking and bludgeoning him. Anyway, Blaze went on, I figured you'd want to help. Me? Why? Because you hate the Malish. I don't hate the Malish. I hate their leaders who insist on perpetuating a centuries-long holy war they're completely wrong about. Which is what those fine fellows in blue are doing right now. Even so, Dante said, we can't get involved. That would compromise our ability to track down the shells. In Gladick's hands, those are way more dangerous than any soldiers. As a contingent of citizens entered an alley, they turned to hold their ground, armed with clubs and knives. The eight soldiers pursuing them were outnumbered two to one, but they didn't so much as slow down, ripping into the coloners with practiced discipline. Screams rang out, bodies dropped on both sides. The citizens wavered, then scattered down the alley. Forty feet from that brief battle, a second skirmish ended just as quickly. The Malish troops ran after the retreating coloners. In moments, the plaza was empty of everyone but the wounded. Dante drew his knife and cut the back of his arm. Netha winged to him from all sides. Let's get to work. Didn't we just agree to stay out of this? The fighting, yes. But these people are hurt. They need help. Dante jogged forward. This can only help us. If we hope to find anything here, it won't hurt to make friends with the locals. Blaze and Naren followed him across the black sets. Five bodies lay at the entrance of the alley, including one soldier. One of the four citizens looked thoroughly dead, so Dante headed for the next worst, a man with a deep slash down his chest and gut.
he clutched his wounds, gasping rapidly. Dante kneeled beside him, shadows swirling in erratic loops. The man's eyes rolled in pain. What are you doing? Dante positioned his hands over the man's body. You have nothing to worry about. In a moment, you'll be better than ever. He bolted upright, swiping a bloody hand at Dante. Get away from me! Do you see that red substance all over your hand? Dante said. That's blood. It happens to be yours. In another minute, more of it will have moved outside your body than remains in it. Don't you dare! The man collapsed on his side, waving feebly. I... I forbid you! Muttering something unpleasant, Dante poured Nether from his hands. It slipped into the man's wounds like a dark knife. More blood welled forth, but the flow thinned to a trickle, then stopped altogether. The man's gasps slowed. He touched his stomach, gently at first, then roughly. He swabbed the blood away from his shirt, revealing light brown skin unmarred by any wound. He swung up his head and glared at Dante. What have you done to me? I saved your life, Dante said. No need to thank me. Don't tell me they have something against Nether, Blay said. I thought they were all filthy heretics. The man got to his feet, brushing grit from his pants. During their brief encounter, a small crowd had emerged from the nearby buildings and alley. The man pointed accusingly at Dante. Did you see that? He healed me. Three witnesses nodded. A woman stepped forward. I seen him. Marin moved beside Dante. Am I missing something? That man was about to breathe his last. Tell them that, Dante said. He put himself in the aggrieved man's face. What's the matter with you? If not for me, you'd be dead right now. That's right. The man smiled hotly. And you robbed me of my chance. Good news, Blaze gestured south. If you're that intent on dying, there's a very serviceable cliff right over there. I was supposed to die at the hands of the Malish. To stay in their hands with blood they'd carry with them until the day they died and faced their judgment by the gods. To do such is a colonist's highest calling. Really? I think you guys should aim a little higher. You stole my honor. The man moved before Dante. He stooped, picked up a pinch of dust, and flicked it at Dante's feet. The crowd murmured, I challenge you to a duel. This provoked a flurry of chatter from the observers. Dante glanced around, searching for any sign of a joke. Let me get this straight. I prevented you from suffering a gruesome death, and now you want to fight me. I want to kill you! But the duel's legal, and while it won't restore my honor, it will serve it. The challenger motioned to Blaze and Naren. Are these men your arms? My arms? One who fights in your place, Malisha? Dante turned to Blaze. Would you say you're my arm? Blaze rubbed his chin. More like your brain. But if there's really going to be a duel, I suppose I can mop the floor you've soiled. The man smirked. 
Excellent. I'll send for my arm. In the meantime, we'll remain here. He approached a young man, speaking quickly. The young man nodded and dashed off into the streets. Pardon my ignorance. Naren leaned toward Dante. But we need access to Colin's resources. How is fighting a duel with a local going to carry any favor with these people? Dante held up his palms. What's the alternative? Refuse and be scorned by everyone? Blaze is the best swordsman I've ever seen. We'll be done with this in a few minutes. With any luck, Blaze's prowess and honor will so impress someone they'll jump at the chance to help us find what we're here for. That seems optimistic. Dante had no response ready, mostly because he was afraid Naren was right. The offended man was busy speaking to several people who were referring to him as Ked. Other coloners were attending to those who'd been wounded in the skirmishes with the Malish soldiers, but their ministrations largely took the form of holding the injured party's hand while murmuring to them about how their deaths would blacken the souls of the Malish until the gods would have no choice but to smite Bressel into a smoking crater. Dante watched with mounting frustration and irritation. He could serve every one of the wounded within minutes. To not do so felt not only cruel, but inefficient. He'd long admired the colonists from afar for their ongoing resistance to Malish rule, but perhaps they resisted not out of principle, but from madness. The crowd stirred. A woman was entering the plaza, trailed by the young man Ked had sent out, and a handful of other citizens. A golden ribbon winked from her right elbow. She was the woman they'd seen on the switchbacks breaking up the fight between the two mule drivers. She walked with the rolling gait of someone who had a lot of muscles to move. Her blonde hair was pinned tightly at the back of her head. Cord! Ked called. He jogged over to greet her, an act which, Dante noted, he would have been completely incapable of performing if he'd still been suffering from the giant gash down his torso. I hear you have a fight for me. She sounded happy at the prospect, her voice booming out like a street preacher's promises of salvation. Where's my match? Ked nodded in Dante's direction. That's them over there. Cord strolled up to them. Her eyes traveled to Dante's black hair. You must be the one who robbed Ked of his death right. She turned to Blaze. Which makes you his arm? Begrudgingly, Blaze said. Would you begrudge the chance to fight for honor? She looked him up and down. How can such a man be an arm? Where's the rest of you? I'm like a fine whiskey. It doesn't take much to knock you on your ass. Cord tipped back her head and laughed. An older man made his way through the crowd, which now numbered at least sixty, and stopped before Dante. You have been challenged to duel. Do you understand the rules of the contest? We just got here, Dante said. I don't understand why I've been challenged. The man's face was lined with years of sun. His cheeks sprouted thick grey mutton chops. You have offended Ked Kinsey, a respected Arthur of Colin. He has challenged, and you have accepted. Since you chose to use arms, Ked's arm gets to choose which weapon shall be used. Ked smirked at this. 
Cord flexed her hands. We'll use the only weapon worth using, the wheel. The crowd broke into applause. The old man turned to a man with a red ribbon knotted around his elbow. Two wheels, right away. The other man nodded and ran out of the square. Blaze raised his eyebrows at Dante, but Dante could only shrug. Across from them, Cord began to twist at the waist, swinging her arms back and forth. Once she wrapped up that exercise, she lifted her hands high above her head, bent down to touch her toes, then ran her hands up to her kidneys before stretching backward. Watching her, Blaze's amused expression grew thoughtful. The runner came back with two seven-foot wooden poles. One end of each pole was carved into a point. The other end was weighted with a leather bag the size of a fist. This appeared to be stuffed with something small and lumpy, such as pebbles. The runner handed the poles to the old man, who passed one to Cord and one to Blaze. Blaze hefted the pole. This is the wheel? That's right, the old man said. I hate to be the one to tell you this, but your wheels are missing their rims, and all the rest of them. If anything, these appear to be spokes. Cord laughed. You're lucky these are dueling wheels. The real ones are metal on both ends. The whiskered man ushered the crowds back, clearing a circle. He came back to Blaze and Cord. This isn't a fight to submission, nor to death, merely to first fall. Blaze tamped the sack end of the pole against the plaza stones. If you get knocked down, you lose. Cord scoffed. What kind of an arm doesn't know how to duel? Blaze cocked his head. Enjoying this, are you? We're standing in the sun. We're about to fight. What's not to enjoy? He hefted his weapon. If you're in such a good mood, mind giving me a minute to get the feel of this thing? Practice all you like, if you think it will help. Blaze gave her a look, motioned Dante and Naren back, then took a few exploratory jabs and swipes with the wheel. Dante had almost no first-hand experience with a spear, but he could tell by watching that the wheel, due to its weighted end, handled significantly different. After a minute of practice, Blaze brought his feet together, resting the ball of the wheel on the ground. Thanks for your indulgence, Cord. Now are you ready for your drubbing? She frowned at him. Are you sure you wouldn't like a lesson first? Cord! Ked shouted. Will you get on with it? The woman twisted her head his way. What joy is there in defeating an infant? This isn't about joy. It's about honor. Honor is joy. I may not have a coroner's experience, Blaze said, but I've had a weapon in my hand since I had the strength to swing one. Let's do this. She grinned at him. Think your spirit will make up for your lack of skill? They faced off, twelve feet away from each other, out of range of the wheel's reach. The crowd fell back several steps. The old man overseeing the duel lifted his right hand. In the witness of all, let the purity of combat guide us to the truth. He dropped his arm and backpedaled away. Cord stalked forward, smiling broadly, her wheel held in her hands like a staff. Blaze edged to his right, holding his weapon closer to the ball, spear-like. 
Cord flicked the pointed end at Blaze's legs. He deflected it with a deft gesture. She repeated the probe. Blaze intercepted, letting the shaft of his weapon guide her spear point past him and jabbed toward her midsection. She swept her wheel sideways into Blaze's, knocking the point of his weapon wide. She shifted her grip towards the pointed end and whipped her wheel into a spin so fast it whistled through the air. The weighted end slammed into the back of Blazer's ankles. His feet swapped places with his head. He tucked his chin to his chest, twisting his body to land on his right shoulder. As he fell, he slapped his right hand against the sets, landing in a pile. His wheel clattered away. The audience lifted their arms and cheered. Cord planted the ball of her wheel on the stones, leaning on the pole. She frowned down at Blaze. Why, you're not any good at this at all. Blaze untangled himself and sat up, rubbing a skinned elbow. Maybe you're too good at it. Ever thought about that? Naren nudged Dante's ribs. What now? I apologize or something, and we get on our way, Dante said and I never try to help anyone ever again. Blaze stood and dusted himself off with a series of claps. He turned to Ked and bowed low. The gods have spoken. You are right. My friend's a prick. The old man moved to the middle of the ad hoc ring. God, arm of Ked, has won the duel to first fall. Ked, what boon do you choose from the defeated? Ked cleared his throat, chin held high. I choose service. Service it is. As a duel of first to fall, the offender will serve the offended for a time of three months. Hold on, Dante said. Boon? Service? Of course, Ked said. What did you think the duel was about? Honor? Ked laughed. Do you really think that knocking your arm on his ass makes up for what you took from me? A duel judges guilt. Now that you've been found guilty, it's time to decide your sentence. You're a sorcerer, yes? Three months spent killing the malice for me should start to make up for stealing my death right. You're lucky I bothered to play along with this farce until now. Walk away with your honor intact. You're in Colin now, bound by Colin's laws. You- Shadows rushed from the pavement, whirling around Dante's hands. I am bound by nothing. Sirs and madams, Blaze stepped forward, barring an arm across Dante's chest. I request a minute to confer with my colleague. The old man's whiskers twitched. This isn't how things are done. Highly unusual, I'm sure, but unless you'd prefer to see everyone in this square turned inside out, you need to give me a damn minute with my friend. The man swallowed and stepped back, speaking softly to Ked. Blaze pulled Dante aside, nodding Naren over as well. Threats of violence are wonderful things, but if you want to get anything done in this city after this, we need to find a way to settle our differences without offending their basic sense of justice. Dante gritted his teeth. I'm not going to be this idiot's servant, especially not if he means to use me as a weapon against Malin. That's the last thing we need. This is so stupid. Do you want to solve the problem, or do you want to keep whining about it? I don't see why those have to be mutually exclusive. We have two options. 
Blaze began to pace. First, you can deny their claims and get us kicked out of Colin. That won't stop us from coming back, but it will make it much harder to follow the Shardin, and it will probably make it impossible to get answers about Gladick's transformation. So my alternative is to knuckle under to their ridiculous demands in hope it'll make it easier for us to find answers we don't know are here. Naren tapped the tip of his nose. If you're the only one who has to serve, Blaze and I could still move freely. As soon as we found the Shardin, you could leave with us. That's not the worst idea on Earth, Dante said, relaxing marginally, though I was really hoping to get some research done. Blaze shrugged. If they think it's going to help you fight the Malish for them, maybe they'll let you do all the research you want. The only other idea I've got is to hunker down in the woods until the Norrin get my loon to Narashtivik. Dante went still. Unless... What happens if I refuse to serve? Oh, I'm sure they'll just let you walk away. Either that, or they'll attempt to lock you up in chains, at which point you'll attempt to irrigate their fields with their blood. Dante raised his voice to Ked and the old man. What happens if I tell you no? You can't do that, Ked said. The old man folded his arms. If service is refused, a second duel must be fought, but this time to the death. Cord clapped her hands together. Excellent. I refuse my service, Dante said, and accept this new duel. A frisson sparked through the crowd, most of which had remained present while Dante was conferring with Blaze. The old man looked to Ked, who nodded. A second duel it is, the old man said. Will you be using arms? Damn right, Ked said. Dante held back a smile. What happens if I decline my arm? Then you must fight for yourself, the old man said. And who chooses weapons? Why, you would. Dante nodded. Then I decline my arm. Very well. Choice of weapons. The nether. What? Ked squawked. That's cheating. They're your rules, asshole. Dante unbuckled his sword and cast it aside. But since I'm such a good sport, I'll offer you an alternative. We drop the whole thing and walk away. Several of the onlookers chuckled. A handful jeered Ked. His face reddened. Maybe. The old man shook his head. You've already accepted. By law, you must proceed. Don't worry, Ked, Cord said. This is my duty. It must be done. Ked flung his hands wide. But you don't know how to use the nether. I know that, you fool. She tossed aside her wheel. I'll just do as the older ones did and use my bare hands. Ked looked as though he might vomit. Cord rolled her neck, cracking it, and did some toe touches. Uh, Blay said, are you really planning to kill her? It'll be fine, Dante said. The spectators cleared a wide ring around them. The whiskered old man moved to its middle. This mortal duel will settle all matters between the two opponents, understood? He waited for Dante, Ked, and Cord to nod. Then fight with the grace of the gods. He scampered back. 
Cord bounced on the balls of her feet and sprinted toward Dante. Dante called the shadows to him. Before he had a plan, she was leaping for him. He dived to the side, landing on the set, and doing his best to remember Blazer's lessons about how to fall without hurting yourself. He got to his feet and ran back, palms and knees stinging. Running isn't fighting, Cord yelled. She popped to her feet and charged again. Dante plunged his mind into the stones before her. He took hold of the nether within a rectangular swath and softened the material to mud. Cord plunged into it, falling to the knees. As she bellowed oaths of surprise, Dante hardened the mud back into rock, catching her fast. Hey! She grabbed her right thigh and pulled. Her leg didn't budge. What low-down treachery is this? I win, Dante said. I've killed you. Cord formed an O with her mouth, then began to laugh. No, you haven't. Could a dead woman do this? She produced two fists and extended the middle finger of both. You can't get out, can you? So you have two choices. One, we call it a draw, I let you free, and we all go our separate ways. Or two, I leave you here until the sun kills you, and I win. What's the matter? Don't have the heart for killing? Trust me, he's got the heart, Blay said, along with the liver, kidneys, lungs, spleen, and gonads. If you can believe it, this is him being merciful. Massy, Cord spat in the dust. She strained her legs again, then relaxed, considering Dante. You're malish, aren't you? By birth, Dante said. I haven't lived there in years. Then I choose to stay right here. I'll have been killed by one of the malish, the highest honor I can receive. You can't be serious. She wrinkled her brow. This is what I've always wanted. It's the honorable thing to do. Dante sighed heavily. Fine, then. Glad to have given you your fondest dream. He turned and walked away. Wait, Ked called. He jogged behind Dante, slowing to a halt, his face anguished. You can't just leave her? Really? Because everyone here seems intent on forcing me to do just that. Let her go, please. Dante crossed his arms. And it's settled between us. Ked bobbed his head. I concede. Victory's yours. No, it's not. Cord grabbed her thigh, pulling it mightily. Come a little closer and I'll show you how much life I've got left in me. The old man tugged the whiskers on one cheek. It's conceded, Cord. Duel's over. Hearing the official pronouncement, Dante returned to the nether in the stone, holding Cord fast. To give them a bit of a show, he snapped his fingers, shifting the rock into mud. She fell forward with a grimy splash. Gesturing to Naran and Blaze, Dante walked toward the nearest road out of the square. He had no idea where he was going, but he knew quite firmly that he wanted to get away. Black stone buildings looked down on him. We got out of that without killing anyone, Blaze said. A modern miracle. Dante shook his head. I've never had someone work so hard to make me kill them. Except Cassander. Well, yeah, but he deserved it. Despite the relatively happy turn of events, 
I think you should treat this as a lesson. When we're traveling someplace unfamiliar, it's probably not a great idea to dive into a situation knowing nothing of local culture. Ked was dying, Dante said. How was I to know he'd take getting healed as a mortal insult? If our travels have taught me nothing else, it's that the entire world is insane. There's probably somewhere out there where they'd suck you in the jaw for handing them a sack of pure gold. Ah, Aaron said. So you've been to the Belbring Islands. Dante swerved around a puddle of wet blood whose owner had probably been all too happy to shed it. Play it careful from here on out. We're here to capture the shells and find out what we can about Gladick. We can't afford to get dragged into local conflicts. By universal agreement, their first order of business was to find an inn where they could wash off the grime of travel and catch up on local gossip. Though the city's blocky, flat-roofed, brick- and basalt structures looked unfriendly, they soon located a rollicking pub surrounded by stables with lodging upstairs. After a quick bath each, the three of them returned downstairs to scare up information. At the moment, most of the building's activity was concentrated under the roofed-in patios, leaving the common room relatively quiet. They ordered a meal of what turned out to be noodles jumbled with bits of goat and asparagus. After, Dante flagged down their server. I'm looking for your best library, he said, public or private. The man stacked their sturdy earthenware plates. What is it you're looking for? History and theology. I'm not much for reading, but I'll ask Bree. She's got a nose for books. The man headed off with their plates. He came back five minutes later. Bree says there's no doubt about it. You'll want the reborn shrine. He provided directions. Dante tipped him from their dwindling supply of coins. The man trundled off. Dante turned to the others. No sense wasting time. I'm going to the shrine. We'll look into the Chardon, Naren said. What if we need to find you? No worries on that front, Blaze laughed. He's got new lore to track down. He'll be in that shrine so long they'll have to start charging him rent. Blaze and Naren went to the bar to order drinks and circulate through the patios. Dante headed outside. It was malevolently hot, but the elevated butte had a good breeze going for it, blowing steadily out of the southwest. It was probably brutally windy in the fall and winter, which explained why most of the windows were on the northeast sides of the buildings. In the streets, the people were your average spectrum of city folk, with a large number of farmers mixed in. Earthers, they seemed to be called, as well as soldierly-looking people with ribbons tied around their elbows. Dante continued to draw stares, but most weren't overtly hostile. He made the final turn to the shrine and stopped in his tracks. Ahead, open ground surrounded a complex of stone structures. Some were partially or wholly demolished, but there was no mistaking their religious nature. As to what religion, Dante had no idea. In Malin, the churches tended to be baroque, full of statues and buttresses that seemed to be less about buttressing and more about impressing. In Narashtivik, the cathedrals were angular and severe, though no less tall. By contrast, the central building of the reborn shrine was bell-shaped, its peak eighty feet high.
rather than being composed of a single type of stone, basalt would have been the natural choice given its prevalence in the basin, it was patchwork, a harlequin blend of basalt, sandstone, limestone, and at least three different types of granite. Some pieces glittered in the sun, while others drank in all light. Even the dome was split between grey, yellow, and a white rock shot through with bright flecks of silver. As Dante stood gawking, a robed figure emerged from a small domed tower beside the main structure and strolled over to him. The monk was young, his blond hair cut so close to his scalp it glowed like a fuzzy halo. Are you a visitor to the reborn shrine? As the monk spoke, his gaze flicked over Dante's black hair and grey eyes, but his voice was timid, clean of any hostility. I am, Dante said. I came to use your library, but this building, it's stunning. The monk turned, glancing at the main temple, as if just noticing it. Oh, yes, it's the pride of the city. I've never seen anything like it. Why go to the trouble of using so many different kinds of stone? Ah, the different stones. You see, in one sense, what you're looking at isn't a single shrine, but many. Each time the Malish invade, they destroy the shrine. And each time we rebuild it, we use a different kind of stone. This way, Malan's crimes are visible at a glance. After the twelfth cycle of destruction and rebirth... Aron himself will step forth from the doors of the Reborn Shrine to lay waste to Malon. The young monk looked at him from the corners of his eyes, blushing. Or oh, so it said. So it's been destroyed ten times already. Did you count the varieties of stone? Dante pointed to the shrine's entrance. Above the doors, a stylized sailing vessel was carved into a chunk of pure white stone. That's Fanon, he said, the earthly waters, eleventh sign of the Selicet. I assume the count started with Aron. A nice deduction. Ten times this place has been torn down, and ten times it's been rebuilt. The most recent reconstruction followed the third scar. It hasn't been harmed in the last century. The monk allowed himself a tentative smile. Much longer than average. Maybe the Malish are afraid to fulfill the prophecy. He beckoned toward the main building. Would you like to see the inside? Very much so. Dante fell in beside him. The monk cleared his throat. Ah, you said you were here for the library. That's right. I'm a monk myself, devotee of Carvajal. I've traveled from Galador in search of certain knowledge. Have you ever heard of something called a star-eater? The monk shook his head. Dante laughed modestly. I know so little about my subject that I'm not sure if I'm even looking for information on star-eaters. More broadly, I'm looking for knowledge about demons, or perhaps people who can become demons. The monk reached the massive doors and opened one with nary a squeak. That sounds horrifying. Dante loaded his voice with portent. It's thought that these demons are heavily connected to the Nether, possibly to Aron himself.
The other man closed the door. They stood in an airy entry. The floor was paved with black marble and green granite. I'm sorry, the monk said, but we won't have anything about Aron here. Nether, either. Dante blinked. I was told you have the best theological library in the Colin Basin. And, with all modesty, that is true. I thought Colin has held to the old ways, that you believed, as we do in Galador, that Aron remains one of the twelve gods of the Selesid. Ah, oh, the young man said, but the Malish don't, and they like to hang those who do. Owning or writing a blasphemous book is written proof of your own heresy. You see? Whereas it isn't so easy to convict someone who confines their beliefs to the space between their ears. Just so. Dante flapped his shirt to dry the sweat he'd accumulated during his walk. The room smelled of stone, dust, and charred gannon seed. In that case, what can you tell me of what I wish to know? I know nothing about any of that. What about your brothers and sisters? I can ask, starting tomorrow morning. Would you like to return then? No, Dante said slowly. He wasn't sure why he wanted to stay. Stubbornness played a role, certainly, but it probably had more to do with the fact that he was within spitting distance of a library he'd never seen before. If I could, I'd like to see your collection. The young man nodded and led him deep through the building, stopping, at last, inside a yawning round room sixty feet high. The ceiling was painted with the twelve constellations of the cellar set. Beneath it, a ring of glass windows shed light on five floors of bookshelves. The air smelled like leather and parchment, slightly musty, but in better care than most libraries he'd been to. This is a hell of a place! Dante's voice echoed more loudly than he'd intended. The young monk suppressed a smile. We believe truth must always be available to those ready to receive it. Our rules are simple. No damage may be done to the books, and none may leave this room. Otherwise, I'll help you find anything you want. My name is Hod. Hod had claimed to know nothing about star-eaters or nether-bearing demons, so Dante asked for any books of local lore on monsters, the more outlandish the better, but restricted to the more respectable authors. Hod nodded and disappeared into the stacks. He returned shortly with a dozen books. All who lived had a vice of some kind. Some men became slaves to whiskey or wine. Others became bound to plants that blunted the sharp edges of the world. For Dante, his vice was knowledge. As he paged through the volumes, hunting for any hint of man-shaped monsters with starry eyes, he often found himself caught up in stories and history as hooked as firmly as a halibut in the Bay of Narashtavik. He tore himself away as best he could, skimming along. He'd brought his own writing materials, but found himself with precious few notes to make. The sun sank behind the western hills. A second monk passed through the stacks, lighting lanterns as she went. Most of the other patrons handed her a coin or two as she went by. Dante was tempted to act ignorant, 
He didn't like to spend money, even when he wasn't on the brink of utter poverty, but, wishing to stay in their good graces, gave her one of his few pennies. After hours of work, he still hadn't found anything close to what he'd seen in Gladick's temple. Hod brought him more books, then departed for dinner and evening devotions. Dante read on. The ten o'clock bells rang. Squeezing his temples, Dante sat back. Most of the stories he'd been reading felt more like fiction than fact. Then again, he was specifically looking for the more far-out tales. Maybe he was approaching this from the wrong angle. What if he focused on books purporting to be practical histories? Any mentions of star-eater-like beings in those would carry far more weight. The chief problem with that idea was that such mentions would be far fewer, but at the very worst it would teach him real history. If he built a foundation of knowledge, he might be better equipped to home in on the areas of history most likely to provide him with the answers he sought. With Hod warning him the library would close at midnight, Dante asked for a new batch of books focusing on the more tumultuous periods of Colin's history, especially accounts of its most renowned sorcerers. The young monk obliged. Dante dived in, flipping pages as quickly as he could glean the gist of their contents. An hour later, a stack of discarded books stood at the side of his desk. But a venerable tome opened before him. An account of the First War of Malin and Colin, by the historian Flinders. Dante tried to skim through it, but soon found himself absorbed in its records. According to the author, nine hundred years ago, a much smaller Malin had been good friends with an equally modest Colin Basin. Colin had traded wheat from its fields, wine from its vineyards, and spices from the lands to its southeast, in exchange for malish lumber, iron, dyes, and coffee brought in from its port. The two regions had been close enough that marriages were common between their merchants and aristocracy. To hear Flinders tell it, it felt inevitable that, in time, the two regions would become one. For some time, Colin had been feuding with the then-kingdom of Almers, on the coast to their south. To put an end to the conflict, Colin secured a trade arrangement with Almers, sending grain and malish steel in exchange for Almerian pottery and dye. That spring, the rains never came. As the wheat struggled to grow, blight struck the fields, worse than any locusts. In desperation, Colony's sorcerers turned to the nether to regrow their dying fields. But the shadows only made the blight worse. Entire prairies turned brown, dust swirling through the sky. Within the year, the entire basin was on the brink of starvation. As Malish goods continued to flow into Colin, Colony's debt rose. They couldn't return the goods to Malin without breaking their pact with Almers, which would almost certainly renew the war. Instead, they continued to trade with Almers, banking on the goodwill of their Malish friends. It might have worked, but Colin's merchants weren't the only ones in dire straits. Starving commoners trampled through Malish lands, plundering the fields, robbing honest farmers. Colin's nobility tried to recall their outlaws, but it was no use. By year's end, Malin had declared war. Since then, 
the conflict had never truly ended. Dante was in the middle of his notes on the subject when Hod came through to inform him the shrine was closing for the night. With permission, Dante marked his spot in the account and stood, limb stiff. Thank you, he said. What time does the library reopen? Seven in the morning, Hod said. You are, are very enthused to learn. The streets were much quieter on the way back. The temperature had dropped twenty degrees, and the smell of dew hung on the air. Men and women argued behind shutters that were closed, despite the chance for them to cool down their houses. A sense of uneasiness lay on the city. Worry about the Malish, or Dante's own anxiety over being in a strange city reflecting back on him. He found his way to the inn. Blaze and Naren were downstairs chatting with the table of weather-beaten farmers. Blaze gave Dante a small nod and shifted his eyes upstairs. Dante nodded back and headed up to their room. Blaze and Naren showed up after an interval of time sufficient to have consumed another beer. Well, Blaze said, what did you find? Sitting on his straw mattress, Dante leaned his elbows on his knees. Nothing. What do you mean, nothing? You've been gone for eight hours. Not finding something takes much longer than finding it. I went to the library of the Reborn Shrine, but they claimed they don't have any books concerning Aron or the Nether. Blaze cocked a brow. Claimed? I think they suspect I'm a spy from the Malish priesthood, here to ferret out heresy. It's possible they think that, Naren said. Or it may be that after hundreds of years of malish attacks, they've learned better than to make any of their beliefs available to the public. Dante sighed. Either way, I'm going back tomorrow. If they've spent this long hiding their beliefs from the malish, they may have found ways to express secrets in plain sight. Blaze unlaced his boots, tossing them aside. Well, you have fun with that. Narend and I will continue to drink beer and chat up the locals. Grueling work, but we're dedicated to the cause. Actually, I did get one piece of info. Many years ago, it seems that the coloners were harvesting their fields. Blaze stared blankly. As opposed to what? Declaring their vegetables had worked so hard to grow that it would be cruel to eat them? Not harvesting. Harvesting, growing them with the nether like they do in the plagued islands. And? And, Dante said slowly, it's very odd to find that same long-lost skill here. During roughly the same period as the first harvesters arrived in the islands. They could be related. Even if it isn't, it hints at the idea that a thousand years ago... The world was far more sophisticated than we think. The more we travel, the more we hear the echoes of that time. Fascinating, Blaze yawned. We didn't make much more progress than you did, but the smart money is that if the Chardon are still here, they'll be found in the company of Malish soldiers. We'll start looking around for troops tomorrow. Sounds smart. Just be careful. Yes, that's the standard operating procedure when dealing with companies of soldiers. Speaking of, that riot in the plaza today, 
As far as we can gather, it wasn't caused by anything. Except by definition. Naren went to the window to eye the streets. What he means is there was no provocation. Nothing, at least, beyond the presence of Malish soldiers and Colin. Right, Blay said. It feels like this whole place could catch fire at any moment. For once, let's not try to be the ones who light the spark, eh? Dante collapsed into bed. It had been an extremely long day. But he forced himself to get up as early in the morning as he could bear. He trudged back to the shrine. Hod wasn't in, but another monk brought around the books Dante requested. This time, rather than hewing to a single copy of study, he cast a wide net, hoping to dredge up something unexpected from the depths. By noon, he'd accumulated nothing more than an empty stomach. Outside the shrine, the monks had a stall where they sold the excess food they made each day. Dante made use of it, eating dumplings stuffed with spiced potatoes and soft, sweet cheese. They were markedly similar to the ones people ate in Narashtavik. Then again, everywhere you went had a dumpling of some kind. He got back to work in the library. There were times when his research was so numbing, he flipped through entire works with no recollection of their subject. With the afternoon rambling on as endlessly as the stacks themselves, footsteps whispered down the strip of carpet running along the shelves of books. As they neared, Dante glanced up. Blaze stood over him, smiling widely. Uncovering any ancient secrets of existence in the universe? Dante gestured helplessly at the tome in front of him. I thought this one would have references to the Star Eaters, but it's as useless as they all are. Good! Blaze flipped the book shut with a musty whomp. Because we found the Chardon. Let's move. Chapter 7 For most people in The Order... Extraction was the worst part of any job. You'd gotten in safe, you had the loot in hand, but one wrong turn into the servants' quarters, or a stumble in the dark against a table, and it could all come crashing down on your head. For Rasha, it was the easiest thing in the world. She belted on the sword, blew out her candle, and slipped into the shadows. The room had been almost pure dark, lit only by the moonlight that managed to slip through the curtains. The Shadowlands were far brighter. The room was utterly coated in nether, all of which glowed silver. Rosha used to find it spooky. Now it was a comfort. She walked through the wall into the hallway. Empty. So was the stairwell. She descended, forcing herself not to run. Near the bottom, a candle wavered. A servant was on his way up, dressed in a grey smock with the white tree on the chest. Rasha pressed herself to the wall and let him pass. On the ground floor, the same voices that had been arguing on her way in were still at it. She strode to the basement door, which was closed, and passed through the stone wall around it. The basement was silent. Down in the dungeons, a man was moaning from his cell, but she didn't break stride. She stopped halfway down the hall. Which cell had she come in through? 
should have marked it somehow. The dungeons weren't on her map. Their inside man hadn't expected her to be down here. She was already growing short on time. Staying in the shadows was like standing on a roof and holding onto a rope slung over the side of the building. The longer you were there, the more people kept climbing up it. At first it was easy to hang on tight, but the more climbers who piled onto the rope, the more you started to strain. She had a few minutes left before she was going to have to let go, but her shoes were definitely starting to skid toward the lip of the roof. She ducked into her cell, then tried its far wall, casting around for the tunnel back to the body locker. Nothing but solid rock. She returned to the passage and tried the next cell down. A man slept inside. She backed out and tried the next. This time she popped through the wall and into a smooth, empty tunnel. About time, she muttered. Nerves fluttering, she returned to the disappointment that was reality. The tunnel was as black as a whale's gut. Knowing the floor was empty, she walked forward blind, holding her stolen sword out before her. The smell of the dead grew stronger. Soon the tunnel spilled her into the workings of the body locker. She belted her sword. A lantern glowed to her left. The rustle of a turning page sounded from the entry. Rochor snuck up to the edge of the foyer, then popped into the shadows. She sprinted across the entry and into the night. Halfway to the sheltering of a towering elm, she lost her hold on the rope holding her to the nether. She was expelled with a jolt, her skin prickling painfully. She'd spent too long inside. But... Her work wasn't quite done. By rule, anything you grabbed while on a job for the Order became the Order's property. If you picked up something beyond what the Order had been expecting, a second set of jewellery, say, you had the right to purchase it from them at fair price. The sword, though. The sword was priceless. Even if they assigned a price to it, it had cost more than she could steal in a thousand years. She strode across the field and into the city. She was due at the Marigan within a few hours, but she had to get home first. She had to do it with no shadow juice left and thirty pounds of the most valuable artifacts in the city on her back. Good thing she was the best. The outer neighborhoods were quiet. A few people on stoops enjoying the cool summer evening. This was a poor part of town, but a good one. Fishermen, sailors, honest workers. Her neighborhood and those around it were rats' nests. If she circled around to come in through the east, though, she'd only have to travel through a few blocks of deep trouble before she got home. She cut to the southeast, walking briskly. After a detour around the heavily patrolled Ayres district, she travelled through four miles of sleepy row houses. She drew a few calls from drunken men, but it was the dead-wrong time for her to engage. None of them followed her further than a half-block. In time, she came to the border of her neighbourhood, affectionately referred to as The Dumps. She entered on Hallivan Street, cutting quickly to Logadon a stretch of dirt road fronted on both sides by longshoremen. 
rough customers, but generally not the type to be trawling for trouble. Someone whistled behind her, the noise shrieking through the night. Roshaw neither slowed nor sped up. The whistle repeated. Footsteps, at least three pairs. Hey, girl! Someone laughed raspily. Hey, girl! No point trying to threaten them. Men like that never took you seriously. Not even when the moon gleamed upon the blade of your knife. Most times she'd have run. She knew the dumps as well as anyone. But burdened by her pack, there was no way she could outpace them. And there was no way she was dumping it either. A rock clattered behind her. She spun, walking backwards. Three silhouettes followed her. Walk off, she said. You don't want this. Come closer and let's find out, the raspy man called. You keep following me and people will die. Oh, only if you try to get cute. Rasha swore silently. She couldn't run, couldn't escape through the shadows. They were done with her for the day. They were too close for her to hide. She was blocks away from her building. Even if she made it there before they caught up to... A man emerged from the alley ahead of her. He was nearly as tall as a Norrin. A short blade hung from his side. He gestured down the street. These men bothering you? For a moment, relief shot through her veins. Throw him to the attackers and make a break for it. Then she saw the smile on his face. Get the fuck out of my way, she said. The footsteps advanced behind her. The new man gaped. Ugly language from such a pretty girl. I'm only here to help. She drew the sword. It felt as light as the bamboo chairs Gates had imported from Galador. Still smiling, the man drew his blade. It was much shorter than hers, the type of dagger favoured by those who needed a weapon that was serious yet concealable. But he didn't seem concerned in the slightest about her reach advantage. Probably because the other three men were now just twenty feet away. Rosha moved to the face of the nearest row house. The four men fanned out across from her. Everyone except the raspy-voiced man now bore a dagger. The tall man tapped against his thigh. This doesn't have to hurt, the raspy man said. In the gloom of the street, she could make out nothing more than his eyes and teeth. Put down that silly sword and turn around. She pointed at them with her sword. You four are friends? He laughed throatily. The best of them, and friends share. If you're that close, then it's time to tell each other goodbye. His cheek twitched. He drew his blade and stepped toward her. Bad news. It does have to hurt. She shrugged off her pack. It hit the ground with a jumbled metallic clank. The man took another step forward, putting himself within range. Rasha slashed at him, the blade horizontal to the street. With fluid skill, the man pivoted on his heels, tucking back his hips as he extended the dagger to deflect the blow. The bone sword clicked into his blade. Steel twinkled as it fell to the dirt. She barely felt the impact. 
Her sword carried straight through into his side, passed through his ribs, guts. He was still holding the hilt of the dagger and the two inches of steel that remained attached to it, and he was looking down at this with the befuddlement Rasha associated with children understanding they've just broken their favorite toy. The sword wasn't done. It kept passing through, as if she were swiping it through empty air, as if it hungered to cut as deeply as it could. It exited the other side of his body. The tall man was stabbing at her overhand. She whipped her sword in a backhand. It cut through his forearm with a gritty click of bone. His hand and a sizable portion of his lower arm spun away. His elbow continued swinging forward, spraying her face with hot blood. As the severed limb thumped to the street, the raspy man slid in half. His upper half struck the ground. He gawked as his lower half toppled beside him. Everyone was screaming. The tall man clutched his stump. The two unwounded men turned and dashed away as fast as they could. Rasha picked up her pack and ran. I have no words. Gates stared down at the table. Jewels glittered like stars, and almost as numerous. Correction, I have words, but compared to this, they're so cheap and mean I don't dare utter them for fear I'll tarnish your treasure. The sight of money always makes you so eloquent, Rasha said. How did you do this? Same way I always do. How did you even get in? It's like you can walk through walls. She maintained a straight face. Look like you belong and you can go anywhere. He rubbed his jaw, pacing around the table like a stalking cat. We're rich. So rich. Did you pick up anything else? What? A fortune isn't enough for you. This is true. There probably wasn't anything left to steal. She leaned back in her chair, letting out a long, quiet breath. So when do we get paid? Don't tell me you've spent the last score already. I just earned the order enough money to buy a new building. Is it crazy to want to know when I get my cut? The Gerolic collection is far too famous to sell here. We'll have to fence it in Dolendon. Maybe even Setevan. It'll take weeks. You let me know if you run short before then. Weeks, huh? He leaned back, lacing his fingers behind his head. Don't worry. I've got plenty of other ways to fill your time. Interested in another job? Are you joking? A grin pulled across Gates' face. Not in the slightest. In its way, his plan was even crazier than robbing the sealed citadel. Seven houses in seven nights, some of the biggest names in the city. Gates had already lined people up for four of the jobs, the other three, all Rasha's. She had two days before the first. She badly wanted to get good and drunk, but that could wait until her personal work was done. Back home, she collapsed into bed. As soon as she got up, she went downstairs for a cup of tea. Ready to face the world, she went back to her room, reached inside the chimney, and retrieved a long cloth-covered bundle. She sat on the bed, 
laying the sheathed sword across her knees. The sapphire on the scabbard winked up at her. She faced the same basic problem with the sword that the Order had in fencing the Gerlich collection. The scabbard was way too obtrusive. She'd never be able to wear it around town without someone recognizing it, or at the very least, recognizing it was too expensive for the likes of her. Couldn't carry it around unsheathed, either. Its white length was even more recognizable than the scabbard. She could dye it, but she wasn't sure that would be enough. Besides, if she turned around too fast and the blade flung wide, she could chop someone in half. She owned the sword, but she didn't dare use it. And what was the point of a magic sword if you couldn't use it? But she did have money. The whole point of money was to solve problems. Could always bribe a smith to keep quiet, but the flaw in bribing someone was that you'd just proved they were dishonest. What she needed was a copy, one she could make herself. She was no smith, but she had an idea. She dropped by the Marigan. Joldy was holding down the bar. Rasha asked and discovered that Vlad was out back. She found him hucking knives at a battered wood target. Vlad, she said, how can I make a mold of a sword? He turned, the tip of a throwing knife pinched between his thumb and forefinger. Why do you want to do that? To duplicate it. You could pack it in clay easy enough. Make sure and oil the blade down good so as it won't stick. Dry the clay and fire it, then cast the sword. Don't think it'll be too pretty, nor too strong. But if looks is all you care for, it'll match. Rorschach headed to the Mason's district for the clay, brought it home, and followed Vlad's advice, including a generous slather of oil. She gave the mold time to harden, then withdrew the sword as gently as she could, somehow managing to extract it without slicing open the hardened clay. She took the mold to a smith in the sharps, paying extra to have it done that same day. Like Vlad had promised, the work was far from pretty, weird swirls and specks marring the dull metal. A flat tang extended from the blade's base. Benner, the smith, had added that without being asked. Rasha pinched her upper lip. Can you make me a scabbard for this? The smith sniffed. I ain't even polished it yet. You don't have to worry about that. Just get me a scabbard. Nothing fancy. Got it? Benner gave her a long look, then shrugged. It's your money. Make sure it's steel. The strongest you've got. For the scabbard. Like you said, it's my money. After seeing the color of her coin, he promised he'd have it ready in three days. Not in time for her first job, but that turned out to be a total cakewalk. The Fadigans, the target, were hosting a midsummer ball. All Rasha had to do was bribe her way past the staff, several of whom had been brought on for the occasion and had no loyalty to the family, then slip upstairs, grab the collection, and dash out by way of the shadows. The whole thing took less than an hour. The hall was pennies compared to what she'd nicked from the citadel, but it was still going to make for some fat pockets, and she'd have her cut in days, not weeks. 
Late the next morning, she wandered past the pride gate. Herrick was out in his yard hammering scraps of lumber into something that might pass for furniture. Seeing her, he laid down his hammer and picked up his shirt to swab off the sweat. Rorschach, he muttered. Come to make sure I'm playing nice. She stared at him. Are you? I've been working him hard. He tossed down his shirt. But I ain't touched him, and the good news is he has been working. Is he around? Herrick stuck his fingers in his mouth and whistled. Footsteps padded from around the side of the house. Fed was as shaggy-haired as ever, but the dark bruise around his eye had faded completely. He grinned up at Rasha. What'd you bring me? My love. How's it going? The boy shrugged. Like his foster father, he was shirtless, and though he was filthy, it looked like the grime of honest labor. Okay, he said. Dad's showing me how to build chairs and stuff. It's pretty neat. At his use of the word dad, Herrick abruptly turned away. He reached for his shirt again, dabbing his eyes and brows for several seconds. Rorschach chatted with Fed until Herrick cleared his throat and turned back around. She winked at Herrick. Keep up the good work. From there, she returned to Benner, her smith in the sharps. He was in the back, banging away on something metal. She was afraid he was still going at her sheath. But when she called to him, he came out carrying a curved black scabbard. Leather wraps, he said warily. When most people go metal, they want to show it off. But you made it sound like you wanted it as plain as Aunt Jan's thumb. But don't worry, there's hard steel underneath. She smiled and took the sheath. It felt solid, weighty, smelled like fresh steel and leather. Good things. You made the right call. She unhitched her belt and fed it through the two hoops attached to the scabbard. This is perfect. There's just one problem. Rasha kept her expression neutral. What's that? You ain't got any grip on your blade. He laughed. Want me to take care of that, too? She exhaled. Appreciate it, but I've got something else in mind for that. He brought her the copy of the sword. It inserted smoothly into the sheath, the tang sticking out like a fractured bone. She settled her accounts, including a tip that was generous, but not so far out there that he'd get suspicious. Heading home, she did her best not to run. Inside her room, she bolted the door and went to the fireplace. A piece of her was certain the sword would be gone, but it was right where she'd left it. She pulled the copy from her new scabbard, removed the bone sword from its case, then eased it into the new sheath as gently as if she were lifting a man's purse or deflowering her true love. The cross guard clicked into place. The fit was perfect. She drew the sword back out as carefully as she'd inserted it, then brought the scabbard to the window and inspected it. No sign of damage. She sheathed and unsheathed the sword a few times in a row. The scabbard held. She was tempted to the roots of her being to carry the sword outside with her then and there, to never go without it again. Problem was, 
She ran with an entire tribe who made their living through light fingers and sharp eyes. Sooner or later, someone would notice. Missions only, then, when she'd be alone and exposed. Besides, it wasn't just the risk of being seen by the wrong person that made carrying such a sword dangerous to the owner. With a weapon like that, you'd start to think you were invincible. The instant you began to believe you were beyond harm was the instant you signed your death warrant. Her next job was Rolligan House. She took the sword, but the grab was even easier than Fadigan Manor. This is too easy, Gates said on her return, standing over the loot like a man who'd bet everything on the turn of the dice and rolled Kingsies. Why weren't we doing this years ago? You tell me, Rosha said. How have the others been doing? Sally landed himself in the clink trying to take down the Jedalics. I could have told you that would happen the second you told me it was Sally. Yes, well, we can't give all the jobs to you. We have a guild to run here. So what's going to happen to him? Gates tried on one of the sapphire rings she'd brought back. Generally speaking, the process is that he'll be kicked around until the authorities' feet grow tired, after which he'll be dumped into a cell and largely forgotten until he dies, or they need room for a more recent criminal. We're not going to spring him. That's not in the interests of the Guild. If something went wrong in the attempt, it would implicate the entire order of the alley. You know this. Sure do, Rosha said. But I figured we're so damn rich now that we could spend a little more to look after our people. Gates smiled crookedly. Don't worry. I'm sure we'd do whatever it takes for you. At her final job, they'd tripled their guards. Word was getting around. Didn't matter. As long as rich people kept living in stone houses, she'd always be able to walk through their walls. But they had a guard in the strong room, too. Still, in the shadows, Rasha stared at the silvery curve of his neck. All she'd have to do was become real for a split second, jerk her sword through his neck. So far, though, They'd kept the latest string non-violent. Any murders, even of the help, could stir the heavy hand of the citadel. She hit the bedrooms instead, grabbing whatever was obvious and getting out before her hold on the rope connecting her to the netherworld pulled her back into the open. Word came down from on high. Except for ongoing jobs and maintaining territory, the entire order was on furlough for the next few weeks they'd just thrown eight stones directly into the hornet's nest. It was time to let the buzzing die down, lest someone get stung. Fine by Rasha. She'd done her job. The soldiers were everywhere, garbed in the black of the citadel, the white tree of Barden blazing from their chests. They stood outside the manors. They marched through the shops. They came by the Marigan, where they interviewed Gates, Gates's counterparts, Anya and Ackley, and then, in a move that had the building gossiping for days, the soldiers went to see the bossman, Caravan. Word was they threatened to haul him bodily from the Marigan. His response, again according to rumour, was that if they wanted to search the building, they could do so, and if they didn't turn up any of the missing goods— 
he'd go on to search their bodies, one organ at a time, as he removed them from their bodies. Time played on. The days got hotter. Rasha wanted to spend more time out, but she felt safer at home with her sword. Then word from Gates. He needed to see her at once. Leaving her sword in the chimney, she walked swiftly towards the Marigan. There, two bulky men escorted her upstairs to Gates's office. He was waiting outside. Rasha, he said, bowing his head, what I'm about to show you is going to change your life. But I want you to make you a promise. You won't let it change you. Something wrong, Gates. You talk like you're about to toss me out on my ear. Far from it, he said. It's the Citadel heist. It's been fenced. He swept the fabric from the table. Gems and metal shimmered in the candlelight. Necklaces, rings, stacks of coins, and, even looking right at them, she couldn't believe it, three bricks of silver the size of her forearm. Careful with those, Gates grinned toothily. They don't look so big, but they weigh half as much as you do. She stared in something like awe. Forget like awe, she stared with the awe the gods must have felt when they'd forged the stars. She gestured timidly, as if afraid that stirring the breeze would blow the gems and silver blocks away. How much is this? More than you can spend if you live to be nine hundred. I don't know. I could get used to this. Forgive the pointiness of my nose, Gates said, but do you have any thoughts as to what you're going to do with it? Be rich. I'm serious. Are you going to leave it here, in the strong box? Do you have a better idea? He wandered from behind the desk, circling around the shining bars set out on the table. What have you got in front of you? Coins? Jewelry? Ingots? If I take one of these pretty silver bars out of here, whose is it then? She set her hand beside the dragon's hoard. Mine. How are you going to prove that? Because you keep records of everything you pay us. I could say you were paying your debt, he said. Or I could take it to the nearest smith and have it melted into strips. At that point, it could have come from anywhere. Same with the jewellery. Sure, you could make records of it, leave them with the whore. But gems can be recut. No one in Yalin cares who owned a ring taken from Narashtovic. Help, that's how we make half our money. Do you have a point somewhere in all those words? My point, Rasha, is that everything you've taken for yourself in the last month can be taken away from you just as easily. When you had little, there was no point keeping it safe. But now that you have a fortune, you need to get a hell of a lot smarter before some sly young thing grabs it out from under you. He was right. That didn't stop her from being annoyed. What do you suggest? He looked her in the eye. Buy a house. Better yet, buy land. As much as you can afford. Land. There's a reason it's called real estate. The only ones who can take land away from you are your debtors, or Galand himself. 
she ran her finger over the cool silver. Strange that an ounce of metal could buy an acre of land. Good thing, though, because she was very good at stealing pieces of metal. And if she had a house, better yet, houses, then the kids she plucked from Winter's door would never have to worry about being turned out into the streets again. Two conditions, she said. First, I need someone you trust, someone who's used to working with our kind. Agreed. And the second? When the time comes, you help me carry this stuff downstairs. So. Gates leaned out the open shutters, facing the wind blowing in from the bay a half mile to the north. Does this one meet your standards? Keller turned enough to watch her without looking directly at her. He was Gates's contact in this realm. According to Gates, they'd done dozens of deals together. The order, as it turned out, was involved in a surprising amount of legitimate business. Nobody had ever told her, because she'd been uninterested, or had she been too small time to be worth showing. Gates's voice carried an edge. They'd been traipsing around town for three days. The first plot they'd taken her to had been three blocks from the Marigan. Convenient and stately enough, but it had only three rooms that could serve as bedrooms. When she'd mentioned this drawback, Keller had raised an eyebrow. How many of you will be occupying the home? For now, she'd said, just me, but I plan on having a big family. After that, the fixer had tried her with several places outside the Pride Gate, where many homes remained empty, hence big and cheap. But she'd eventually decided it was too far from the city's heart. She was looking for a home, not a country manor. Next had come a string of houses in quieter sections inside the Pride Gate. They were all fine, but they blended together. Didn't grab her. Nothing felt like the place she'd spend her next forty years. Finally, in desperation, Keller had brought her here. He'd warned her how much the property would set her back, that she'd need to dress better to blend in with the neighborhood, that she might not feel at home. Then she'd seen the rooms, and the bathtub, and the view of the bay that stretched away to the north forever, reminding her how vast the world was, and how there was always somewhere else you could go. She stared out at the ocean, and she smiled. I'll take it. The next few days were among the worst of her life. It turned out it was incredibly difficult to give someone vast sums of money for a hunk of land they no longer wanted. The titles, interviews, barristers. By the end of it, she was starting to think the nomads had the right idea. As Keller had prophesied, it sucked down most of the fortune Gates had told her would last a lifetime. But what fortune hadn't been lost, it had been converted into a different kind of treasure, one that could never be taken from her. The next few days were a mess of cleaning, meetings with woodworkers for furniture, and visits to the tailor. Not her idea of a good time. She was beyond relieved when a messenger arrived from the Marigan. Gates wanted to see her that night. It was a hike from her new house, and she set out early. Nine o'clock, and the sun wasn't yet down. The high summer evening was sweltering. 
By the time she neared the Marigan, she felt like she was swimming in her own sweat. Smoke hung in the dead air. She didn't smell any roasting meat. Strange. Way too hot for anyone to need a fire. The odor had a second tang to it. Whitewash. Angry shouts sprung up ahead. A prickle went down her spine. She dropped into a jog and turned the corner. Directly ahead, the Marigan was on fire, and beneath it, drawn swords glinted in the flames. Chapter 8 They hiked down a steep escarpment, black rocks tumbling away from their boots. Dust clung to the sweat on Dante's arms. The rocks ranged in size from walnut-sized rubble to slabs big enough to serve a formal dinner. The larger chunks felt sturdy enough, but if one slipped down on them, they'd be crushed like the grapes the basin was famous for. The rocky scree quit, ushering them onto a slope of sagebrush and dead grass. Crickets whirred. They were a few miles north of the butte that hosted Colin. Ribbons of canal gleamed in the withering afternoon light. A blue haze hung on the horizon, darker than the sky, but it was too distant to tell if it was mountains or some form of weather. They made their way to the nearest canal. Frogs croaked from its banks. Against the dust of the desert, the smell of the water stood out like a ship's lanterns at night. Blaze led them east, along the shore, beneath fragrant trees. Around the waterway, trellises of beans and grapes curled in the sunlight. Small houses and large barns scattered the landscape. There it is. Blaze pointed to two sticks jammed into the bank to form an X. He moved down to the canal's bank, indicating a fist-sized spiral shell resting in the mud. Dante kneeled beside it, picking it up. It smelled tartly of rotting snail, but the meat was gone, a few small scraps clinging to the interior. He glanced up. This is it. Sure is, Blaze said. You might recognize the Chardon by its distinctly Chardon-shaped shell. Are there any others? This is the only one we could find. You realize we're looking for hundreds of these? Possibly thousands? We already know they're in the area. What does it prove to find one empty shell? Blaze lifted his index finger. The emptiness is the key to its use. The meat has all the shadows in it, right? I was thinking it's time for you to use your bloodhound impression. Use the bits of nether left in the shell to trace it back to the meat. And thus to where it was used, Dante said slowly. And where all the other Chardon likely are, too. Unless you have a better idea. One question. Why drag me all the way out here? Why not just bring me the shell? I didn't want to disturb the scene. Anyway, we had to hike all the way out here. Fair's fair. Still kneeling, Dante moved his mind inside the nether tucked beneath the shell's hard surfaces. It was far denser than it was in most living things, 
and it was a trivial task to gather it up and reach out to the other shadow still linked to it. Pressure bulged in Dante's head. He turned in a slow circle until the sensation peaked. Got it, he said. North, northeast. Blaze clenched a fist in triumph. How far away? Good question. Let me consult the map they were kind enough to inscribe inside the shell. I was wondering if it felt closer to one mile or one million. Dante gazed blankly, exploring the pressure in his mind. It's neither very close nor terribly far. It might be a few days' walk from here. We'll need provisions, Blaze said. As long as we're out here, we may as well ask Mrs. Fielder if she knows what lays between us and where we're going. Mrs. Fielder turned out to be the owner and chief farmer of the land on which they'd found the shell. Blaze and Naren had first met her in town, where a chance conversation revealed that she'd recently found a few large black shells along the ditch that watered her property. In Dante's experience, farmers fell into one of two distinct shapes— implacable barrels and animated twists of rope. Fielder was one of the ropey ones. Been showing up here and there the last few weeks. She stood on her shaded porch, watching the three of them flatly. Knew they weren't from the river. Do you know anyone else who's seen them on their land? Dante said. Far as I know, I'm it. What are they? It's probably best if you don't know. Let's just say the Malish brought them, and leave it at that. He pointed in the direction of the pressure in his brow. What's out that way? She scratched the back of her neck. A few farms, then a whole lot of nothing, then the spider fields. Blaze frowned. Tell me that's just a name. It is, Fielder said for a field filled with giant spiders. How giant are we talking? Giant like the size of a plump grape, or giant like the size of the deposit we'll leave in our trousers upon seeing them? Wouldn't know. I make it my business to have no business there. After a few more questions, they thanked her and went on their way. Faced with the prospect of spending multiple days in the wilds, they returned to Colin to settle their affairs at the inn, then headed down the switchbacks to the town at the Butte's foot, where they'd found provisions to be cheapest. Despite their thrift, by the time they'd bought enough food for a week, they found themselves down to their last pennies. Dante used his loon to check in with Jonah, but he and Fenk didn't have enough cash to their name to justify the trip to Colin. We're looking at a problem when we get back, Dante said, as they hiked through the town. The nights are warm enough for us to sleep outside, but we won't have anything left for food and supplies. When we were kids, you used to rob people in the street, Blaze said. Too distinguished for that now. It's less a matter of being too distinguished, and more a question of not wanting to be arrested and jailed by the people we share an enemy with. All right. New plan. When we find the Malish, we rob them. They made their way through the housing at the base of the butte, striking out north-northeast. A dirt path took them through a few miles of farms, quitting at the edge of the uncultivated desert. As the sun set, they cleared rocks from a square of earth 
and laid out their blankets. It was not the most restful night of Dante's existence. At every sensation on his skin, he sat up and slapped at it, convinced he was being overwhelmed by spiders. At daybreak, they got back on their way, hiking through the low hills. Ahead lay nothing but wasteland, black rock, grey dirt, yellow grass, and pale green spiky plants, some of which grew ten feet high. It looked forbidding, but they covered their heads with cloths to shade them from the sun. And if their water grew short, Dante knew he could reach down into the dirt and draw up as much as they needed. Good thing. The pressure in his head had only increased slightly since starting out. They had a long walk ahead of them, with no roads to ease the journey. While you were at the library, I've been doing some research of my own, Blay said after several minutes of silent hiking, starting with that damned wheel of theirs. Know what it's for? Dante stepped over a striped bug the size of his thumb, making you look foolish. Combating heavily armored infantry. The club end is normally an iron ball. We'll smash right through anything you've got on to protect you. In battle, the colony's infantry keeps a tight formation. Then the wheelers dart out, smash up everything they see, and fall back into cover. Then the front ranks advance to stab whoever the wheelers knock down. Sounds effective against infantry. What do they do against cavalry? Naturally, they retreat to the buttes, Naren put in, and watch the Malish burn their fields. Blaze shrugged. Yeah, but the coroners are fanatical about keeping their granaries stocked, in case of blight or siege. From what I've seen, the farmers pull far more respect than the warriors. What warriors? Dante said. Like cord. Blaze tapped his right elbow. With the ribbons. They're all attached to a different temple. They live and train there, totally taken care of. Some earn money on the side, serving as arms, but whenever the Malish come calling, they're expected to serve in the army. Cord's ribbon was gold. Does she serve Barrod? That's right. Barrod's the smith. What does he have to do with fighting? This isn't the cellar set you grew up with, Blay said. These people have been under constant war for a thousand years. Everything's about fighting. Once or twice a mile, an abandoned building stood on a hillside, as conspicuous as the last tooth in an old man's mouth. The day was cooler than the few before it. Even so, they used twice as much water as Dante had expected. By the time they bedded down for the night, they'd only seen two other people trudging through the dust. Before going to sleep, Blaze tapped the middle of his forehead. Any progress? Getting stronger, Dante said. Another day, maybe two. I sure hope I'm right about this. If we spend a week out here with no Chardon to show for it, I'm going to be very mad at someone. Yourself. What good would that do? As the next day of travel began, the landscape was no different than the day before. As the morning wore on, though, the land grew flatter. Abruptly, tree trunks projected from the dust, bleached white by the sun and time. The soil was matted with dried matter that crackled underfoot with small puffs of dust. 
Rodents scampered across the flats, ducking into holes dug through the matting. Dante gazed northeast. Mountains hung on the horizon, little more than a blue wall. Does this remind you of anything? Yeah, Blaze said. That I never want to do this again. Dante was going to mention Morive, then remembered Blaze had never been there. Let's take a quick rest. I'd like to look around. Yes, you wouldn't want to miss any of the rats, or the dead trees. Blaze and Naren sat on a rotting log. Dante wandered away, tapping the dead tree trunks, producing hollow thuds. When he tested a branch, it snapped off in his hand. It felt incredibly light. He tossed it aside, then thought better and picked it back up. He crouched over and used it to scrape through the grey blanket covering the ground. The substance shredded like old rope, revealing dirt beneath. Dante grabbed hold of the edge of the matting and walked back, tearing away a swath. It was vaguely reminiscent of dried thatch. He kneeled beside the exposed earth and sent his focus within it. The nether there lay in thick pools, swirling at his touch. Most dirt was homogenous, studded with the occasional stone which he could manipulate as well. But, as he'd suspected, there was much within this soil that he couldn't move at all. He softened the dirt, pulling it aside. The hole breathed a smell of rot so faint it was like exposing the corpse of a ghost. The pieces of earth he hadn't been able to move turned out to be twigs, branches, and leaf mulch. He reached down with his stick and gave them a poke. The mulch collapsed into fragments, scattering on the light breeze. He sat back, examining the trees. There was a lot of space between each one. Some trunks were slanted, broken off a few feet above where they stuck from the soil. He moved back to the hole widening it. Dirt flowed like water, exposing more branches and ragged lumps of leaves. An eighteen-inch-wide hole opened at the bottom of his excavations. Dante felt his way through the nether surrounding the hole. The passage delved downward, branching numerous times before terminating in a round space thirty feet below the surface. Tunnels for the rodents? It seemed far too wide for that. A well, or latrine, some kind of... Legs scrambled up from the darkness. With a shout, Dante jumped back. Spindly legs churned into the light, as thick as his thumb and as long as a bent bow. These were attached to a pale, globular body a foot across. Fangs twitched on the massive spider's face, as it emerged into the depression Dante had dug in the ground. Dante tripped on a rock and fell into the crinkling grey matter. The spider dashed across his excavations and up the side without slowing down. While its body was no bigger than a small dog, its legs spanned eight feet. Dante yanked the nether loose from the earth, shaped the darkness into a spear, and plunged it into the spider's fat body. Blue ichor spouted to the dry earth. The spider collapsed, legs waving like storm-tossed boughs. Feet 
drummed across the ground as Blaze and Naren arrived, swords in hand. Dante blasted a second spike into the spider's head, stilling it. Blaze gawked. Tell me that's not what it looks like. Dante got to his feet. In that case, it's a nightmarishly large potato bug. Holy shit! Blaze shuddered, stalking in a circle. I always knew you were going to open a portal to hell one of these days. These must be the spider fields. Would have been nice if your farmer friend had warned us what they look like. Naren poked the oozing corpse with an extremely long branch. I've sailed halfway around the world, and I've never seen one a quarter this size. What can they be eating? Rats. Blaze pointed his head at one of the rodents perched on a bleached log thirty feet away. The animal watched them with knowing black eyes. Dante slapped the dust from his pants. Or maybe they just sleep until prey wanders into them. You know what? I don't care how they do it. Right now, all I care about is getting out of here before... Dante had turned around to pick up the flask of water that had come untied from his shoulder when he'd fallen. Hearing Blaze trail off, he whirled to face the hole. Legs poured out from it, dragging grotesque, round bodies behind them. The spiders emerged into the daylight, writhing hypnotically, stirring the specific revulsion that only a swarm of bugs can invoke. There were dozens of them, and they were heading straight toward the three men. Are we running? Naren called. I am. Blaze took off like a loosed arrow, twigs flying up from his feet. Dante fell in behind them. The spiders streamed across the flat, hard-packed ground, limbs clicking. They're catching up, Dante said. Blaze glanced back, mouth half open. You're the wizard! Do something about it! Dante drew his antler-handled knife and held it over his arm, waiting for his steps to smooth out enough to prevent him from mangling himself. Then, coming to terms with the idea that mangling himself was the whole point, he lowered the blade, gashing his arm. The nether leaped to the trickling blood. Black lancers slammed into the closest three spiders, splashing their blue interiors across the grey desert. Ten of their kin stopped to lap up the precious fluid. Dante's stomach flopped. As the next wave closed on his heels, he struck those down too. More and more spiders peeled off to feast on the easy prey. Yet forty others continued after the humans. Unhindered, Naren and Blaze were outpacing Dante, veering away from a jumbled scree that had formed beneath a low butte. Dante headed straight for it. Rocks turned under his boots. Heading uphill, he felt woefully slow. The spiders rushed on, closing to thirty feet, then twenty. Dante thrust his mind into the stone beneath the rubble, turning it to mud, then ripping it away. With a roar, the loosened rock tumbled toward the verminous swarm. The spiders disappeared beneath the avalanche. Dante stumbled a few steps higher, then staggered to a stop, breathing hard. A pall of dust strung out on the breeze. Behind them, the spiders who'd turned aside continued to slurp up the dead. Well done, Blaze called from his right. 
Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to start running again. They crossed the remainder of the spider fields as swiftly as their muscles allowed. At last, the grey matted plains gave way to familiar grey hills. By sundown, the bulge in Dante's forehead had intensified to the brink of discomfort. They kept watch that night, more leery of being ambushed by giant spiders than by malish forces. Morning brought nothing unpleasant besides the heat, which Dante was growing used to. Or maybe it was growing less severe as the summer neared its close. In any event, the morning's trek felt easier. Within an hour, Dante crested a low ridge. The pressure in his head spiked. He came to a halt. He pointed to a butte less than five miles away. Whatever's left of the Chardon we found on the farm, it's over there. Let's just hope the rest of the shells are with it. They made their way below the ridge so their silhouettes wouldn't stand out, then hunkered down behind a redolent stand of sage. Minutes later, a column of dust approached the butte. Three men on horseback rode up the trail that had been scoured by its southwestern face. Malish, Blaze murmured. Colonists typically think horses are too precious to be ridden. They only use them in fields. Dante glanced his way. You're turning into a regional expert. With all the time I've spent in Collins' taverns, I've been absorbing a lot more than beer. My element is the sea, not the desert, Naren said. But even I can see that there isn't much cover between here and there. How do you propose we advance? Blaze swept a bead of sweat from his nose. We could always wait until dark and I could get close enough to sneak in, or Dante could find some unfortunate creature to kill and send in right now. Dante tramped around the hillside until he spooked one of the rodents. He struck it down with a lash of nether, then reanimated it, ordering it across the plain. It ran tirelessly toward the butte. Once it was within a mile of its target, he sent it to the highest nearby hill to stand on its hind legs and take in the scene, where he could watch through its eyes. As it gazed at the scattered buildings atop the butte, it was hoisted suddenly from the earth. Wings beat against it. Damn it, Dante muttered. A hawk just grabbed my spy. Blaze chuckled. Maybe the Malish have finally learned how to fight back. Dante scared up another rodent. He'd have had no problem slaying a city rat, but for some reason, killing one in the wild sent a small pang through his conscience. Perhaps it was the desert. In the woods, life was everywhere. Here, it had to fight for every day. Snuffing it so coldly felt disrespectful. He consoled himself with the idea that, if he took away the Chardon from the Malish, it might save hundreds of colonists. The vermin zoomed across the plain. This time he sent it straight to the switchbacking trail up the butte. The path was lousy with the prints of boots and hooves. Horse droppings scattered the dirt. At the top, a wooden palisade had been erected between the ruins of a stone wall. The rodents scooted under the gate. Crumbling brick buildings baked in the sunlight. Soldiers in blue uniforms moved between the most intact structures. An ox-drawn cart rumbled down what had once been a road. Dante sent the rodent for a closer look. 
the cart came to a stop near the edge of the butte. There, a team of incredibly filthy men clambered into the cart's rear, took up shovels, and began flinging dirt and loose rocks off the side of the plateau. The Malish are here in force, Dante said, and they appear to be digging for something. Blaze shifted behind the sagebrush. Like what? A well? Buried treasure? I'm going to find the Shaden, then figure that out. Separated from the butte by several miles, the pressure in his head was too indistinct to use it to guide him to the shells. His only way to find them was to send his rodent scout through the crumbling city. The wattle and daub houses sported countless holes in their walls, making for easy entry. Most of the brick and stone structures had held up better, but their doors had been hide or wood, and had fallen off long ago. The rat went from structure to structure, sticking its snout through the entry long enough to confirm that it was a barrack or storage, before moving to the next. As it made its rounds, it passed by the dig. Twenty men stripped to the waist jabbed shovels into the dry earth. They'd already excavated a section of ground twenty feet to a side and three feet deep. Dante hid the rat behind a water barrel. A soldier hopped down into the dig, going from man to man. Each man handed over rusting blades, small leather sacks, tarnished silver necklaces, and other trinkets too time-worn to identify. I see, Dante muttered. They're grave-robbing. He described the scene. Naren snorted. They came all this way to steal from those their ancestors killed decades ago. No wonder the colonists hate them. It gets worse. They're pulling out the bones, too. God knows why. He moved the rat along. It soon came to a tall, round building whose mortared stone walls were weathered but intact. A closed wooden door revealed that it contained something leadership didn't want the rank and file to have access to. Dante sent the rodent around the structure's circumference, searching for cracks or a drain. He found no entry. The building bore narrow windows, but these started six feet up the sides, and the wall, though eroded, was too slick for the rodent to climb, especially now that it had been rendered clumsier by its recent death. While Dante was still searching for a way in, a man in a grey robe swayed up to the door, looking sweaty and miserable in his heavy church garb. The priest got a key from his pocket and opened the door. The rodent scooted in behind him. The door creaked closed. Yellow sunlight illuminated a broad, circular room. At one end, a chalk circle had been drawn on the stone floor. A grey tapestry hung from the wall, sewn with the blue hourglass of tame. A far greater interest to Dante were the barrels lined along the wall, and the sharp, brackish odour the rodent scented on the air. The priest fetched an iron rod from the wall. One end of the rod curved, splitting into three prongs, like a bent fork. The priest went to one of the barrels, removed its lid, and lowered the instrument inside. After a bit of splashing and thumping, he removed a shodden. 
He turned it side to side, eyeing it, then replaced the instrument on the wall and exited the building. Found them, Dante said. Blaze clapped his hands. About damn time. How many? Hold on. He sent the rodent up the side of one of the barrels. It fell three times before making it to the top. They have about twenty barrels. It's too dark to see inside, but there have to be hundreds of shod in here. What's the situation around them? They're in a secured building. Stone walls. Plenty of soldiers around, but they're mostly occupied by the dig. There's a trail up to the top of the butte. Gated. And guarded. There's at least one priest in the vicinity. Probably more. Since he took one of the Chardon with him, I'm guessing he knows how to use the nether. The nether? Naren said. But that's a crime, punishable by death. Don't ask me. Maybe they make allowances for themselves when they're out of Malin. Don't be naive, Blaze said. The powers that be exist to set strict rules for the commoners. They have no intention of following the rules themselves. That's why they seek power. And it goes all the way to the top. Tame couldn't even follow his own rules about infidelity. Most of his compatriots are no better. The holy books paint the gods as such drunken, petty sluts. It's a wonder they haven't brought humanity to trial for libel. Dante regarded him with amusement. Blaze rarely expressed much interest in theology, probably because the slant of his opinions would get him hanged in most places where he wasn't best friends with the high priest. Naren set his chin in his hand. I suppose it doesn't matter what the laws are. What matters is that a powerful force is standing between us and the shells. Blaze glanced toward the distant butte. Oh, that's nothing. The building's stone. I'll shut a walk right in. Is that so? Dante said. Do you intend to shadow walk out with twenty barrels slung over your shoulder? I intend to stuff the Chardon in a sack of some kind. And you'll have enough nether to shadow walk up the trail, over the gates, inside the building, and then repeat on the way out. What if you get delayed at some point? Or one of these shameless priests notices you're blundering around in the nether? Blaze waved in dismissal. It's not blundering. I'm not running around the shadows drunk. Except when I am. Even if you're perfectly stealthy, you won't have enough nether to get in and out. Do you have a better idea? Maybe you'd like to fight our way through them. Nope. I'm going to tunnel through the butte, and then straight up into the building. That's actually pretty great. But what happens if someone stumbles into us? After you've cut through all that rock, are you going to have any woo-woo left to kill them with? Not much, Dante admitted. But I'll have the Chardon to draw on, won't I? Now that's handy. What do you say, Naren? Want to head in with us, or would you rather stay out here? If it comes to a fight, I can't offer more than a sword, Naren said. But if I can speed up our gathering of the shells, we'll be less likely to get in a fight in the first place. The rodent scout was still perched on the edge of a barrel. Dante ordered it to jump into the water, find one of the Chardon, and remove a small piece of its meat. This accomplished, 
Its next task was to climb back out of the barrel. While Dante waited for the creature to pull that off, he provided the others with a detailed description of what he'd seen so far, especially the building the Malish were using to house the Chardon. There's something funny about this, Blaze said. This is an awfully long way to travel to dig up some rusty old chainmail. Naren brushed a large red ant from his boot. It's not politically sound, either. Relations with Colin are strained at the best of times. Why worsen matters by digging up Colony's graves? Two possible answers, Dante said. Either they don't care what the colonists think, or whatever they're after is worth so much that it doesn't matter how much outrage they cause. Once the rodent had escaped the barrel, he sent it scampering up a set of shelves and out one of the windows. It landed in the pillowy dust. Without haste, it made its way beneath the gates, down the switchbacks, and across the miles of open field, stopping often to watch for hawks. After more than an hour, it reached Dante. He held out his hand. It spat the bit of Chardon meat into his palm. He dropped his connection to the shell they'd found at Mrs. Fielder's farm, swaying back at the welcome release of the pressure. He gave himself a minute, then delved into the shadows within the flesh the rodent had brought him. A new bulge sprung in his mind, one that would lead him straight to the storage room. They planned to make entry after nightfall. With nothing else to do, Dante sent his scout loping back across the fields and up into the butte. He positioned it near the excavation, hoping for a better look at what the Malish were after. Dirt-smudged soldiers hauled up armor, weapons, packs, and bones, sorting them into piles. After a few minutes, a gray-robed priest, a different man than the one Dante had seen take the Chardon, looked up sharply. Shielding his eyes from the sun, he wandered toward the rodent. Dante retreated the creature into a ruined house. Once the priest returned to the dig, Dante sent the rodent to the Chardon storage, where it waited outside until one of the priests entered the building late that afternoon. Dante tucked the scout behind a crate, intending to leave it there so they'd know it was safe to infiltrate. As the sun advanced across the sky, the three of them shifted around the sagebrush, seeking shade. Only after darkness took the plain did they descend the hill and cross toward the plateau. Smoke rose from the soldiers' camp, lighter grey against the black sky. Dante stopped a half mile from the butte, the rodent perched in the storage room window, watching the grounds. The soldiers had already washed up and eaten. Soon the men retired to their barracks. All quiet, Dante said. Let's get thieving. He led the way to the butte, coming at it from the west side, out of sight of the gates. The ground there was littered with loose stones and piles of dirt dumped from above. Tattered clothes and rusty blades scattered the upturned earth. Dante moved to the sheer rock wall, drew his knife, and cut his much-abused left arm. Nether shot up from all sides, unusually dense. 
he placed his hand against the rock. It had been hours since sunset, yet the basalt was still blood warm. The stone flowed away like water down a drain, forming a narrow tunnel just large enough for a man to fit through. Dante climbed inside, sloping the passage upward as he expanded it forward. Fifteen feet in, with the moonlight fading behind him, he got out his torchstone, blowing on the small white marble until pale light flooded the tunnel. Onward and upward, he advanced into the heart of the butte. The pressure in his head intensified with each step, slowly sliding from the center of his brow toward the top of his head. Once it reached the dead center of the top of his skull, he sent the tunnel spiraling upwards. Minutes later, a pale light shined in the eyes of the rodent. Dante blew out his torchstone and climbed out onto the floor of the Chardon vault. Chapter 9 Blazoned Naran entered behind him, taking in the lay of the room. Dante instructed the rodent to leap out of the window and take up position across from the door. Outside, the plateau was silent, except for the song of crickets and the hollow hooting of owls. Blaze grabbed the claw-tipped rod from the wall, moved to the closest barrel, and winced. Do you really think they'll survive? Buried in the desert for a week? I don't know, Dante said, but they've lasted this long. There's no other way to do this. We'll come back for them as fast as we can. Not looking particularly mollified, Blaze went to work scooping up the Chardon and relocating them to a single barrel closest to them. Naren rolled up his sleeves and grabbed other snails with his bare hands. The barrels contained hundreds of them. Highly unlikely to be Malin's entire stock of Chardon, but it might well be everything they'd recently imported from the plagued islands. And with the Torren defeated, the Malish no longer had a supply to draw on. Dante pried the lid from a barrel and reached into the dark water. His hand brushed a shell. With some gentle prying, he worked it loose. As he lifted the brackish-smelling creature from the water, silver threads glimmered around its shell before fading. He frowned, doing his best to follow the silvery tracework. There's ether in these. Blaze didn't look up from his hookwork. I thought there was ether in everything. This has been shaped by someone. I wonder if this is how they've kept them alive this long. It's not connected to anything, is it? Like an alarm? Dante blinked and did his best to follow the course of the ether. For him, even that simple task was a challenge. Yet he couldn't have done it at all before visiting the islands. He didn't see any tendrils leading away from the Chardon. Whatever the ether's purpose, it was self-contained. He returned to the snails, fishing about in the water and relocating them to Blaze's main barrel. Some of the Chardon were far more stubborn than others. With Dante's frustration mounting, he stepped back, drying his hands on his pants, and wandered around the room looking for another one of the hooked rods that seemed so effective at detaching the snails. One hung on the opposite wall, but the path to it was blocked by stacks of small wooden boxes. 
With a grunt, Tante lifted a box and set it aside. Its contents rattled dryly. The timbre of the sound was specific. Familiar. The lid was latched, but not locked. He swung it open. The light of the full moon cut through the windows, illuminating the jumble of bones inside. They were marred by streaks of something like blood or dirt. He picked up a rib. It wasn't blood, nor dirt. The sweep of the rib was painted with ancient malish runes he'd rarely seen and couldn't read. With tingling dread, he moved his mind into the bone's marrow. It was infused with nether. We can't leave yet, he said flatly. I see that, Blay said. That's because you're too busy fooling around with old bones to help us with the shorden. These bones are covered in runes. When we first came to Narashtovic, Samarand had me make objects just like these. She used them in the ritual meant to summon Aron. Blay straightened. We're not interrupting a god summoning, are we? I've made it my life's mission to not get on the bad side of any deities. Whatever they're doing, that's why they've brought the Shardin here. Maybe Gladick thinks he can summon Aron and then kill him. That's what they're digging for, Dante said. It isn't to loot the pockets of forgotten corpses. It's to take the bones. Naren put another snail in the barrel. If all they wanted was bones, why come all the way to Colin? There are more than enough corpses in Bressel. Let's get the Chardon out of here, and I'll see what I can find out. Dante got the hook from the wall and returned to the barrels. Tedious work, but with three of them it went fast enough. Once they'd scooped up every snail they could find, Dante secured a lid to the top of the packed container. Drawing the nether from one of the Chardon, he dissolved the rock beneath the barrel. It sank into the floor of the building. As he slowly extended the hole beneath the barrel, lowering it toward the base of the butte, he sent the rodent trotting toward the mass grave the Malish soldiers had been unearthing. Blaze stood beneath a window, face tipped back as he listened to the night. Dante passed Naron the torchstone. The captain descended the spiral ramp Dante had used to get them up into the room. Outside, the rodent came to the dig. It was now silent. Rotten clothes and leather armor lay in a jumbled heap. All the bones had been removed from the scene. A path had been worn from the site to one of the better-preserved buildings. Dante sent his scout trotting along the trail. A bolt of white light flashed toward the rodent. Before Dante could order it to dash away, its vision went black. We have trouble, he said in the storage room. A priest just killed my scout. Blaze frowned. If he exterminated your rat, then he's either going to want to kill us or bill us. Either way, we should get out of here. Dante headed for the exit in the floor. As he moved, however, he lost his hold on the earth beneath the barrel, which he was still lowering. He stopped, teeth clenched. Get to the bottom. I'll be right there. Blaze brushed past, disappearing around the curve of the ramp. Dante withdrew the rock from beneath the barrel as fast as he could. Feeling it come level with the main tunnel out, he stopped, 
extending a horizontal passage between the two excavations. The building's door burst open. A blue-clad soldier rushed into the room, sword glinting. A priest followed on his heels. Dante rushed down the ramp, sealing the stone closed behind him. One light glowed ahead. He stumbled from the spiral ramp into his hallway, rushing into the backs of Naran and Blaze, who were wrestling with the incredibly weighty barrel. Get back, Dante said. I'll close it up. We can't risk them finding the Chardon before we get back here, Blaze said. There's only one way we can do this. We can't destroy them. Do you have any idea what I could do with this much nether? Sure. About exactly as much as the Malish could do with it. Dante pressed his lips together. You're right. Get back. Blaze and Naren retreated toward the exit. Feeling sick with himself, how was it that he could kill any number of humans without remorse, yet harming a barrel of sea snails made his conscience bleed? Dante moved away from the barrel. He lashed the nether toward it, cutting loose its hoops. Staves burst apart, spilling seawater and shells across the ground. He moved into the rock. A shelf of stone slammed downward with a gut-churning crunch. Not our proudest moment, Blaze said. Now, shall we get out of here before they add us to their pile of bones? With Naren lighting the way with the torchstone, they jogged down the tunnel. As they neared the exit, Naren passed him the stone. Dante blew it out. They moved into the night. Dante sealed the tunnel behind them. Atop the butte, men hollered to each other. Doors slammed, steel clinked. Better hoof it, Blaze said. I'd like to be ten miles away by sunrise. They jogged toward the nearest hill, meaning to put it between them and any pursuit. Halfway to it, torches flapped from the top of the butte. Faint hoofbeats carried through the darkness. Dante and the other two paused long enough to ensure the riders were going in the wrong direction, then ran up the hill. They crested it, slowing to a jog as they moved downhill. Dante waited until they'd made it past the next ridge before speaking. Well, that could have gone worse. Is that what you consider success? Naren said. We lost all the Chardon. Correction, Blaze said. We destroyed the Chardon. I'm sure Dante had visions of using them to brand his name across the sky— but the fundamental objective was to get the shells away from the Malish. Mishanak. He had just glanced behind them. He double-taked violently, tripping through a clump of sage. Dante's heart sank. Behind them, three dotted lines glowed white in the dirt. Each spot of light was a narrow oval about a foot long. They began some hundred feet away from Dante, but as he watched, the lines of light advanced across the field, spot by spot, stopping directly beneath their feet. Ethermancers, he groaned. They found a way to track us. We must do something. Naren kicked dirt over the closest patch of ether, but his efforts only brought more light to the stretch of ground he'd just disturbed. They'll be able to see these for miles. Then I suppose... We'll have to bury them. 
Dante reached into the earth, lifting up a shelf of turf and dropping it on top of ten feet of tracks. His satisfaction with his idea died as the area he'd moved the dirt from began to glow as well. Interesting, Blay said. It appears we're screwed. Not so fast. Naren pointed to the hill they'd just descended. As they watched, the furthest footsteps faded, the line of light contracting toward them. Should we stay here, wait for them all to fade? The ones around our feet don't seem to be going anywhere, Dante said. But the tracks only last for a few minutes. If we get far enough away, we'll take our tracks with us. Blaze nodded and broke into a run. Dante dropped in behind him, doing his best to overlap his footsteps with the ones Blaze was setting down. In a small silver lining, the eerie white light made it better to see where he was going. Blaze swung away from the next ridge, opting instead to detour through the low fold where two hills met. The sage was slightly thicker there, and the low elevation would keep their tracks hidden unless a scout crested one of the surrounding hills. They moved in silence, slowing to a jog after half a mile. The tracks persisted for a few hundred yards behind them. Compared to the vastness of the desert, it was little more than a speck. At night, though, the brightness of that speck was like a lighthouse at sea. After another hour, eight miles lay between them and the Malish-claimed Butte. Yet after what they'd done to the Chardon, Dante wouldn't feel safe until he was back in Colin. They pushed hard, cycling between walking and jogging. It was far more pleasant to travel by night. Dante thought they should have been doing so all along. Even so, he was starting to wear down. He considered using the nether to wash the weariness from his muscles, but after all the tunneling, his command was shaky. He needed to keep a reserve handy. When the horn sounded behind him, he knew he'd made the right decision. Where is he? Dante said. Where's... The horn sounded again. Naren's arm jerked forward. Dante followed the path of his finger to a mounted silhouette on the opposite slope. Shadows condensed in Dante's hand. He shaped them into a spike and flung them into the air. The scout was hundreds of yards away, and Dante lost sight of the nether almost at once. Seconds later, however, the figure dropped from the saddle. Dante exhaled heavily. Time to decide where to make our stand. It's all right, Blaze said. We just have to keep running. And then outrun the squadron of horsemen that's about to show up. The only reason we've been able to evade them so far is that this place is gigantic. Now that they know where to look, there's no hiding our tracks. Then it's a good thing we don't need to. Quit whining and get running. Dante felt none of Blaze's optimism, but often the only thing required to get tired people moving was for one of them to take action. Once more, he found himself following in Blaze's glowing footsteps. They didn't make it another mile before a second horn sounded. Hooves thumped faintly. Voices carried on the still desert air. White light sprung from a mile across the fields, illuminating at least a score of soldiers. Only a few were mounted. Ethermancers, Dante said. They've been refreshing their soldiers' strength to give them speed. 
Blaze gazed across the darkness. Good. Then they'll have less ether to try to kill us with. Come on, then. It isn't much further. Precisely. What is this it? Naren said. Blaze didn't deign to answer. They jogged up another hill. Behind them, the riders stuck close to the infantry, yet the circle of light cast by the priest grew a little nearer each minute. After the next rise, Dante and the others entered a flat plain. Within a quarter of a mile, the ground crackled beneath them. Grey. Matted. Blaze looked down in surprise. Would you look at that? Dante sputtered with the laughter of sudden understanding. This is evil. It's my fault if something bad happens to them. They're the ones chasing a group of thieves across a hostile desert in the middle of the night. They entered a stretch of old, dead snags, the branches broken off close to the trunks. Still on the move, Dante sent his attention down into the dirt. In less than a minute, he encountered a tunnel a foot and a half wide. It extended far below the surface, branching repeatedly. Dante skidded to a stop. He yanked back a wedge of dirt, exposing the tunnel and forming a ramp down to it. The Malish forces were almost within bowshot. Dante picked up a stone and dropped it down the hole. Move back, he said. Make it look like we're making our stand. They retreated to a thick stump, well removed from the hole, and drew swords. Dante made sure to flash his in the moonlight. The contingent of soldiers slowed, drawing weapons. A man on horseback trotted to the front ranks. Lay down your arms. Then what? Blaze called back. Your deaths will be fast. You call that a deal? We can take care of that ourselves. The man turned to his soldiers, barking commands. A line of troops marched forward, followed by a second. A priest walked behind them, light shining steadily from the point of his staff. A series of soft crackles whispered through the darkness. It sounded like fallen leaves rustled by the wind. But there was no wind. No leaves, either. The front line faltered as men strained their eyes into the night. What's that? A man yelled raggedly. Who's out there? The advance stopped. Claws crackled through the blanket of dried, flattened reeds. Shadows stretched across the prairie, impossibly thin and impossibly long, their numbers beyond count. Men screamed with the unique pitch of those who faced a swarm. Dante turned and ran across the plain, his feet still left shining prints on the ground, but after a few seconds, the light winked out completely. Another few seconds, and the screams stopped too. In case a priest had survived, they trudged on for another few miles before finally making camp. How did they do that? Blaze gestured back to the east, lighting up our footsteps. Dante smoothed out his blanket. It might have been a ward of some kind. Anyone who entered the storage room was marked by it, left a trail for them to follow. You don't sound too sure of that. Nether is messy and chaotic. Dante said. It mirrors life. Ether, though, 
is a reflection of the heavens, or maybe the cause of them. It's orderly, predictable. Now, think about what happened. Our footsteps were glowing, and when we tried to disturb them, it only made them glow brighter. You're forgetting a key point with this lecture, Blay said. I know nothing about anything. I wonder if the ether gets used to the shape of how things are. If you go on to disturb that shape, the ether might hold fast to that memory for a little while until it's adjusted to the new shape of things. An interesting lecture on the properties of the ether, but you know what would be even more useful? What's that? If you'd bothered to learn how to use it. I'd like to, Dante said. For some reason it's harder for me. Maybe it's not that hard. Maybe it's only hard compared to how easy it was for you to pick up the nether. Any other night, this might have kept Dante up for a while. After the day they'd had, he fell asleep immediately. They ran into no further problems on the way back to Colin. On the day the city came into view, it had been more than two weeks since they'd left Bressel. If the wandering bear clan, tasked with travelling to Narashtavik, was making all haste, they'd have the loon delivered to the sealed citadel in another two weeks. In the meantime, Dante, Blaze, and Naron would keep as quiet a profile as possible. While Dante tried the reborn shrine's library for more information, Blaze and Naron would take up honest work to earn enough money to keep them fed. Dante didn't have much hope of figuring out what Gladic had done when they'd tried to attack him in his temple, but there was one mystery he thought he could solve and the rune-inscribed bones the Malish priest had been creating gave him one more avenue to explore. Even if that terminated in a dead end, once he was in contact with Narashtavik, Nak, or one of the other scholars, might be able to help him. To his relief, the plateau on which Colin rested showed no large plumes of smoke nor invading armies. They made their way to the path up its side. They were filthy from the desert, but so were many of the farmers coming and going. As Dante neared the base of the switchbacks, a boy stared at him for three full seconds, then took off running up the road to the plateau. Blaze nodded after him. You see that? What about it? Dante said. He had the look of a tiny spy, Naren said. Are you expecting trouble? These days, Blaze chuckled, always. They had no money, and thus no reason to stop at any of the bakeries on the way up. Despite hiking steadily, by the time they got up top, they found the road forward blocked by a sizable group of men and women. Most wore colored ribbons around their elbows. Some leaned on wheels. Others had swords hanging from their belts. For a brief moment, Dante was heartened at the sight of so many people come to greet them on their return. As he was puzzling out how they'd heard about the defeat of the Malish, the colony's warriors drew their swords. Dante sighed. He'd been arrested far too often not to know it when he saw it. Chapter 10 the Marigan burned across its top floors. Bodies lay crumpled in the street. Swords clashed inside the building. 
Armed men poured inside the front doors, blades in hand. Strangers. In the education of the streets, sizing up a fight was one of the first things you learned. Only fools got in fights, they weren't likely to win. Strike that, only fools got in fights, they weren't overwhelmingly favoured to win. Fools and the desperate. The scene before her was beyond desperate. The smoke, the bodies. The animal in her wanted to rush in and start cutting throats, but the human in her, specifically the human that had been trained since age four to deal with life and death decisions on a daily basis, was telling her that if she stayed and fought, the only thing she'd win was a fresh grave. Twenty men stood out front, watching for any signs of resistance. Rorschach backed away, keeping her shoulder tight to the shadows. When she'd put a row of buildings between her and the Marigan, she turned to run. And stopped. She might not be able to turn the tide, but she could at least find out who was trying to burn them out of their home. Anger welling in her like blood from a fresh cut, she ducked into an alley, pressed herself to a wall, and slid into the shadows. The night streets brightened with stray streams of nether. She ran back toward the Marigan. Out front, four swordsmen dragged a man out the front door, kicking and screaming. The man's voice was warped with pain, but she recognized it as Dink's, a recent addition who'd been showing a lot more guts than brains. They hauled the boy to the street. He kicked up at one of his captors. A man drove a sword into Dink's shoulder. He writhed. Rosha could only watch as another man moved behind Dink's head, lifted a maul, and brought it down on the boy's forehead. The crunch made Rasha want to sit down. A silver mist rose from the blood pooling around Dink's body. She was wasting time. She ran toward the attackers. They were hooded, dressed plainly, but she doubted their swords would be so anonymous. Cloaks were cheap, good blades weren't. Besides, when people went out expecting a fight, they wanted to know they could trust the weapon they carried. Help! The voice speared through the crackle of flames and the shouts coming from the building. Gates! Help me! A scream of pain followed, echoing to Rasha's left. She broke away from the scene in front of the Marigan and dashed toward the sound of Gates' voice. In the alley running along the building's left flank, cloaked men trotted away into the night. The bodies were dark, but the blood running from Gates's wounds shined like silver lanterns. Still in the shadows, Rasha jogged up behind them in perfect silence. Five of them. Gates was trussed like a goat, slung over one man's shoulders. The other four carried swords. Not expecting any trouble, Rasha had left the bone sword at home. She had a good dagger on her, and another three knives, but she couldn't do knife work from inside the shadows. It was like trying to cut a stake with a stick. Things just sort of mushed up against each other. They walked briskly down the alley. Gates had gone motionless. She'd have to go visible. At five on one, her odds would be awful. Everything the streets had taught her told her to run. 
When you ran, you got away with your life. But that didn't mean you could live with the self you saved. She jogged up behind them, barely feeling the cobbles under her feet. She drew her dagger with her right hand and a thin-bladed knife with her left. Two men walked in front and two behind, the gates-bearer in their middle. The air smelled like smoke and ocean. She moved behind the man walking on the left rear, lifted her knife parallel to his neck, and lurched into that which was real. She jammed the knife into the swordsman's neck. He shrieked, gurgling, grasping at his wound. Rosha was on the next man while he was still turning towards the disturbance. Reflexively, he lifted his sword high. She leapt forward, driving her dagger in his gut, hugging him close so he'd have no leverage to swing. He collapsed against her, sword clanging to the pavement. Warm blood soaked her front. She swung behind him, putting his body between her and the other three men, and blinked back into the shadows. In that world, their eyes burned like stars. The fuck? One of the men in front stared at the gutted man, who Rorschach was still holding upright. Bean? What's happening? A second man moved toward Bean, grabbing his arm. You okay? Rasha reappeared. Her dagger took the man's throat. She shoved him aside and threw a knife at the man who'd been staring at Bean. It buried itself in his side. To Rasha's left, the soldier carrying Gates dumped his body to the ground and went for his sword. Her blade found his heart before he found his weapon. The man she'd thrown the knife in was the last one standing. He staggered away, eyes wide, waving his sword in front of him. What the hell are you? Vengeance, she said. She blinked out. He screamed at the top of his lungs. She moved behind him, stepped back into the world of flesh, and cut his throat. She ran to Gates. Lying in the alley, his chest rose and fell, but he was out cold. They were only three blocks from the Marigan. She had to work fast. Rorschach moved from body to body, turning out pockets. The alley stank of blood and feces. She supposed it had been too much to ask for a signed order from whoever had sent them, but other than a few iron and bronze coins, the attacker's pockets were empty. Not just of anything interesting, empty of anything. She checked their hands, ears, and necks. No rings on their hands or ears, but one of them had a slim iron chain around his neck, hidden beneath his shirt. On its end dangled an iron ring bearing a black stone. She snapped the chain and pocketed it. Despite the work her knives had just done, they felt a little flimsy. She undid two of the dead men's sword belts and strapped them around her waist. She scooped up Gates and used the wall to help her stand, legs straining. As soon as she'd shifted him over her shoulder, she tottered down the alley. Rosha was shiny with blood. So was Gates, and he was leaking steadily. The Order had an in-house physician, but he was out of the question now. They had a backup, too, but at that moment he'd be overwhelmed with other casualties. And the attack on the Marigan had been too organized. They might have people waiting to ambush any wounded who went for the physician's help. There was only one option. She was going to have to see Lady Vara, all the way outside the Pridegate.
Rasha struck southwest, keeping to the back alleys. Gates's limp body pressed her down with every step. She'd only just made it two blocks when footsteps rasped down the tight street. She ducked behind a jumble of wooden crates. Two members of the city watch jogged past, dressed in the black and silver of the station. When the noise of their boots faded, she cut off the hem of her shirt and Gates's sleeves, using them to bind the cuts on his arm, ribs, and hip. Done, she picked him back up. Lifting him took twice as much energy as it had the first time. She staggered along, block after block. After a mile, she hit the boulevard of Pavers, forty feet wide, completely exposed to the night. Detouring around it would take her a mile and a half out of her way. With gritted teeth, she waited for the pedestrian traffic to thin to nothing, then moved across the boulevard as fast as she could. In the shelter of an alley on the other side, she leaned against the wall. With a quiver, her thighs went out from under her. She slid to the ground, grabbing Gates's hair so his head wouldn't bang into anything on the way down. He inhaled with a start, his head jerked back. Let go! She clamped her hand over his mouth. Still your tongue before they find us and cut it out! Muffled by her hand, he said something that might have been Rorschach. Yep, she said. You've been hurt, Gates. I'm taking you to see a friend of mine, but you're heavy as shit. Can you walk? Gates tested his legs, faltering. Rorschach swooped a shoulder beneath his arm. Leaning on her heavily, he shuffled southwest with her. What happened? He murmured dreamily. You tell me. When I got to the Marigan, it was burning like a Falmax log, and a group of thugs was hauling you off. Thugs, he repeated. One minute, normal. The next, they were everywhere. Flames and swords. They were saying something. Something like... He gazed forward, head swaying as he walked, eyes as leaden as shadow-cut glass. Just as Rorschach was sure he'd forgotten what they were talking about, his chin jerked up. When the man steps too far, the brother must put him down. The hell does that mean? Don't know. Any idea who they were? No uniforms. Didn't recognize... He stumbled. Rorschach caught him, pulling him back to his feet. Save your strength. We've got a long way to go. Block by block, they advanced through the city. As they neared the Pride Gate, she squeezed his arm. Gates ahead. Time to play ale game, okay? Gates nodded weakly. As they neared, a soldier in black and silver moved to intercept them, his eyes fixed on Gates's bandages. What's got you out so late? Well, Rasha said, you see... Gates convulsed. Retching so convincingly, Rasha nearly did too. The guard scowled and backed off, waving a hand in front of his nose. Get him home. Rasha smiled tightly, agreed profusely, and hustled Gates through the exit. They soon came to a sturdy wooden house, its dark yard fenced with pine branches. Rasha hammered her fist on the front door. Wood scraped inside, the door flung open, revealing a woman as thickly built as a bull. 
Her short, slate-gray hair stuck from the sides of her head like a rogue dandelion. Her voice was hoarse with sleep. What kind of an arsehole dumps trash on my step in the middle of the night? Lady Vara, Rorschach said. It's Rorschach. My friend's hurt. I've got eyes. And you got three seconds before I slam the door on your nose. The Marigan's been attacked. We've got nowhere else to go. Boo-hoo. Rorschach bit back a curse. She motioned to the silhouettes of goats and sheep behind the fence. Come on, Vara. I've brought half your stock in off the streets. So you brought me one more wounded animal to save. She swore, grunted, and stepped aside. Get inside before the watch sees you. Inside, Vara lit a lamp. Gates had gone pale and shaky. Rorschach led him to the back room and helped him lie down. The boards were well scrubbed, but blood was the strongest ink there was. The room smelled like fur and manure. Vara entered, kneeled beside Gates, and unrolled a leather kit. The shiny metal tools inside looked like something between thieves' picks and a torturer's tools. You're a physician, Gates said. Vara took a slim pair of scissors from her kit. Bah! Bah? What is bah? Yes, she's a physician, Rasha said. Of animals. Animals? You're a butcher? Don't think so. With a deft swoop, Vara cut through the front of his shirt. But if you don't hold still, I may turn into one. She worked with the firm sureness of someone used to holding down thrashing ewes and calves, cleaning, stitching, and bandaging his wounds. Gates did some gasping and moaning, but to his credit he didn't scream once. When it was done, he lay panting on the floor. I owe you big. Roshos smacked Vara's solid shoulder, grinning at her. And our boss will owe you much bigger. The woman grunted, cleaning her tools on a grimy cloth. You mean to stay? Until he's recovered, if we can. Right now, though, I need to get back to the Marigan. I'll be back by dawn. Rasha! Gates sat up and grabbed the leg of her pants, delirious, bloody-handed. Don't leave me. You might not be the only one who got hurt. Besides, we have to learn more about who did this. He held fast to her pants, pleading, eyes bulging. Vara rolled her eyes, got a wax tube from her kit and trimmed off its end. As Gates babbled on, she dumped milky fluid down his throat. That'll snuff him like a candle, Vara said. Now, go see to your friends. Thanks again, Vara. If anyone shows up while I'm out, run and don't look back. Vara jerked her thumb at Gates, who'd rolled onto his back, drooling. What about him? You try to save him then, and you'll both die. Outside, Rorschach took off at a jog. A column of smoke rose from within the west side of the Pride Gate. To the east, the spire of the cathedral and the lump of the fortress watched over it all. She could smell the smoke from a mile away. 
Before leaving Varas, she'd changed into one of the woman's spare shirts and left the looted swords in the back room. Rorschach now looked like nothing more than an average lowlife drawn by the promise of a fiery spectacle. Outside the Marigan, the attackers had vanished. They'd been replaced by a squadron of the city guard. They stood calmly and watched the building burn, passing around flasks of liquor. When Rorschach couldn't stand it any longer, she walked toward the closest soldier. What's going on? The man gave her a glance that started out brief and quickly turned to lingering. Something wrong with your eyes? Someone set the flame to it. Aren't you going to try to put it out? What for? He spat in the street. The cockroaches are finally being burned out of their hole. It was a moment before Rasha was able to reply. Do you know who did this? Rival gang, I'd bet. But whoever it was, they deserve a feast. She had to walk away before her dagger found itself twitching from his jugular. She made a circuit around the building, eyes out for anyone wounded or any clues as to who had brought the Marigan to its ruin. There was nothing left but fluttering ash and drying blood. The Order had a protocol for an event like this. Get out, get safe, and keep your fool head down until you knew what was going on. In the morning, Gates looked pained and deathly pale, but he was lucid again. Vara's version of tea involved ten different weeds from her yard, and only a sprinkling of good Galadie's leaf. But that did nothing to stop Gates from gulping down half a pitcher of it. He sat at the table, looking unusually delicate within his bandages. Right now, everyone who made it out has scattered to the six winds. They're going to stay scattered until we know who hit us, and where we need to hit back. Rorschach took a sip of lukewarm tea. It was bitter, grassy. Where do we start? In a situation like this, you always start with the most likely culprit. In this case... That's the sealed citadel. For the theft of the Gerolic collection? I can buy that. What I can't buy is that they'd come for us wearing plain cloaks. Why not? It would be easier to sneak up on us that way than to march out in the black and silver. Yeah, but when the citadel rolls in like that, it's to do more than crack a few skulls. They're there to send the message that if you step out of line, they'll use your guts to fertilize their crops. If it had been the Citadel, as soon as they made their attack, they would have shed their cloaks to show their colours. But when I went back last night, they had no idea who'd made the attack. Unless that was a cunning trick to avoid retaliation, Gates frowned. But that would have made them look afraid of us. Let's say you're right. Who else could it have been? I don't know. The rival gang? Or maybe the nobles we've been robbing took up a collection to hire someone to get back their goods. Whatever it is, I picked up a few things that might point us in the right direction. As Gates's eyebrows attempted to take flight, she went to the other room and picked up the last night's harvest. Back in the main room, she clunked the two swords down on the table, following this with the small clink of the black ring. Pulled these off the guys who were trying to haul you away.
she said. What do you think? His gaze shifted between the swords and the ring. He picked up the ring, holding it up to the light. Do you recognize this? No. Should I? I don't either. I'll send you to Telly, our jewelry man. He knows every gem cutter and sigil in the city. If anyone can identify the owner, it'll be him. Wincing, he set down the ring, picked up a sword, and drew it. Rather plain. What were you hoping to do with this? Figure out who made it. Worth a shot. For some projects, we've used a smith named Farben. He might know something about the sword's make. I've got my own guy, Roshos stood. No sense wasting time. Sit tight while I run these down. Before she left, Gates penned a quick letter to Telly, folding it once. Roshaw tucked it in her pocket, rolled the swords in one of Vara's spare blankets, and exited. It was a warm summer morning, and the air smelled like the purple blooms of the gannet trees growing on every boulevard. To Roshaw, it still smelled like smoke, blood, and steel. Telly, the jeweler, was on the way to Benner's. His was a small shop tucked into a quiet corner of the Emerald District. Telly was silver-haired, with a small pointed moustache and eyebrows like inverted V's. He glanced over the letter Rasha brought him, then looked up at her. Gates all right. You heard about what happened to the Marigan? Way well, I heard it. Everyone who was there is currently at rest in the carnitarium. If you could trust rumour, every single one of us would be rich, dead, or pregnant. True enough. Telly laid a black velvet cloth on his counter. Let's have a look at it. Rasha gave him the ring. He held it up to the light, shining it back and forth, then produced a bulging glass lens affixed to a brass handle. Holding the lens over the ring, he muttered to himself, then set down the lens for another look with his bare eyes. Eventually, he shook his head. Don't recognize it. Seen anything like it? Yes. I've seen dark stone embedded in black iron before. As for the cut of the gem or the scroll work on the shank here, never. She swore under her breath. Do you know any organizations that use rings similar to this? None. Telly rolled the ring around his palm. Like me to keep this for you? Ask around. I'll see what I can turn up on my own. Thanks for your help. She pocketed the ring and headed to the sharps. Benner was in back in his forge, banging away on a glowing rod. Seeing her, he held up a finger and motioned her back out front. A few minutes later, the clanging stopped, he entered the front room, shirtless and sweating. You again, he said. What do you need this time? A dagger without a blade? Or maybe I can interest you in a helmet without a crown. Can you tell who made these? She set the bundle on the counter and swept away the blanket. Doubt it. Can I pay you to try? Benner curled his lip. These swords have about as much artistry in them as a privy. Could have been forged anywhere. But if you don't mind tossing your money down a well, I'm happy to take it from you.
he picked up one of the swords. He gave a detached, bored once over to the scabbard, then unsheathed the blade with a whisper of leather. His eyes roved down the blade, which was straight and double-edged, and not especially long, short, wide, or thin. When his gaze reached the crossguard, he stopped cold. He turned the sword over, then set it down and unsheathed the other, examining its crossguard with a keen eye. He laughed through his nose. What have you got? Roshaw said. Grasping the hilt, he extended the sword, indicating its guard. See that? She leaned in. The guard was your typical two prongs of steel, bent slightly upward, away from the bearer. Functional and unadorned. But where it crossed above the hilt, the shiny metal was marred with a small black stain. It was vaguely heart-shaped, but one lobe was larger than the other. See what? she said. That stain? Benna nodded. Know what it is? The mark of the group that uses these? If it was official, it'd be tidier. No, I think it's a signature. Of who? The smith? Rasha said. Brenner nodded. Rasha tipped back her head. You guys sign your weapons? Every artist puts their name on their work somewhere. Painters, potters, even stonemasons got a signature. They lay one specific stone upside down, say. Weaponsmith's got one, too. Some small deliberate imperfection that marks it as yours. Nothing that weakens the weapon in any way, mind you. Just something to put your stamp on it. So every smith's signature is unique. Do you recognize this one? Not offhand. Brenner smiled toothily. But if you make it worth my while, I can find out. She haggled out a price leaving him with one of the swords and taking the other with her. By then, the sun stood directly overhead. Hard to believe it had only been half a day since the burning of the Marigan. She touched the hilt of the sword she'd taken from Gates's attackers. Felt wrong to be wearing it, like marrying your cousin's killer. But if she could use it to take them down... Like Gates had said, the Order of the Alley was now homeless adrift on the six winds. But Caravan hadn't structured the institution to be so fragile that it could be torn down in one night of terror. Itching for intel, Rorschach headed for the One-Eyed Frog, a pierside tavern designated for use by the Order if their members ever lost a central location. Beyond the frog, women slogged through the mud on the edge of the bay, digging clams and barbel shells whose meat was highly prized, but which Rasha had always thought looked like enormous grey phalluses. She stepped inside the tavern. Compared to the dazzle of the streets and the sea, the interior was as black as a tomb. Someone grabbed her right arm. Her left hand darted for her dagger. Rasha? The voice was Jenkers. Order muscle. Keep your calm. He guided her to a back room and knocked a code into the closed door. It swung open, revealing three more order grunts. 
Inside, Ackley sat at a table, accompanied by a large jug of wine. He was the logistician, a lieutenant same as Gates. Russia. He kicked out a chair. Figured you'd be too slippery for the bastards. She seated herself. Janka poured her a glass of wine. It was light and summery and tasted like apples. Does anyone know who said bastards are? That remains a matter of high speculation. But I know this much about them. They're walking dead men. Are we in shape to hit them back? Ackley drained his mug. We lost the Marigan. And a lot of good people. But most of us weren't there last night. Most of those who were ran off as soon as they saw it was hopeless. Yet right now, it looks like we're utterly smashed, right? Good. That's exactly what we want them to think. Hearing this soothed Rasha better than any wine could. What about Caravan? No one knows. He's the boss, Ackley. How can no one know if he's alive or dead? Because if he's dead, he can't talk. And if he's alive, he might want his enemies to think he's dead. I've got Gates. She finished her wine. And a lead on who did this. And soon as I know, you will too. I can't wait. He gave her an appreciative but confused smile. How did it take them this long to start putting you to use? On her way back to Vara's, Rasha took the scenic route, dropping into every pub she passed. Not to drink, though that was certainly a welcome secondary benefit, but to soak up the gossip. As she hopped from tavern to tavern, discussing the possible identity of the attackers, she heard every possibility she'd floated to Gates, along with several she hadn't, including the idea it had been a civilian mob come to flush the scum out of the neighborhood. At Vara's, Gates was asleep. The stout woman came in from tending her goats. How's he doing? Rasha said. He'll be weak for a while, Vara said. But unless infection takes him, he'll come away with no worse than a few scars. She watched Rasha. Who is he? Your bed warmer? I don't think I'm his type. What? Young and pretty? Female. Vara took a moment, then laughed. I've had rams like that. Don't have eyes for anything but each other. I don't understand it, but they seem happy enough. As soon as Gates fell asleep that night, Rorschach walked across town to her new house. It showed no sign of having been disturbed. The bone sword was still where she'd hidden it on top of a rafter in the attic. She greased it down with steel black, got one of her nicest dresses, and went back to Vara's. In the morning, she put on her dress and dropped by Brenner's. She'd expected he'd need more time to get her to task, but as soon as she came in, he locked the door behind her. Found your signature, he said. It's Gorson's work. His shop's over on Pennymore. How long would it take you to forge fifty of these? Me? A month. But Gorson's got a full house of apprentices. 
He could bang out fifty of these inside a week. She thanked him and tossed him a small but weighty purse. She hoofed it across the city. Gosson's shop was at the edge of the heights, a ritzy neighborhood on a hill inside the ingate. Racks of weapons adorned the walls. Gawson was well into middle age, but like most blacksmiths, he looked capable of wrestling down a bear. Roshaw smiled and leaned over his counter. It's so good to meet you. My friend recently had a sword made by you, and I just think it's so elegant. I'd love to commission one for my husband's birthday. She laid the sword on the counter. Gawson unsheathed it, giving it a long once-over. Sorry, ma'am, but I didn't make this. She frowned uncertainly. You're sure? I'd swear he gave me your name. Looks like fine work. I'd love to claim it. What was your friend's name? Perhaps I can find out who made it for him. Gattigan. She took back the sword. But I'm sure he had one of his servants handle this. I'll have to ask who. She gave the smith her brightest smile. On her way to the door, a well-dressed man strode inside. Rosha paused to admire a rack of swords on the side of the room. Gawson took down the man's order for a new saber, writing it on a greasy sheet of paper. She killed the rest of the day, going from pub to pub. She was sorely tempted to check in on her rescues, but now wasn't the time to risk being seen with them. Long after sundown, when even the sharps had gone quiet, she returned to Gawson's shop. The windows were dark. The front walls were wood. No walking through those. But the forges in the back required fireproof housing. She cut down the alley behind the shop, stepped into the shadows, and walked through the wall. She was afraid the apprentices would have rooms in the back, but the building was deserted. She located Gawson's office, rifling through his drawers. Two of them were locked. She had the first sprung in two minutes. It was full of jewels, presumably for prettying up pommels and crossguards. The second drawer held his ledgers. They were sorted in order of date received. She paged backwards. About half were in the same writing, Gawson's presumably, while the others had been made out by the buyer. Almost all were for single orders or matched sets for a handful of guards. The commission for forty-two blades was as obvious as a full moon, dated sixteen days ago, right after the order's seven days spree through the richest houses in the city. The order had been made by one Halladen. It wasn't written in Gawson's hand. She folded it into her pocket, closed the drawer, and jimmied the lock shut. By the time she got back to Vara's, it was three in the morning. She entered as quietly as she could, but a candle lit as soon as she closed the door behind her. Gase, she scowled at him. You should be asleep. So should you. He limped toward her which means you must be up to something interesting. I found the smith who made the matched blades. Gates took it from her, scanning rapidly. 
His eyes darted up, the liveliest they'd been since the attack. Who wrote this? The smith? Rasha shook her head. The buyer. But there's no way he was stupid enough to use his real name. I'm sure he didn't. Gates grinned and smacked his index finger into the middle of the page. But it looks like he was stupid enough to use his real handwriting. How does that help us? There must be a hundred thousand people in this city. But less than a tenth of them can read. And of those, our master of forgery knows everyone worth knowing. He insisted on delivering the paper to Ackley then and there. Rasha didn't get to bed until dawn. The next day was dead quiet. The day after that was the same. Unable to hold still, Rasha took the black ring around to three other jewelers, but none could identify it. Back at the house, Gates and Vara were arguing so loudly Rasha could hear it from the street. As she walked inside, Vara was in the process of tearing Gates's shirt off his chest. Vara! Rasha yelled. What the hell are you doing? This fool you call a friend spent all day running around town. Vara jerked her chin at his ribs, which were trickling blood into their bandages. Popped half his stitches. Then you'll have to redo them, assuming you can find time away from milking your goats. He swung toward Rasha. Rasha, I've got word from the order. We know who paid for the swords. She grinned viciously. Who was it? Not my place to say. Caravan wants to tell you himself. He's alive. He's ready to strike back. And he wants you to be his blade. Chapter 11 Dante stood with his back to the edge of the plateau. Thirty people stared him down, most of them bearing swords or the deadly wheels. That's them, Ked said. That's them! Beside him, Cord nodded, well-toned arms folded. I remember the face of everyone who's bested me. Blaze rolled his eyes. Do you duel every traveller who comes to Colin? Ked spat. Are you travellers or malish spies? Definitely travellers. Is that why you spent the last week parlaying with your running dog masters? This is ridiculous, Dante said. Get out of our way. We don't have to answer you. But you'll want to. A gravelly-voiced man stepped forward. He was at least sixty, but he had the jaw of a bulldog, and if you were to attach his head to a mill wheel, his bald pate looked capable of grinding flour. He wore trousers and a vest the color of dust. Come with me, and don't try any of your tricks. A man and a woman stepped to either side of him. They wore pale yellow robes trimmed with red thread. Each carried a dirk, which they placed against Dante's spine. Naren let his hand hang near the hilt of his saber. What's the nature of this inquiry? The bulldog-jawed man stared him down. It's no inquiry. It's a trial. To find out how bad you sold us out to the malice. Sold you out? Blaze laughed. We're on the same side. <laughs> 
Shao Yu say. I tell you to go ask the Malish soldiers, but when we left them, they were being devoured alive by giant spiders. The grey-clothed constable held up a meaty palm. Enough. Save your breath for the trial. Keeping one eye on the dirk-wielding monks, Dante glanced at Blaze. The two of them had been in similar situations often enough that verbal communication was no longer necessary. At the moment, Blaze's face was saying two things. First, that he didn't like where this was headed, and second, that he would much prefer to extricate themselves without any whirlwinds of limbs and viscera. Will we be allowed to speak in our defence? Dante said. The older man glowered. Course you will. This ain't Bressel. And will we be allowed to call witnesses on our behalf? What did I just tell you? King Charles and his ghouls will march you up to the noose the second they've tortured the answers they want from you. But Collins are free land. If you're charged with a crime, you get to speak. How else can the gods hear you? I'm glad to hear your land is so enlightened. In that case, I'll need Hod, a monk of the Reborn Shrine, to be at this trial. The bulldog-jawed man smiled humorlessly. Don't you worry. He's one of your chief accusers. He ordered the ribboned warriors to disarm the prisoners. Blaze unbuckled his belt and turned over his swords. Be careful with these. If they go missing, the crimes I committed in response will have us tied up in trials for the next ten years. He continued the lengthy process of turning out his many knives. Dante passed over his sword. Its fine steel was worth a year's wages. Not for the first time since getting dragged away from the north. He was glad he'd left the bone sword behind. He felt no strong connection to his current weapon. Yet, as he passed it over to the ribboned warriors, frustration bubbled in his veins. If these had been Malish troops arresting him, he would have simply blasted them into a rapidly expanding red hemisphere. But these were coloners. Their story wasn't so different from Narashtovic's. Even the enemy was the same. Narashtovic's ending had been happy, but he feared Colin's story would someday end on a far darker note. He had no wish to contribute further tragedy to their tale. In all of Dante's travels, jails had taken one of two forms, towers and dungeons. In Colin, the jail was located beneath a squat basalt building outside the keep. The cells had been carved right out of the rock. The doors were the iron grills commonly seen in such places. The bulldog-jawed man, whose name was Den, motioned them inside a single cell and locked the door. Blaze swiveled his head, taking in their surroundings. I have to say, this is the least musty dungeon I've ever been in. But would it have killed you to give us separate cells? Won't be here for long, Den grumbled. Sides. It's your right as accused to be able to speak freely with each other. How are you going to do that from different cells? He trudged away. So, Blay said, as soon as the constable's footsteps faded. Ready for our dashing escape? We're not escaping, Dante said. 
I assumed we only let them capture us so we could get out of this without bloodshed, and that our next step would be to reclaim our well-deserved freedom. I don't think that's necessary. You know why I'm going to win this argument, then? Because in a few days you're going to be too busy strangling in a noose to debate me. We already saved Colin from whatever the Malish were planning with the Chardon. Why not tunnel us out of here? Because we need to tell these people about their true history. Anyway, we're not going to get hanged. I know a way to prove we're not in league with Malin. How do you intend to do that? Naren said. Charges of treason are as pernicious as heresy. For most lawmen, suspicion is proof enough. We'll start by telling them the truth about why we're here. Blaze frowned. I thought we were keeping that as secret as the King's syphilis. If Malin gets word of our involvement here, their eyes will turn to Narashtavik. They won't be able to harm Narashtavik until they've dealt with Colin. Dante seated himself on a stone bench along one wall. Colin needs to know what they're up against. That's the only way they can defend themselves. But we don't even know what they're up against. I thought we'd agreed not to get involved here. We're not. Once they cut us loose, my only goal is to figure out how to kill Gladick. If the answers aren't here, we'll travel back to Bressel. Things will have quieted down since we left, and by the time we get there, our loon will be in Narashtavik, where I'll have access to the complete wisdom of the Citadel. Blaze continued to argue, but they'd hardly spoken for another minute before a door creaked and footsteps thumped down the tight stone corridor. Den moved in front of the doors, flanked by his two yellow-robed monks. Move your asses, he said. Time for your trial. Naren stood, brushing off his pants. This is rather hasty. Every man deserves a fast trial. Would you rather rot in here? Den marched them upstairs and outside, where a squadron of colorfully ribboned warriors awaited to escort them. Dante expected to be taken to the reborn shrine, which seemed the natural location for the handing down of divine judgment, but their destination turned out to be a clearing on the north end of the city known as Justice Falls. The ground was naked stone. It had once been ringed by a semicircle of twelve-foot stone blocks, but many of these had toppled and cracked. Two winding grooves ran from the middle of the ring to the edge of the cliffs. Den ordered Dante, Blaze, and Naren to stand between the two grooves. A warm wind buffeted their faces. Den strode back to the standing stones. Ked, Cord, Hod, and several other familiar faces were assembled to either side of him. An announcement of the trial must have gone out during their brief stay in the dungeons. Two hundred strangers stood outside the ring of standing stones. Bring out the waters, Den called roughly, and let justice water the desert. Two small carts rumbled forth, pushed by pairs of apprentice monks. The carts each held a large barrel. The vehicles came to a stop at the edge of the grooves. The two monks, who'd helped take them prisoner, walked forth solemnly, kneeled beside the barrels, and flipped open their spigots. Water splashed into the grooves and ran toward the cliff's edge, where Dante stood. Doucette, 
he blinked. The sign of our own. Blaze nodded at the coroners watching them. If they've got a Ron on their side, is it too late to buddy up with Tame? The waters flowed past them and began the long fall down the cliffs. Den gestured toward the three accused. These three are said to be malice spies and conspirators. Make your case. Hang on there, Blaze yelled back. Aren't you going to tell us how this process works? What's there to tell? The justice will describe your crimes. You'll be allowed to state your defense if you have any. And at the end... Den motioned sweepingly to the crowd. This fine lot will judge your guilt. Trial by mob? That's no mob. That's democracy. I have to admit it sounds more fair than wetton, Blaze muttered. Den gestured to the group of witnesses. A squat man strolled forth, his face laced with scars. Muscles bulged beneath his short sleeves. He stopped twenty feet from Dante, turning to regard the audience. Den has already stated the crime before us. The man looked like a slab of beef brisket, but his voice was as sonorous as the tropical doves they'd seen in the plagued islands. My name is Bond, and it's my task to prove these crimes are real. I'll let you in on a secret. It's going to be the easiest job I've ever had. The ad hoc jury tittered. Bond considered them a moment before continuing. The first matter needs no explanation. This man, Andrew Wellborn, is clearly malish. He gestured to Dante. Wellborn was the name Dante had provided them to preserve his identity. Too late, it occurred to Dante that he'd taken on the most malish name possible. Bond gave the crowd a moment to inspect Dante for themselves, then went on. The hair, the eyes, the nose and skin, and the angle of the cheeks. These are all the same things we see when armies march forth from Bressel. How do you answer this, Mr. Wellborn? I was born in Malin, Dante said, but I renounced my loyalty to it over a decade ago. So you don't deny your malice? Some of the crowd chuckled. The justice tucked his hands behind his back and strolled closer to the accused. This isn't a crime in itself, but you came here mere days after a significant arrival of Malish troops, and when you came to Colin, what was the first thing you did? Stumbled into a group of coloners being attacked by Malish soldiers. When I saw one of your citizens was mortally wounded, I went to help him. You're speaking of Ked Danza. The justice gestured to the witnesses. Ked stepped forward, nodding to the crowd. The justice folded his hands in front of him. Who was Ked wounded by? As you've said, Malish soldiers. Hence you took his death right away. An act of ignorance? Perhaps. Or perhaps it was a deliberate insult. Only the Malish would be so cruel as to steal a man's death right. 
This provoked a great deal of dark looks and muttered oaths from the expansive jury. Bond gave them little time to settle down before continuing on, pacing between the two streams of water, careful not to step in either. Hard of the Reborn Shrine, he called. The young monk stepped forward from the cluster of witnesses. Yes, Justice Bond. You told Den that Mr. Wellborn came to the Reborn Shrine in search of information. Precisely what was he looking for? Well, Hod stared fixedly past the Justice's ear. He was looking for books? Books concerning which subjects? The young monk's olive cheeks flushed red. Concerning demons, Aron, Nethermancy. When I told him the shrine contained no such blasphemy, he continued to look for it in other works, legends and histories. Dante's blood ran cool. The earlier charges struck him as ridiculous, but to an outsider, his interest in reading material would sound troubling, if not outright dangerous. To most people, an interest in dark topics was profound proof of a dark mind. The justice nodded slowly, as if absorbing Hod's answer. Do you know why he had such interest in band works? He said he was a Galadese monk devoted to Carvajal. Hod lowered his head, but I thought that was strange. If he wanted to know more about Aron's workings, why not go to Norashtevik? Why travel all the way to Colin? A fair question. Do you have an alternate theory for why Mr. Wellborn came to your shrine? I, ah... Uh, I thought it might be a trap, a way to find out if our order was still harboring heresy. That would be a cunning way for Malin to justify further arrests or occupation. The justice raised his eyebrows to the crowd. Even so, you might be inclined to dismiss it as the occult interests of an eccentric monk, except that the men before you have spent the last week parlaying with malish troops. This provoked a score of angry curses. Dante uttered one of his own and took a step forward. If we were malish spies, you'd think we'd be a little more careful to cover up our meetings with our contacts. The real explanation for our activities is more complicated, but it has the virtue of being true. Your bevy of accusations are nothing but circumstantial, which may be why you have to rely on so many of them to convince your jury. Circumstantial? Justice Bond smiled grimly. I don't disagree. I was merely laying the foundation for this. He reached into his vest and produced several sheets of folded parchment. He unfolded them, completely unhurried. This is a letter we intercepted three days ago. It's signed by Gladick, Orden of Bressel. It's addressed to Baldron, Spalder of Bressel, commander of the incursion that's made camp many miles to our northeast. 
the justice cleared his throat and read, his sweet voice carrying through the outdoor court like a travelling bard, earning his keep in an inn. The letter alerted Baldron to be on the lookout for three men who had been dispatched there to assist him in restoring order to the rebellious province. Though Gladick used no names, he described Dante, Blaze, and Naren in meticulous detail. Finished, the justice lowered the letter. He gazed sadly across the mob jury. Tell me the men described in this letter are not the men you see before you. I beg you, else every one of us will end the day with blood on our hands. There was a brief silence, the intake of breath before a shout. The crowd erupted. Hang them! Boot them from the cliff! Kill the traitors! Blaze leaned close to Dante. We may be new to this place, but I know a bloodthirsty mob when I see one. Got a way out of this? Yes and no. Dante peered down the edge of the butte. They were two hundred feet above the plains below, separated from it by sheer cliffs and murderously steep piles of broken rock. I can get us down from here, but if they pursue us on horseback, I don't know how we'll get away. If you don't get us down there, I suspect these people will lend us a hand in doing so, or more accurately, a boot in the arse. Dante nodded. He had no knives, so he was forced to bite the inside of his cheek to draw blood. While they'd been speaking, Den had resumed oversight of the trial. Find them innocent! Den called to the crowd. No one made a peep. Dante sucked the nether to him and plunged it into the earth beneath his feet. And who among you say they are guilty? Den said. Aye! The mass jury roared as one. Then let the gods hear what their people have decided. Den motioned to the contingent of warriors who'd been observing from behind him. They advanced through the standing stones, gripping their wheels near the weighted base, spear tips held before them. Dante began to shape a long, smooth ramp down the cliff face, its outer edges curled up to prevent them from flying over the side as they slid down. Stop! Despite the imperative, the voice delivering it was hesitant. Hod wandered into the clearing of stone, arms held stiffly to his sides, as if he were stepping out onto a ledge and terrified he'd lose his balance. Den jogged toward him, his tan face going red. Clear out before you get hurt. But I know who these men are. Hod shrank on himself as three hundred pairs of eyes locked on him. Throat working, he forced himself to stand taller. They are not malice spies. What are you blathering about? Den said. Haven't you been listening to the justice? Very closely. When he read the Ordon's letter, it jogged something loose in my mind. I've heard two of these men described elsewhere. He turned his back on the crowd and brushed past the halted warriors coming to stand across from Dante, eyes darting nervously. You're him, aren't you? Dante licked his dry lips. To keep his city clear of any conflict brewing between Malin and Colin, he'd done his damnedest to preserve the secret of his identity. Exposing himself now 
might save his life, and expose his city to war. He shook his head. My name is Andrew Wellborn, once of Malin, now of Galador. Hod lifted an accusatory finger, eyes sparking with the first anger Dante had seen in him. You lie! You're Dante Galand, high priest of Narashtovic! The gathered people, including the stalwart warriors, burst into confused babble. A few sounded like they were choking. Others laughed in disbelief. Dan's face was now so red it resembled a freshly laundered Gascon military uniform. Is this true? No sense denying it, Blaze said. If you do, rumor will spread the story twice as fast as the truth. God's right. Dante lifted his voice and gazed across the crowds. My name is Dante Galan. I was born in Malin. But if you think I'd help my former country subjugate your people, then you don't know a god's damn thing about me. Dante Galand. Den chuckled, sobering rapidly. If that's true, then what in the twelve hells are you doing in Colin? Justice Bond began to recover his former confidence, striding about the bare stone. And why are you here in disguise? Infiltrating our city under a false name. Just what are you hiding, sir? I can answer all these questions, Dante said, but I'll need two things. He beckoned to Hod. I need a book from the Reborn Shrine, an account of the Third War with Almers by... Flinders, Hod finished. Ah, uh, yes, yes, of course. Next, we have to go down to the plains... What I have to show you can't be found up here. Den threw his hands in the air. We can't leave Justice Falls in the middle of a trial. This ain't how it's done. Are you that intent on punishing us? Or do you want to learn why we're really here? And why Malin first declared war on you a thousand years ago? We know that front and back. During the blights, our ancestors fed nether to the crops... But rather than growing the plants tall, it killed them dead. When our people turned to taking from Malish lands in order to survive, the Malish declared war. Wrong, Dante said. But if that's what you prefer to believe, then you can go on dishonoring your ancestors for another thousand years. The justice's eyebrows jumped up his scarred forehead. Then... The gods know there's a time for tradition and a time to break it. This here, this is one of the latter times. Den looked like he didn't know whether to sigh, spit, or swear. He fixed Dante with an exasperated look. Where are you intending to take us, my lord? Dante didn't let the sarcasm embedded in the last word register. Right outside the lower city. Anywhere that hasn't been farmed recently should do. Right then. The sooner we get there, the sooner this day will start to make sense again. Den hollered orders to all sides. The warriors formed a loose ring around Dante, Naren, and Blaze, escorting them from the so-called Justice Falls. The mob followed after them at a safe distance. Hod scampered off to the shrine in search of the book. As they crossed the city, 
Cord made her way to Blaze. If he's Dante Galland, does that make you Blaze Buckler? That's right, Blaze said. Heard of me, have you? The Blaze Buckler I've heard of has never lost a fight. She beamed. So, it sounds like it's time for the bards to start singing the Chronicles of Cord Wheeler. Don't get ahead of yourself, Dante said. Blaze has lost dozens of fights. Blaze brushed dust from his shoulder. And I'm still here, aren't I? That's far more impressive than never having lost. A steady stream of civilians came out to ask the mob what was happening. Most of the newcomers wound up joining the proceedings. Dan barked various commands, which Dante followed without defiance. They descended the switchbacks, crossed through the lower settlement, and walked into the open yellow plain. A few hundred feet away from the last of the flat-roofed houses, Den called for a halt. The warriors backed away from Dante, but maintained the ring around the outsiders. Will this place work for you, my lord? Dan said. I expect so. Dante kneeled in the dust. I'm going to summon the Nether. No tricks. I swear on my life and my city. Den gestured subtly to his warriors, who held their weapons in hand, including throwing spears and knocked bows. Dante bit his cheek again, wincing, and called to the shadows. He sank them into the ground. The crumbly, grey dirt leveled, becoming as flat as a summer lake, then began to drain away. People gasped. He heard his name whispered among the crowd as doubters became believers. As a teenager, Dante had yearned for such recognition, dreamed of it. But that need had begun to fade as soon as he joined the council. His work had soon become all the accomplishment he needed. Even so, he twisted the nether in the earth, making it swirl away in pretty patterns that served no purpose other than to bewitch the crowd. The hole lowered further, revealing branches. Matted grass, flattened shrubs, the long-dead foliage was as grey as the soil around it. Dante stood. Do you see this? The tolts! Den's voice squeaked with incredulity. They're everywhere, created during the blights. Since those black days, nothing's grown that hasn't been right next to a canal. That's what your histories say. Dante pointed into the distance. The mountains to your northeast, what are they called? The Horned Mountains. What of it? How high would you say they are? How would I know that? Should I ask the ravens? Take a guess. One mile? Two? Den shrugged broadly. An old man with a scraggly white beard and sun-creased skin stepped from the jury mob. Sawn Pass is three thousand feet. The big peaks, like Huck and Franken, ten thousand. Den turned on him. How do you know that? The man folded his arms proudly. Took my measures up there thirty years back. The mercury grows the closer you bring it to the ether. Tells you right how tall's the piece of earth you're standing on. Dante gazed at the blue blur of the range. So we'd all agree they're mountains, 
big ones. Is this how you win arguments in Narashtovic? Bond said. State the obvious until no one can stand to listen any longer. I think the northern snows have frozen your skulls solid. Where is Hod? Here, sir. Hod waved his hand from within the crowd. I mean, my lord. I'm not your lord, Dante said. Did you find the book? Excuse me, Hod said to those around him. Excuse me? A path opened. He wedged through it, approaching Dante and holding out the book. Dante flipped through the pages of Flinders' chronicle of the wars between the early Colin Basin and the long-dead kingdom of Almers. His eyes snagged on a paragraph in the middle of a section describing the terms of the alliance between Colin and Collodi, an independent city that had once existed to the east. He passed the book to Hod, tapping the relevant paragraph. This section, if you would. Ahem. Hod supported the tome in both hands and read aloud. Collodi sat almost three hundred miles from Colin on the other side of the Horned Hills. The distance was far, but it was made lesser by that of the River Common, which had long united the two lands through trade. For Collodi's aid in the war, Colin promised it a colony in Almers, and so Collodi was convinced to trade its fine armors. The first Collodians made for Colin, entering the hills with their great wains. But the Almerians awaited them in the valley of the River Common and rushed from the forest beside the road, destroying them. Dante nodded, retaking the book. Horned Hills I imagine the scholars dismiss this as a slip by Flinders, or the fault of whichever monk copied the original text. But he also describes the Collodians as passing through the hills via a valley that no longer exists, and that the two lands shared a river that also no longer exists. Scholars might dismiss this as a mistake on Flinders' part. After all, he was writing two centuries after these wars were over. Perhaps he simply got it wrong. Dante turned his head slowly, meeting the attentive gazes of the crowd. Or perhaps he's referring to facts that have long been forgotten. This have a point, Dan said. What's the war with Almers have to do with Mellon? I'm getting to that. But first, I have to divert to Narashtivik. A thousand years ago, the ancestors of my people had been pushed to the brink of destruction by their mortal enemies. In desperation, my people sought to raise a range of mountains between them and their enemies. But they were far more successful than they intended. The mountains they summoned were colossal. In Narashtivik, the existing mountains became the Wodens, the largest range I've ever seen, and I believe they extended much further than the north. From what I've discovered, they reached all the way to Colin, and transformed the Horned Hills into the Horned Mountains. Oh, bullshit! Mountains don't just sprout from the ground like a forest! Dante gestured to the hole he'd sunk into the ground. You've seen with your own eyes what I'm capable of. Now imagine a full order of Nethermancers bent to the same task, 
and in possession of an artifact of divine power. Den's expression softened slightly. Even if the hills became mountains, so what? This land was once verdant. There were even forests. The evidence is right under your feet. It wasn't your greedy nethermancers who ruined the land. It was the mountains that took away your rains. The silence that ensued was as stark as the desert around them. Den looked like a child seeing the sea for the first time. Most of the warriors appeared guarded, but some of the citizens' faces had gone stormy. Naren looked almost as gobsmacked as the locals. The battle-scarred justice was the first to recover. How could our people have forgotten such a drastic change? It was a thousand years ago, Blay said. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. Dante gazed at the desiccated branches and grass exposed in the pit. My best guess. You forgot because the Malish wanted you to. During the first wars with Colin, back in Bressel, the Ethermancers of Tame threw out the Nethermancers of Oron. Here they saw the opportunity to net two fish with one swoop, blame the Nether for the disaster that befell Colin, and blame the Coloners for using it. And hence the war that followed, Bond mused. When Malern invaded, they burned your histories and killed everyone who denied their version of the story. The truth isn't like the stars, burning forever beyond our grasp. It's as mortal as the people who carry it. Den's jaw worked like he was actually chewing on these ideas. You said Narastovics to blame for the raising of the hornets. Sounds like we ought to be enemies. If you want, Dante said, but I think our lands have much in common, including frequent clashes with Malin. Far from being Malish spies, we came here to curtail their ability to wage war on others. How do you intend to stop them from that? Telling you that would compromise our ability to get it done. Might convenient. Even more conveniently, it's true. So, Blaze said, are you guys going to execute us or what? Den and the Justice exchanged a look. Den tugged at his vest. We'll have to consider that. In the meantime, it's back to the jails with you. Nonsense! I thought that was the mob's decision. Blaze crossed the crunchy dirt toward the audience. So, what do you say, mob? Still want to pitch us off a cliff? Nay, a woman said. Her declaration was echoed by the man next to her. Then it poured forth from the throat of every witness, a river of sound in the stillness of the desert. Half-dazed, the three of them returned to the butte-top inn where they'd stayed prior to their destruction of the Chardon. They climbed the steps to their room and flopped in the chairs there, grateful to be out of the sun and away from the crowds. Well, that wasn't so bad, Blaise said. Dante eyed him. Wasn't so bad. They almost executed us as spies. That's not what happened at all. They 
almost got cut into thousands of fluttery little bits to be thrown behind us like confetti as we galloped away from Colin as fast as our legs could carry us. That might not be such a bad idea. Killing a mob? Has all the sunshine boiled your brain? Leaving Colin. We've convinced them we're not spies, but we added ourselves in the process. It might be best to get out of here before word gets back to Gladig. Naren shifted on his chair. What do you propose? We can hole up in Averoy with the rest of your crew. Once we're in contact with Norashtovic and have a handle on how to deal with the Star Eaters, we'll return to Bressel and take down Gladig. One small problem, Blay said. We're out of food, as well as the money to buy food. We can forage on the way. Forage? On our way through Colin? I hope you like roast lizard with a seasoning of sand. Blaze produced one of his knives, which had been returned to him following their acquittal. I suppose I could pawn a couple of these. That works, Dante said, but don't sell any of your favorites. I'd hate for you to die of heartbreak along the road. Blaze departed to buy food for their coming travels. Naren decided to catch a nap. Finding the room stuffy, Dante walked downstairs to one of the covered patios. As he waited outside, Hod entered the square, neck craned. Seeing Dante, he trotted up to him and bowed low, one knee brushing the ground. My lord, for the last time, I'm not your lord, Dante said. What can I do for you? Ah, Hod rose. I'm looking for you. But I'm not the only one. Tell me Dan hasn't decided to slap us with a new set of charges. The monk blushed. I brought word of your discoveries to my order. The keeper of the reborn shrine wishes to see you at once, and to repay you for what you've unearthed. Chapter 12 Dante tilted his head. The Keeper of the Reborn Shrine. Hod dipped his head and bent at the knees. Just so, my lord. Who is this Keeper, and what does he want with me? He will answer all your questions. Please say you'll come with me, my lord. We were about to leave town, he said, then shook his head to clear it. Let me tell the others there's going to be a delay. Dante jogged upstairs and left a note for Blaze and Naren in their room. He returned to the plaza and walked beside Hod on their way to the shrine, pressing the young monk for details. Hod merely stammered that the keeper would be much better qualified to tell Dante everything he wished to know. The shrine's multi-stoned dome hovered over the rooftops. Hod took him into a room deep inside the main building. Wait here, he said. The keeper will be with you soon. Hod closed the oversized door behind him. Dante seated himself in a padded chair facing the entrance. Five minutes later, a low whoosh sounded from the side of the room. A door Dante hadn't noticed swung open. He stood. An incredibly old woman hobbled inside, supporting herself with a broom that was taller than she was. 
She eyed Dante with eyes so pale that he initially thought she was blinded by cataracts, yet after she looked him up and down, he realized they were simply the lightest shade of blue he'd ever seen. She limped forward, sweeping monotonously. Pardon the dust. Her voice was a deep croak, as strong as an oak or a glacier, jarringly cavernous compared to the narrow frame of her body. The monks, they ask, what's the point? There'll just be more dust tomorrow. They're used to it, I suppose. But what would happen if no one swept? Here in Colin, I'd imagine you'd drown in it. Dante watched her another moment, then returned to his chair. She crossed the room, the broom's bristles rasping on the stone, marshalling a growing pile of dust. Dante kept his eyes fixed on nothing. He'd grown up as a peasant, then an orphan in a monastery of far meaner status than this shrine. Despite his last decade and the grandeur of the sealed citadel, he'd never fully gotten used to ordering servants around, as if they were pieces on a Nulladoon board. With inexorable patience, she swept past him. Her broom was as plain as her dress, but the end of its shaft was carved into a crude horseshoe. When she was behind his chair, she said, So, you're Dante Galland. He jolted to his feet, twisting to face her. Are you? I am. Excuse me. Hard led me to believe you were a man. The old woman laughed to herself. That's because he thinks I am one. I would ask you not to disabuse him of his assumptions. If that's what you'd prefer. It helps me do my sweeping without being bothered. She stared into his eyes, reading them, then nodded and resumed working with her broom. Why are you here? Hod said you wished to see me. Why are you here in Colin, you fool? That's a long and winding story. The short answer is that I've been following the trail of Malish meddling. You could follow that trail the rest of your life and still not find its head. Is this visit official? It's personal, and it will remain that way. The old woman chuckled, the deep rasps bouncing off the walls. You are your country. When you indulge in a personal vendetta, that vendetta becomes your nation's as well. She came to the corner of the room, reached into a brass urn, and retrieved a small hand broom and pan, which she used to gather up the formidable pile of dirt she'd accrued. You claimed the blights that ruined Colin weren't our fault. Is this true? Or something you told the mob to save yourself from a swift trip down the cliff? What would you do if it was a lie? She straightened, one hand pressed to her back, and stared into his eyes again. Be surprised. When the people who came before me raised the Woden Mountains, it altered the lands of Wesley forever. There, a region of verdant forest became sandy desert. I believe the same thing happened here. And we forgot. 
swallowing malish lies instead. The keeper's wrinkled face burned with sudden wrath. The one thing my line is here to prevent. What is your line? When Malin comes, the priests bring knives, hooks, fire, acid. When they turn those tools on a man, there's nothing he can hide from them. The only sanctuary is ignorance. The keepers know what the common folk can't afford to. And how do the keepers keep themselves safe? Dante said. By making sure the common folk don't know we exist. Then why am I allowed to meet you? You've only been here a brief while, but you've already given us knowledge of ourselves we'd lost centuries ago. I don't think your work is done yet. Even so, most times I'd be content to let you hoe your own way through the weeds ahead of you. I'm guessing there's a but on its way. Even if the story is about to take the form of a storm, she said, where you go, chaos follows. Say I stand on the ledge, looking at my enemies below. There is a rock that may be poised to set off a slide, but reaching for it would be dangerous. Do I pray that it tips over on its own? Or do I stretch across the abyss and give it a nudge? I have no interest in dragging my people into a conflict with Malin. But if I succeed in my goal here, Malin will be significantly less driven to a new conflict with your people. She did her eye-reading thing again. Dante was well used to staring people down, but he found her gaze uncomfortable, like that of an alligator or the deep-set eyes of the statues of gods. I see vengeance, the keeper said, but not malice. Let's loose the arrow and see where it lands. She tapped her broom against the floor. Before we go any farther, I need to warn you. Do you know the prophecy of this shrine? It was one of the first things Hod told me. When it's reborn for the twelfth time, a rawn will emerge to destroy the Malish. She nodded once. And when he comes, he'll consume all who betrayed the shrine, including its secrets. By the time this temple is torn down twice more, chances are I'll be long dead. Aron's realm is death. Do you think being dead would save you from his wrath? The keeper turned to the wall she'd come in through. Its face was adorned with bar-relief carvings of expansive fields of flowers and crops. The old woman lifted her broom and fit its horseshoe-shaped tip into the petal of a flower. A muffled metal click sprung from inside the wall. A door swung into a darkened room. She shuffled inside, and Dante followed. The room smelled like rust. A string of small white stones hung on a hook beside the open door. She picked up the string with a clatter, cupped one of the stones in her palm, and blew on it. Pale light pushed back the darkness, 
Two dozen torch stones hung from the string, enough that, even if she had to use their light for an entire day, by the time she exhausted the last one, the first would be ready to use again. The keeper touched the edge of the door, which closed of its own accord. The room was half-filled with religious statuettes, braziers and candlesticks, coated in cobwebs and grime. It had the appearance of a forgotten storage room, but Dante wasn't surprised when the old woman jabbed her broomstick into the corner of the room, springing open a hatch in the floor. Stairs spiraled down into the darkness. They were narrow and steep, but the keeper descended them without hesitation, coming to a landing of solid stone. She kneeled in the corner, withdrew a metal pin from her grey hair, and inserted it into a hole in the floor, opening yet another hatch. The floor had been malish limestone, but the next curve of stairwell was white chalk. They came to another landing, where the keeper opened a third hatch, with the help of a small knife. The third leg of the stairwell was black basalt. What's down here? Dante said. Me? The keeper croaked. My two apprentices, and the truths our people would be killed for keeping. At the next landing, she shuffled through a brass door. The light of her torch stone seemed to shrink. Dante followed her through, stopping short as he emerged onto a landing overlooking a twenty-foot drop. The old woman blew on two more of the stones. White light flared across the room, which was a dark mirror of the library upstairs. Thousands of books crowded the shelves, alternating with racks of scrolls. Dante had seen few libraries to match it. Something felt wrong, but it took him a moment to place it. There are no desks. The old woman gave him a sneer. Who would use them? The library looked simultaneously ancient, yet also astoundingly recent, as if a great arm had reached into the past and drawn the shrines underground into the present day. The keeper moved along the railing, coming to a high-ceilinged alcove lined with shelves. The room held a desk as well. Before she sat, she pulled one of four cords dangling from the wall. A bell jangled distantly. Sit down, she said, and tell me what you wish to know. They took up chairs at either side of the desk. Dante glanced up at the walls. Maybe it's best if you don't know too much. I don't want to cause any extra trouble for Colin. Gods, no, you have enough. Does it look like we get out much? The monks upstairs have to deal with all kinds of travellers. I allowed you down here. If you want to stay, you'll tell me why you came. He scratched his stubble, then leaned back, exhaling through his nose. We came here for two reasons. The first was to deal with some powerful objects the Malish have gotten their hands on. Essentially, they're nether storage devices a sorcerer can use to augment their strength. You're talking about the shells. You know of them. Farmers have been finding them in the fields for two years. We've had many questions about them. 
and not so many answers. A few weeks ago, we cut off Malin's supply, Dante said. A few days ago, we destroyed everything they had here. The keeper scowled. What were they using them for? We don't know. Maybe you can help us figure that out. He explained about the digs the Malish soldiers had been conducting on the Butte, how they'd been disinterring colonies' bodies and painting the bones with nether. The keeper looked as though she might spit flame. I don't know why they want our dead. For all the crimes they accuse us of, their own are nine times worse. A man padded into the room, bearing a small lantern. His face was so pale and soft he looked boyish, yet he was clearly at least a decade Dante's senior. You called, Keeper? Tea, she said without looking over. Yes, Keeper. He turned and exited. You have tea down here, Dante said. Does your order forbid it? My order couldn't function without it. But when I last spent much time in Malish lands, no one knew what tea was. Things change, don't they? Sitting there in the ageless, sealed-off library, he wasn't sure if that was a wry comment or a truth so basic it existed everywhere. The keeper seemed lost in her own thoughts. Dante's loon tingled, the one connected to Jonah, but he ignored it. The boyish man returned with a tarnished silver tray and two sturdy mugs. The tea inside was cold and weaker than Dante was used to, but he was grateful nonetheless. Does someone bring this down to you? he said, or do you keep it in storage? The keeper gave him one of her looks. Storage. What's the other reason you came to Colin? Do you know of Gladick? The Orden from Bressel? She snorted. Do you know of forest fires? Plagues? Less than ten years ago, things were as close to peace as we've ever known. Then Gladick arose from the monkhood. He said, Ron's lies had once more poured out of the north. He said, we were as weak for these lies as a drunk for his wine. He asked for all those who believed in Aron's place in the cellar set to come with him to the desert, where he'd show them Tame's miracle. We never saw them again. Since then, Malish bluebacks are rarely away from Colin. Right, Dante said. Well, I'm here to kill him. The keeper grabbed the desk's edge for support as she got to her feet. He's here. What would you do if he was? Sweep him off the edge of the butte? Never, she said. I'd make his death much slower than that. Too bad, then. Last I heard, he was somewhere north of Bressel. The wrath faded from the old woman's face. She lowered herself to her chair. Then if you intend to kill him, it seems to me you're in the wrong place. A few weeks back, we made a run at him. However, when we infiltrated his temple, we ran into something unexpected. 
He described how Gladick had shrugged off all of Dante's strikes with the nether, and how, when he'd finally attacked the Orden with the ether, he'd seemed to turn into a shadow of himself, one with bright silver eyes. I couldn't seem to hurt him at all. But my friends had learned that he'd taken his most recent batch of Chardon to Colin. We decided to follow the shells and see if I could learn anything more about Gladick's ability here, where people have never stopped their practice of the nether. The keeper asked a bevy of questions regarding Gladick's transformation and what exactly Dante had done to try to harm him. At last, she lapsed into silence. Enough for now, she said. Return to me at noon tomorrow. I'll have your books then. We're done. Dante glanced around for a window, but there were none. It's not even dinner yet. I have other things to do besides educate ignorant young men, such as Nap. If you're too tired, I could start looking through the archives myself. Their consumption of knowledge is no different than food, boy. It needs time to digest. Treader will show you out. The pale man stepped out from the shadows as silently as a ghost. With me, sir? He led Dante up the stairwell and through its hidden trapdoors. In the storage room on the ground floor, he peeped through a hole in the wall, then brought Dante to the chamber where he'd first met the keeper. Dante exited the shrine and made haste for the inn. Blaze and Naren were sitting around the room, looking annoyed. Where were you? Blaze said. Saying goodbye to all those friendly locals who've spent the last week dueling, insulting, accusing, and imprisoning us. I left you a note. I was summoned to the shrine. Weary after the lengthy day, Dante dropped into a chair. We're not leaving. We were right to come here, more than we knew. He explained his meeting with the keeper. I'm supposed to see her again at noon tomorrow. She may know more about what the Malish were doing out there, and how we can deal with Gladick. You're sure you can trust her? Why wouldn't I? She lives in a hole in the ground with no contact with the outside world. For all we know, she believes she's some kind of talking mole. She sounds more like a bullfrog, Dante said. I'll stay wary for tricks, but I think we'd be foolish to walk away from this. I wouldn't mind a few more days here. Cord dropped by to invite me to train with her at her shrine. Is there anything we can do to help? Naren said. Dante ran his fingers through his hair, which had grown excessively greasy during their jaunt into the desert to destroy the Chardon. Be prepared. If the Keeper knows how to kill Gladick, we'll want to move before he has the chance to cause any more trouble. Which reminds me... He touched his loon, activating it. Jonah, did you try to reach me earlier? Fumbling noises came through the loon. Ahoy! Dante! Just wanted you to know Gladick's returned to Bressel. Two days ago, by the rumour I heard. Know where he was, or what he's planning next. The Crown's been right miserly about publishing his schedule, but if I hear anything about it, I let you know. Dante shut down the loon. According to Jonah, Gladick's back in Bressel. Stay ready to move. We may be ready to go after him as early as tomorrow. 
Blaze had earned a few coins, pawning his knives, but they were still hurting for money. In the morning, Dante killed time by treating the wounds and maladies of the inn's lodgers in exchange for a modest handful of iron clinks and silver chucks. His healing involved the open use of the nether, something he wouldn't have done prior to the trial, but the cat was out of the bag. Trying to stuff it back in wouldn't earn him anything but scratched-up arms. As noon neared, he walked to the shrine. Hod was out front greeting a group of pilgrims. Seeing Dante, he handed the pilgrims off to another monk and jogged over. Did... Uh... Did you... Did I what? Make it home last night? It was touch and go at first, but then I remembered that I own working legs. Hod dropped his voice, glancing to all sides. Did you speak to the keeper? Dante nodded. Have you ever met him? Sometimes we receive notes, for supplies and things, but meeting him is forbidden. That way, we can never betray him, even if the malish put out our eyes and slice off our testicles. Sounds like an enlightened policy. May I ask what he's like? Wizened, Dante said. And tough, like chewing old leather. You're in good hands. He returned to the chamber where he'd first met her. After a short delay, the side door opened. Treader brought him down the stairs to the library concealed in the belly of the shrine. The day before, the library had had very little in the way of furniture, but in Dante's absence, someone, Treader presumably, had been put to work. A redoubt of desks now occupied the largest alcove. Towers of books soared from the desks. A large torch stone hung within a glass bowl, suspended from the ceiling, shedding ample, moon-like light over the tomes. Somewhere in the center of the castle of books, a page flipped. Dante circled around the ramparts of parchment, paper, and leather until the keeper became visible, her knobby back bent over a volume that looked as heavy as she was and twice as old. So, he sat in the nearest chair. Have you had time to digest? And to consume even more, the keeper said. Be careful you don't step in any of the resulting excrement. It looks like you've pulled half your library out. I hope that's the result of a wealth of sources rather than a desperate search for anything remotely close. Do you know of the second scour? The two-part war, Dante said. Four hundred years back, King Sarl of Malin led a crusade against Gask, looking to stamp out Oron's influence there. But the Gascon winters killed more of his troops than any battle— it left his forces in such a shambles that Gask was able to push Saul back through town after town. The Gascons marched halfway to Bressel before agreeing to peace, in exchange for Saul's promise that the Malish people would be allowed to worship Aron as they pleased. A promise that lasted eight whole years. But this is not that story— this is the story that explains why Malon's testicles had swollen to the point that it was convinced it could conquer Gask in the first place. Her voice was even froggier than the day before. 
but as she went on, it began to warm up. Eight years before the two-part war, Con the White-Haired, greatest nethermancer in the land, was selected absolute despot of Colin. By the end of his second year, he announced the end of Malish rule in the basin. By the end of his fifth year, he had made it so. The Malish responded as they always had, but each force they marched into Colin was met by Con, who commanded at the front of his lines, beating back each charge, smelling out each feint, laying ruin to his foes with hellstorms of nether. Here she described a number of battles and flashpoints, noting that she was summarizing, blow by blow, accounts that would be tedious to anyone who wasn't a very young or a very old general. For seventeen years, Con held them back. Children were born and came of martial age, knowing nothing but that Colin was free. She paused, whispering something Dante couldn't catch. Her eyes went distant in the way he'd recently felt when thinking about whether he'd ever make it back to Norashtovic. The keeper glanced at him, then away. She grunted. Two years of quiet passed since the last army had crossed into Colin and soaked the dust with the blood of its own soldiers. Then came Frenric, Eldor of the priesthood, master of ether, who had survived the assassination attempts of Aurel, his predecessor, and then supplanted him. Frenric marched on the basin. With one victory after another, he pushed the defenders back to the city of Colin itself. But this was not the first time the coloners had defended their city, and they dug in on the road through the cliffs and set archers above who rained arrows down on the Malish as the bluecoats made their assault. The Malish stalled on the slopes. With their dead littering the cliffs, they began to withdraw. A cheer erupted from those who defended their land. Then the Malish drove their engines of war forward. Covered and armored, their wagons took the road, pressing to the gates. There Con ordered his nethermancers to the defense. The first siege wagons fell, but Frenric and his priests rallied forth. Light and dark formed a storm in the skies. Soldiers and sorcerers fell, never to rise again, and Malin advanced to the gates. The fighting was too ferocious to say where the Dark Ones came from. The Malish blamed the colonists, the colonists blamed the Malish. As the creatures stepped forth, both sides withdrew. These things looked like shadows but they were attached to no men. Their eyes glowed silver, and when they opened their mouths to scream, their throats burned as if they'd swallowed the stars. That's them, Dante broke in. The Star Eaters. As it says in the history, the keeper said. At first the Star Eaters attacked all they saw, Swords couldn't cut them. 
the nether couldn't harm them. It couldn't so much as slow them. But the ether stalled them, and in this way the malish pushed the star-eaters into the city. While Con soldiers fought the malish troops, Con fought the demons with every ounce of his strength. For three days it could not be said who would prevail, yet, one by one, Con's sorcerers fell, and block by block so did the city. With his people on the verge of retreat, white-haired Con told them that he thought he knew how the star-eaters could be defeated. He entered the reborn shrine, and then he disappeared, never to be seen again. With Con gone, the star-eaters tore through the city in a matter of hours. Colin fell. The Malish raised the shrine down to its second basement. Through this point, it had sounded as if the keeper had been reciting a passage from a history book. Now she chuckled, pointing to the ceiling. That's right above our heads. It's the closest this shrine has ever come to total destruction. Colin was pacified for decades afterwards. Freed of the need to fight us, Malin soon turned its sights on Gask and the second scour. Is there anything more? How were Con and the Colonners able to fight them? She nudged a thick book across the table. Read for yourself, but nothing more is said. Dante dived into the book to pore over the relevant section for himself, but the keeper had quoted it nearly verbatim. Are there any other works that discuss them? One. She handed him a blue-bound book, but the reference is thin. She wasn't kidding. It was contained to two pages, most of that involving the author's speculation that Malish priests had summoned the Star Eaters, or Andrak as his author called them, using a word from the older Malish tongue, as the means to finally break Con's defences. Dante swore and slapped the book closed. Would it have killed them to talk about where the Andrak came from? The old woman chuckled throatily. You've already found the answer to that. He reopened the book, thinking he'd skipped something, the keeper sat in silence as he reread the passage. If there's some secret here, he said, setting the history in front of her, it's too subtle for me. You expect this information can only be found in a carefully preserved book, but you've already seen it with your own eyes. Is this a test? Then he snapped back his head. The bones! It's no more than a guess, but it feels right. The bones are objects of summoning. You think Gladick is using them to draw forth the Andrak? From where? There's a realm like this one. But in it, it isn't these tables and books that are most real. She knocked the desk and one of the stacks, wobbling it. 
It's the shadows. If this is the same realm I'm thinking of, I have a friend who can enter it, but as far as I know, he's never seen any demons there. You think your friend can enter the shade? What does he see there? Dante gestured vaguely. He says it's like here, but everything is cast in moonlight and shadows. Dark places are often far brighter than we see them, and the nether seems to glow. That sounds like a place between. The place I mean, the shade, looks no more like our world than I look like the girl I was ninety years ago. And the bones are a way to reach this shade. The bones act as both signposts and doorway. They open a way out of the shade and show the things that live there how to take it. Can that work in reverse? Dante said. The story says Con knew how to defeat the Andrak, and then he disappeared. Maybe he went into the shade to fight them there, and died in the attempt. That has the smell of possibility. Well, there's one thing that I know for sure. Gladix rediscovered how to command the Andrak. Do you know how to dismiss them, or how I can fight them? Fight them? The keeper hooted. Before I read the accounts in these books, I didn't know they existed. Is there anything else like them? What more do you know about the bones and the shade? Her mirth dried up. She craned back her head to take in the towering shelves of books. There may be more answers, but it'll take more time to find them. Come back at noon in two days. This is the most important thing in my life right now. I can help you search. Do you know how these books are shelved? By author, or chronologically, how many ways can a library be shelved? The keeper hooted again. This time she was joined by Treader's high-pitched laughter. He seemed to have a second sense for when the old woman wished her guests to be taken away. Your help would only slow us down, she said. Two days, boy. It was still early afternoon when he came back to the inn. Blaze and Naron were out. Dante closed the shutters and sat at the darkened table. The histories claimed that, while Ether hadn't been able to harm the Andrak, it had slowed the demons down. He reached into the air and reeled the light to him. A teardrop of ether hung above the table. He fed more and more light into it, expanding it to the size of an apple. The surface of the ether began to quiver. Dante reached for more, but it bent back from his grasp. The ball collapsed on itself, leaving him in darkness. He stared across the table. The nether had come to him so easily he hadn't even realized he was learning it. One day he'd been reading The Cycle of Oran, and the next day he'd conjured a ball of shadows around himself. From there his progress had been like advancing up a stairwell. The steps were all right there in front of him. All he had to do was climb them. His experience with the ether was the complete opposite. 
He'd been so bad with it that Callie, his master, had quit bothering to teach him after a handful of lessons. From there, it had made sense for Dante to align his efforts with his talents rather than pouring energy into a skill he found so hard to hone. Too many causes called for his attention. That was the core of it. He'd focused on the nether because he had a single life to live, and the drive to become the kind of sorcerer he'd only read about in the cycle. Every day he squandered with the ether lowered the ceiling of what he could achieve with the nether. At the same time, he'd been utterly convinced of his skill with the nether. That conviction had carried him through challenges that could have killed him. His belief in his ability caused it to come true. Then shouldn't the same factor be true of his doubts about the ether? What if he was awful with the light because he believed he'd always be awful with it? He was still in pursuit of this thought when the door swung open. Naren and Blaze spilled through, laughing hilariously. Their hair hung in sweaty strands. Dust streaked their faces. Their forearms were spangled with fresh bruises. What have you two been doing? Dante said. Cliff diving. You understand you're supposed to do that into water. We were beating the hell out of each other, Blaze said. What does it look like? Naren fanned his perspiring face. Cod was showing us how to use and defend against the wheel. Invigorating experience. I have good news, Dante said. The thing we fought in the temple in Bressel, it wasn't Gladic. Blaze clucked his tongue. Really? It sure looked like him. It was an illusion. What we fought was a demon known as an Andrak. Naren scowled. A demon? This doesn't sound like good news at all. Don't you see? Dante reopened the shutters. The room was growing stuffy and the two of them stank. Gladic's perfectly mortal. We may not know how to kill the demons, but a knife in Gladic's throat will put him in the ground like anyone else. Blaze got a rag from his pack, toweling off his sweat. And as soon as Gladic's dead, we can go home. Are you addressing me? Naren said. I agree to help you in the islands in exchange for your helping avenge Captain Twill. If Gladick's dead, that debt is satisfied. Blaze fell into a chair. Jonah said he's back in Bressel, right? Should we wander over and slit his throat? Dante shook his head. The person I've been speaking to might have some ideas about how to fight the Star Eaters. I'd prefer to add that arrow to our quiver before we face Gladick again. You sound like you know nothing about these things. I don't. I'm not sure if my source is going to have anything for me either, but it's worth checking. Naren stood with his hands folded in front of him, gazing at the floor. When I asked you to vow to kill him, I knew he was a sorcerer, but I had no idea he had command of demons— We've already crippled his plans with the Chardon. Perhaps we should consider your honor satisfied. Dante and Blaze looked at each other and laughed. Have I said something amusing? Naren said. Blaze tossed his sweat rag in the corner. If this was just about our honor, we'd have weaseled out of this weeks ago. Then why are you still here? Because Gladick's an asshole. 
As long as we're down here, we'll plant him in the ground and pray his successor isn't so awful. Dante turned his back to the window. My father spent his life fighting Malin's efforts to take over the plagued islands. He died before I had a chance to see him again. Gladick took that from me. I aimed to pay him back. When the conversation concluded, Dante interrogated Blaze about what he'd seen while shadow-walking. But the talk went nowhere. Blaze had never noticed anything remotely resembling the Andrak in the Netherworld. With nothing scheduled for the next day, Dante let himself sleep late. A hand shook him roughly awake. Blaze stood over him. I just spoke to Cord. She says the Malish soldiers have decamped from the Butte to the northeast. They look to be on their way here. Could be here as early as tonight. Dante sat up, rubbing his eyes. How many? Eighty, maybe. Are they hostile? You know, I'm not sure, Blaze said. Would you like me to run out and ask them? Whatever they're up to, they don't have the numbers to threaten the city. Keep your ears open. They might be coming here to find us. As soon as he was awake enough to form coherent thoughts, Dante called up what little ether he could. It could have been his imagination, but the drop of light looked larger than the day before. After that, he went around to a butcher shop, where he spent some of the pennies he'd earned healing travellers to buy a bag of goat bones that had already had the marrow scraped from them. Back in his room, he laid the bones out on the floor and closed his eyes. In his earliest days in Narashtavik, when he'd been no more than the monk's errand boy, he'd been assigned to prepare bones in the way he'd seen done at the Malish dig across the desert. But they'd been used to attempt to summon a Rorn himself, and when that effort failed, Dante had considered the bones to be a pointless trapping. He hadn't used them since. To his annoyance, he couldn't remember how the process was done. The soldiers neared that afternoon. Dante sent a moth to observe. They were eighty strong, accompanied by four grey-robed monks. They walked through the streets of the lower town like a winter wind, freezing the farmers and traders around them. As the Malish moved up the road to the top of the butte, the shops carved into the cliffside closed their doors. A platoon jogged ahead, taking the top of the butte. The body of soldiers joined them there and marched into the city. Civilians watched, joined by a number of fit men and women with ribbons dangling from their elbows. The Malish soldiers passed through them in silence filing into a large stone building with iron-banded doors and slitted windows. Dante posted the moth outside. The soldiers stayed put all night. In the morning, they emerged into the streets, traveling in groups of four. They stopped everyone they passed, questioning them briefly before moving on. The Malish are searching for something, Dante said to Blaze but the moth I'm following them with can't hear a thing. Think you can find out what they're after without getting jailed? Probably not. Blaze stood. But I bet Cord can. He left the room. Dante continued to watch through the eyes of his moth. He couldn't hear what the soldiers were asking the citizens, but the locals replied almost uniformly with a shake of their heads. Blaze was back within an hour a funny look stamped upon his face. 
You know those soldiers out there? Turns out they're looking for us. Us? By name? There's no mistaking it's us. They were looking for the handsome coloner, the tall fellow from the southern lands, and the ugly malish man. How do they know who to look for? Blaze shrugged. One of them must have survived the spider fields, went back and told the others who'd done them wrong. Too many people know we're here, Dante said. It only takes one of them to expose us. Then Narashtivik's implicated as well. Even if they don't know exactly who we are, if they find us, we'll have another fight on our hands. How much more of this recent violence do you think Malin will tolerate before they march on the basin? Little to none, Blaze said. What are you thinking? We know Gladick isn't a demon. He can be killed. I say we get out of here before we accidentally set off another war. Just so I'm clear on this, your plan is to avert war by assassinating one of Bressel's highest-ranked priests. Gladick seems to be spearheading operations here. Removing him from action could shut down hostilities. Or provoke the king into jumping up and down on Colin like an enormous mattress, Blaze said. But I suppose there's no getting around that. In any event, Narashtivik will stay in the clear. Get your things. We should get out of here before the Malish think to post guards at the top of the trail. Naren folded his arms. You mean to leave now? I thought you had more to learn at the reborn shrine. I don't think she knows how to hurt the demons, Dante said. As for the bones, they may be irrelevant, and Narashtivik will know how they work. Our loon should be there by the time we've arrived in Bressel. We have to get out of here before Narashtivik's connected to the destruction of the Chardon. While Blaze and Naren packed, Dante jogged to the reborn shrine, employing his moth to ensure the way forward was clear of soldiers. At the shrine, he wrote a message to the keeper, which Hod sent down in the small dumbwaiter they used for such things. The keeper replied with a note stating that she'd found nothing more regarding how the demons could be fought. Back at the inn, Blaze and Naren had their packs assembled, including food for the trip to Bressel. The three of them left their room and headed through the city, detouring around two groups of soldiers on their way to the switchbacks. By early afternoon, the city of Colin receded behind them. Ahead, the road cut a straight line through the irrigation ditches and the patches of green farms around them. Dante reached Jonah through the loon to inform them that they were on their way and to confirm Gladick was still in the city, which Jonah thought was so, but pledged to double-check. The season was edging into fall, the sunlight far less brutal than it had been during their trek from Bressel. A steady wind buffeted their backs. Tiny tornadoes spun through the parched and dusty fields. That night, with the butte far behind them, Dante wondered if he'd left too rashly. Blaze and Naren might have kept themselves cloistered in their room while he spent more time in the shrine. But the risk would have remained. As much as he wanted Gladick dead, Narashtivik had already fought too many wars during his tenure. It was time to finish this. Two days later, with fifty miles behind them and another eighty ahead of them, they crested a rise and stopped in their tracks. Two miles to the west, 
hundreds of men travelled east along the road, dressed in uniform, blue banners fluttering above their heads. Malin was marching on Colin. Chapter 13 The news of the attack on Cobb's fort was like rain in the desert. With the Eldor's blessing, Gladick went straight to Truman. Gladick took only his secretary, Horstad. As usual, the Minister of War attended the meeting with no fewer than a dozen of his generals and advisers. The coterie was supposed to make him appear formidable, as if he commanded armies not only in the field, but within the halls of the palace as well. Yet to those who saw keenly, his assemblage displayed weakness, the inability to stand by himself, and the irregularity of his numbers, Truman included, they made thirteen, seemed a deliberate piece of hubris, as though his men mirrored the dozen of the Selicet, and Truman commanded them all. Gladick seated himself, Horstad taking the chair to his right. Gladick folded his hands on the table, nodding to each of the dozen men Truman had brought with him. He took his time about it, allowing the greetings to stretch into a silent criticism of Truman's habit of surrounding himself with so many unnecessary bodies, but ensured his expression remained courtly at all times. Lord Truman, Gladick said at last, thank you for arranging to see me on such short notice. Truman wore a trim goatee and a perpetually pained look, as though one of his old wounds had never healed. It's, as they say, when the Eldor asks, the crown bows. Did the Eldor's entreaty mention the nature of today's discussion? Let me guess, there's been more trouble in Colin. Would that come as a surprise? Gladick replied mildly. The coloners carry rebellion in their blood. Their blood? Would you say the same of hornets? Hornets, my lord. Hornets? Truman nodded. When one throws a rock at a hornet's nest, one expects to get stung. I begin to dread that our meddling in Colin is no different. A few of his attendants chuckled. Horstad's quill worked as he wrote this witticism down. Gladick had the urge to snatch the plume from him and jam it in his ear. Hornets are mindless. Gladick kept the edge from his voice. The coloners have minds, free will, souls, yet they choose disobedience, rebellion, heresy. This is not a one-time event, the product of poor fortune or a silver-tongued despot stirring them to unwise action. Rather, their warring is as endless and predictable as the Selicet. For such a cycle to persist across so many centuries, I fear their moral failure can only be explained through a flaw of the blood. Could be. So what has this flaw caused them to do now? They have attacked a butte known as Cobb's Fort. A number of very important and powerful resources were destroyed. Fifty of our men died in the fighting, including two of my monks. What incited this latest skirmish? Did the wheat pickers decide you were trespassing? Prior to our encampment, 
Cobb's fort had been unoccupied for decades. It held no value for the coloners in terms of resources or strategical location, and those who attacked it were no mere rabble of farmers. Gladick paused. He shaped the tone of his next words like a master potter. They were nethermancers. This drew alarmed looks from several advisers. Truman grunted, scowling. You're certain of this? A handful of witnesses lived to tell the tale. As well, the attackers left evidence of their unnatural powers. There can be no mistaking their taint. The minister ran his thumb over a burn scar on the back of his other hand. He grunted again. Sounds like a task for your priests. Faced with nethermancers, my soldiers are no more than grist for the mill. But you agree it must be addressed? By force, if necessary. I agree that it must be addressed by those most capable of addressing it. This isn't a military matter, Auden. It's a religious one. All things are of the gods, Minister Truman, including these impure-blooded rebels and their nethermancers. Indeed, Gladick said. They are the work of the god we must oppose with every grain of our soul. It is vital to stamp out every last ember of his faith in Colin. If that is not done, the fire of his blasphemy will spread to Bressel, just as it has done every other time. Horstad, are you taking notes? The portly young monk looked up in surprise. Every word, Auden. Gladick maintained eye contact with Truman. Then, when the flames reach from Colin to Bressel, it will be noted who lies at fault. And it will be asked why, when faced with the choice of restricting the fighting to Colin, or allowing it to spill into Bressel, that man chose to bring the fight into our home. The room went as still as a winter night, all except for Horstad's quill, which scratched across his ledger like a puppy outside the door on a cold winter's eve. My lord, a man leaned forward, murmuring into Truman's ear. Truman worked his jaw, glaring at Gladick from across the table. How many men do you need? In life, there were very few things as satisfying as taking that which another man didn't want to give you. Gladick had his army two days later. Eight hundred men. Insulting. He deserved at least twice that. It would not have been unreasonable to provide him with five times as much. It was clear that Minister Truman had given him the bare necessity to pretend that he took the cause seriously and arranged matters such that, when the token army failed, blame for that failure would fall firmly on Gladick's shoulders. Minister Truman was conniving. Gladick charged his monks with combing the archives for all mention of past battles in Colin, particularly sieges of the basin's capital, as well as the men required to take it. Before departing, he then assigned Spalder Baldrick to draft an essay to the king 
stressing the difference between what was needed and what Truman had given him. The essay came to the subtle conclusion that Truman was either incompetent at his job or deliberately sabotaging both the holy duties of the church and the malish military Truman was ostensibly protecting. This accusation would be undermined by Gladick's upcoming victory. Yet, following Baldrick's analysis of the hopelessness of the situation, that victory would be little short of a miracle. The only explanation would be that Gladick was a tactical genius, or the favourite of the gods, or both. Whatever the consensus, he would use it to seize greater authority to enact his next step. Their troop left at dawn, striding down the King's Road, scouts ranging ahead on horseback, blue banners waving above the infantry. It was ten times the size of the largest force Gladick had ever commanded. Yet he knew his next command would be ten times larger still. Horstad rode beside him near the head of the column. The sun was just up, and his secretary was already sweating like a pig. Did Horstad drink in secret? That would explain the discomfort on his face. Gladick cleared his throat. Horstad jolted. Gladick said, Does something trouble you? It looks mighty. Horstad twisted in the saddle, surveying the line of troops. But will it be enough to seize the city? It's said that with a few hundred men at its defense, the Butte can hold off an entire nation. Do you lack faith in our mission? Horstad sputtered. I have faith in Tame's cause and in your leadership, but my faith in the resources provided to you to achieve your mission is less robust. Less robust, Gladick chuckled. You're correct, Horstad. We don't have enough soldiers to take the city. Uh, then I wonder, and I hope it is natural to do so, why we intend to try. Can you guess? The younger man twisted his face. Because that's what the gods demand of us. It's not our place to question them, only to obey. That is what we tell the soldiers, the congregants in our temple. It is true, of course, and helps sustain our strength through dark times. But battles aren't won through duty alone. What do we have that they don't? Faith? Horstad sighed. I'm sorry, Orden. I have no experiences with armies and tactics and the ways of war. That is a good thing, Horstad. War is the symptom of a land broken beyond repair. We are healers, yes? But it's best that the land is never sick enough to need ministrations such as these. The secretary nodded, bobbing in the saddle. Still, if these are the times now upon us, I'd better learn to serve you through them. What do we have that the coroners don't? Gladick smiled. Ethermancers. They have no priests, Horstad squawked. They truly are heretics. They have, priest. 
but none have Tame's bright spark. They are of common blood. But all the realms produce men with the talent. Is it some kind of curse? Gladick shook his head slowly. Some coloners are born with the spark, but those men are promoted to other temples. Bressel, Wetton, Dormund, and so on. A frown crept over Horstead's face. Is this removal of talent intentional, Horden? Are you starting to think strategically, Horstad? This is part of a long-standing treaty with Colin, a chance to educate their brightest minds in places free from the ideas that have corrupted those who came before them. Now, if this opportunity we grant them happens to diminish Colin's ability to resist us, well, they shouldn't be resisting in the first place, should they? Betty's a very clever arrangement. A good ruler solves crises as they arise. A great ruler prevents them from arising in the first place. Orstad pulled back his chin, visibly impressed. His expression turned thoughtful. But once we take the city, Orden, what then? How do we prevent the next crisis? It seems like we're always conquering Colin, only for Colin to rebel again as soon as we turn our backs. It seems that way because that is the truth. Gladick was silent for a time. Have you heard the story of Sedwick and the Five Fountains? Yes, Orden. It's most interesting. Gladick blinked, annoyed. Horstad was far more competent as a secretary than his humbleness implied, and Gladick would not have taken on an assistant whose grasp of theology was frail. But the stories of Sedwick were one of the obscurities held back by Spalders and Ordens for the express purpose of humbling younger monks. It irked him that Horsted had discovered them on his own. But I haven't heard it in some time, Orden. Horsted hurried to amend. His sensitivity to Gladick's moods was one of his chief virtues as secretary. It would be best if you were to refresh my memory. Gladick sniffed and cleared his throat. Sedwick was a priest in the city of Mazdal, of the nation of Felon, in what is now the Middle Kingdoms. He was born 497 years ago and died in his 78th year. Though the Felonese Selicets differed from fact in unfortunate ways, Sedwick was virtuous enough to devote his life to tame. In Mazdao, the city's greatest pride was the Five Fountains. These were centuries old, the precise age is unknown, and had provided plentiful water for the entire city. Sculpted from headish marble, their beauty was said to rival the Odellian. This opinion, however, may have been biased by Felonese pride, as each fountain had been built by one of the five families who founded Mazdo in misty antiquity. Gladick glanced at Horstead to confirm the secretary was listening. Horstead wore an appropriately attentive look. The five fountains were utterly beloved, he went on, to the brink, perhaps, of idolatry.
But after some time, the fifth fountain, built by the house Winston, grew tainted. Those who drank from it grew sick. There were many deaths. Mousdow's priests purified the waters, and all was well. However, in time, the taint returned, bringing sickness and death, requiring a new purification. Year after year, this process repeated. Offers were made to move the Fountain of Winston, but it had become too holy to be removed from the other four. This cycle of sickness and purity endured for two hundred years, at which time its care fell into the hands of Sedwick. After the first bout of sickness under his watch, Sedwick devoted himself to purifying the fountain once and for all. However, these efforts proved fruitless. When the next illness arrived, spreading to claim hundreds of lives, Sedwick petitioned his order to build a new fifth fountain. They denied him on the basis that the grounds themselves were holy. Sedwick redoubled his efforts to permanently purify the fountain. After the next sickness, he petitioned his order again, only to be rejected. A third plague came, followed by a third petition, and a third rejection. Sedwick went to his temple and prayed to Tame for answers, who rewarded him with a vision of a fountain that flowed more clearly than any stream. This fountain, however, was not the fountain of Winston. Knowing what he must do, that night Sedwick came to the fountain, called upon every moat of ether he could command, and crumbled it to pieces. Sedwick correctly guessed that he would be vilified for his crime. He fled the city he had protected for so long, living as a hermit in the wilderness. In Mazdao, they built a new fountain of Winston. Year after year, it flowed as purely as a mountain stream. The sickness was gone forever. When thirty years had passed without a single death from the fountain, the city's leaders pardoned Sedwick and invited him to return to the Mazdao. He did this, and when he died, he was buried in the city, the city he loved so much that he chose to heal it and be exiled from it, rather than to allow it to go on festering. Gladdick leaned forward in the saddle, hands folded. Sometimes we cling to that which is broken because we can't bear to part with it. But it will always be broken. Until someone finds the strength to cast it aside and build anew. Horstad licked his lips, eyes darting to Gladdick. You believe Colin is beyond mending? It can be mended, but doing so will require faith in our gods and great strength in our heart. You see, Colin is tainted by the nether that seems a part of the people's very blood. There are times when mercy is cruelty, 
There are others, such as when an injured horse is put down, when cruelty is mercy. We've been too lenient with Colin. This has led to nothing but suffering for everyone there. But there is hope on the horizon, Horstead. Today we bring the solution of the fifth fountain. Gladdick smiled at the road unwinding to the northeast. Sedwick had solved one fountain in one city. Four centuries later, his name remained. How long would Gladdick's name last when he cured an entire realm? Chapter 14 Gazing across the hill, Dante's heart squeezed tight in his chest. Tell me that's not what I think it is. In that case, Blaise said, it's absolutely not a Malish army that's most likely headed to Colin because of our meddling with the Chardin. Naren squinted ahead. Do you think so? I said it's not that. Are those flaps on the sides of your head just something you used to hang earrings from? Dante scanned the ranks, making a quick count. They have less than a thousand men. They can't be intending to take Colin. The citizens would tear them apart in the street. They might not have many men, Blaze said, but how many of them are wearing the grey? After a bit of sky-gazing, Dante located a dragonfly, knocked it down with a pin of shadows, and reanimated it, sending it toward the oncoming troop. Wary of detection, he kept it some distance from the Malish priests. But even with the man riding on horseback... He recognized the stiff posture and the cadaverous face. They've got at least six monks and priests, and Gladdick's with them. Gladdick! Naren spat. Jonah was supposed to warn us of his movements. We haven't had amazing success keeping track of him ourselves, Blaze said. Although now that he's traveling in the company of an army, it might be a little easier to follow him. Dante rattled off a length of curses, colourful enough to raise Captain Naren's brow. We have to go back. To Colin, Blaze said. The place we're currently in the business of leaving. We have to warn them. If the colonists have an extra day to fortify the road up to the Butte, the Malish will never be able to break through their defences. What about Gladdick? He's forced our hand, Dante said. Besides, we can turn this to our advantage. If we kill him during the attack, there will be so much confusion it won't be clear who did it. That's in the vicinity of reasonable, but I hope you don't mean to attack the rest of his army, too. The colonists should be perfectly capable of taking care of a few hundred soldiers. They've got more experience fighting the Malish than anyone. They've got experience fighting soldiers, Aaron said, but I doubt any of them have ever faced an Andrak. Dante swore again. All I know is that the sooner Gladdick's dead, the sooner the Andrak are gone too. We're heading back to Colin and putting an end to this here and now. They retreated over the hill, then broke into a run so they'd get behind the next rise before the Malish advanced far enough to spot them. After that, they jogged, with Dante refreshing their muscles with nether when they wore down. How many times have we tried to leave Colin now? Blaze swept his forearm over his brow. When we finally make it out to another city, I'm going to drink until the pub runs out of beer. Dante nodded. So it'll be like any other day, then. 
With the Nethers' help, they made twenty miles before their bodies insisted on real rest. They kept watch that night, but didn't see any scouts. The following day was a brain-numbing passage of walking and running. By afternoon's end, they approached the Butte of Colin proper. How do you want to spread the alarm? Blaze said. Cartwheels and shouting? Or were you intending to summon a magical plague of some kind? Dante knocked dust from the legs of his trousers. I think it's time to see the despot. They climbed the switchbacks to the top of the butte. Dante hadn't been to the palace before, but the keep was unmistakable, a brutal block of basalt near the north end of the city. With the Malish as little as a day away, the three of them headed straight to the keep. Most palaces, including the citadel of Narashtovic, were guarded by men in trim uniforms bearing oversized, well-polished weapons. In Colin, there was no line of soldiers to either side of the gate, but inside the keep's outer walls, fighters trained outside a shrine, black ribbons tied around their elbows. A few glanced Dante's way, without breaking their practice. The keep had so little ornamentation that the observer's eye was commanded by the few touches it did possess. Upthrust fists were carved into the stone beneath the windows and buttresses. A gold banner hung above the doors, its field emblazoned with a black shock of wheat and one of the warrior's wheels. Dante swung open one of the bronze doors, releasing the smell of incense and bread, and entered a high hall. Seeing no one, he walked forward. He hadn't made it three steps before a slim man in a dapper black vest barged through a side door and strode straight toward him. The man stopped in front of him, blonde hair slicked back from his forehead. May I help you? We're here to see the despot, Dante said. He fumbled for and found the name. Jod the Half-Footed. The corner of the man's mouth twitched. Do you have an appointment? That won't be necessary. Do you mean to say that despot Jod's time is of so little value that it can be claimed by anyone off the street? I mean to say... The man shook his head, guiding Dante back to the doors. His fingers hardly rested on Dante's shoulder, yet he had the particular quality of most upper-level servants and major-domos, where it required an act of high will to not go wherever his touch guided you. The man's voice was hard enough to split lumber. And now that you see you can't waste the despot's time, you waste mine instead? Out! Dante planted his feet and turned to stare the man in the eye. You waste my time, sir. And when Despot Jod learns whose time you've been wasting, he'll throw you off the edge of Justice Falls. The official rocked back on his heels. Through gritted teeth, he said, Your name, sir? I am Dante Galland, High Priest of Aron, and I'm here to warn your ruler of a malish invasion. In an attempt to match the highly revered earthers, most colonists sported deep tans. This servant was unusually pale, however, and hearing Dante's words, he went as ghostly white as a Gascon. Please, my lord, wait right here. He turned on his heel and nearly ran from the room. Blaze chuckled. You enjoy pulling rank, don't you? 
Dante found a chair and sat. It's just a tool. A mallet's only a tool, too. It's still a hell of a lot of fun to pound things into the ground with it. The official returned a minute later. He bowed low, a blonde lock coming unstuck from his slicked hair. The despot wishes to see you, my lord. He asks for but a minute of time, fast. Of course. The man smiles tightly and led them up a carpeted staircase to an antechamber. Voices murmured beyond the inner door. Dante expected to wait for some time. In royal ease, a minute lost all temporal bounds. Sixty seconds could stretch on for two hundred minutes. Yet in no more than three minutes, the antechamber door swung open and the black-vested official ushered them inside. The walls of the despot's high room were lined with warriors' wheels. Rather than being shiny and bright, they were scratched and pitted from use. A long table took up most of the room. A fireplace and chairs occupied the far end. So did a man with a gold cloak draped over the burly shoulders of a farmer. Dante approached. The man stood from his chair. He was bearded, graying, his eyes pale blue, his cheeks and brow were etched with scars. Dante Galland. His voice was a gravelly tenor. I heard you were in my city. What a kindness to finally introduce yourself. My manners have been even worse than I normally allow them to be, Dante said. This was never intended to be an official visit. Came incognito, did you? To take in the sights of Colin without the pressure of courtly duties? I came to investigate a serious matter. This would have been compromised if I'd operated under my own name. The despot sighed. I gathered it was something like that. Even so, I was disappointed I didn't get to hear about Narastovic from you. Why would you be interested in Narastovic? You took one run-down city and used it to dismantle an empire that had stood for hundreds of years— a topic so obscure, only a scholar could love it, I'm sure. But I thought I might be able to somehow apply it to my situation here. Dante chuckled. I'd be happy to tell you more shortly. Before I can forget my manners again, these are my friends, Blaise Buckler of Narashtovic and Pocket Cove, and this is Captain Naren of... Wherever the trade winds take me, Naren finished. Five days ago, we left Colin for Bressel. Two days ago, we almost ran right into a Malish army. They'll be here by tomorrow night. Their force is less than a thousand strong, but it's headed by ethomancers, including an especially dangerous man named Gladig. Run, the despot said mildly. Get me, my generals. The official bowed low and exited the room. Despot Jod strolled to a table by the wall, pouring four glasses of dark wine from a copper jug. Sounds like we've got talking to do, he said. Let's sit. The chairs were unpadded wood, but the wine was among the best Dante had tasted, black cherries and smoke. Jod, however, seemed to take no satisfaction from the quality of his drink. He leaned forward in his chair Shoulders hunched, running his finger around the rim of the glass. I've done everything they've asked, he said. 
Even when I thought my spleen would tear loose from my body in peak, I obeyed. And I was a fool. When the king's men come to tell you the new rules, bowing low doesn't buy you any leniency. It only displays how soft your neck is. Dante set down his glass. The type of person who wants to rule is also the type who wants to spit in a conquering king's face. But the type of person who deserves to rule remembers the thousands of lives who depend on your wisdom to keep them safe. If I wore your crown, I'd want to defy Malin too, but I expect I'd bow every bit as low. Jod laughed wryly. That's the worst part of the job, isn't it? Before you've got it, you think you'll change the world. Lift your sword high and spill so much royal blood that next year's wheat grows blue. Then you take the cape, and you feel the weight. At least you've only got a few more years on the throne before the next election. Blaze jerked his thumb at Dante. This poor fool signed up for life. Dante took a large drink. You don't shoulder all the blame for the arrival of the Malish. We may have had something to do with that, too. Jod snorted. Your attack on Cobb's Ford. Reassure me that was necessary. Define necessary, Blay said. It took a powerful weapon out of Gladick's hands, Dante said. One that would have been turned on Colin in time. Jod had already received most of the details following their public trial, so Dante filled him in on the rest. After, Jod sighed through his nose. These must be very important dealings, given that I don't understand half of them. But I know enough to know where I stand. Thank you for provoking the Malish into marching. You're thanking us, Blaise said. I was afraid there was a good chance this meeting would end with a frank exchange of swords. Then you must not know the history of Cobb's Fort. I won't hold it against you, since Collins military historians are the busiest people in the basin. Three hundred years back, or was it four, Malin sieged Cobb's Fort. Rather than losing even more lives, the defenders chose to surrender. But when the Malish entered the city, they massacred everyone there. So, when Gladick's people dug up those bones, they weren't only digging up our dead, they were digging up people they'd betrayed and massacred. George stood, his face going red except for the pale lines of his scars. He pointed to the southwest. They want to march on my city. Good, because I'm itching to wash my hands in their blood. As they moved on to their second cup of wine, the doors swung open. Ron held them wide for four women and eight men. Most of them were at least middle-aged, but even the elderly among them looked as fit as the warriors drilling inside the keep's walls. Each wore a different colored ribbon on their elbow. Gentlemen, Jod said, these are my generals. Introductions followed, which went in one of Dante's ears and out the other. He was far more interested in the fact that each general was head-priest of one of the city's twelve shrines of the Celeset, in personal command of a legion of soldiers. In Malin and Gask, the priesthood was separated from the military. Even in Narashtavik, which was ruled by a council of priests, the military ran its own command structure. 
In Colin, however, war was as much a part of basic life as religion. Jod told his generals that a small army was on the way. That its intent was unknown. Some looked upset by the news, but others bore it with a stoicism that bordered on serenity. You don't bring an army unless you're ready for a fight, Jod concluded to his generals. After what they did at Cobb's Fort, I'm ready to fight back. Question is, are you? They made a quick tally of hands. The count was nine in favor and three opposed. The despot grinned wolfishly. Then the city will be closed to them. They want inside? They'll have to climb a staircase of their own dead. Blaze screwed up his face. You vote to go to war? I know you kings, queens, and mighty priests get to wave your hand, invoke your god, and do whatever the hell you like. One man decides the fate of tens of thousands. Doesn't seem so divine to me. What happens if you disagree with the vote? A lot of yelling. The generals got a good laugh from that. Jod grew sober. You came to warn us. You might have saved us. But if it comes down to it, will you stand on the front lines with us? We can't wade into battle with you, Dante said. I can't put my own people at risk like that. But if Gladick moves on the city, I'll make sure he won't walk away. I don't like the news you brought, Jod said. But I thank you for bringing it. I have much to discuss with my generals. You're welcome to stay in the palace. Ron showed them out and brought them to their guest quarters. After the last days of hard travel, Dante longed for a bath. Instead, he walked straight to the reborn shrine and asked Hod to see the keeper. After a few minutes, Dredder arrived to escort him downstairs. The Andrak, Dante told the old woman. There may be one in this city within two days. Have you found anything to help me fight it? There is nothing, she croaked, except one mention in a scroll with no author and no date. It is said, When the shadows came and took man's shape, God lifted his sword, shining, and drove the beast into the mists. That's it. He whacked it with his sword, and no more demon. But how? The old woman shrugged her narrow shoulders. I can't give you what I don't have. Dante started to swear, then caught himself, uncertain if she was the type to be offended by hard language. When I get home, I'm going to tell my scholars to write down every detail they ever hear, no matter how tedious. Somewhere in the future, it's going to save someone a lot of trouble. He read the scroll for himself, but there was nothing else remotely related to the Star Eaters. Please keep searching, he asked the keeper before he left. It is searched, she said. If Andrak come, you'll have to find weapons of your own. Night had fallen, but on his way back through the city, the streets thronged with people. Word had spread. Many were on their way to the trail down from the butte, looking to find safety in the countryside, desolate though it was. 
Others packed themselves into shops to buy dry goods and supplies. Few faces showed signs of panic. Rather, most bore the annoyed look of someone whose plans have been disrupted by an unplanned errand. In the morning, Dante awoke to the news that Judge Scouts had found the manage, camped a half-day's march from the Butte. Outside, the streets bustled as the army made its way across the plain. Soldiers gathered around the road leading down from the Butte. Archers drilled on bales of hay. Most of the infantry carried swords and short spears, but gold-banded warrior monks drilled with wheels, shafts clacking, their sandals kicking up dust. As Dante watched, Cord glanced his way. She stepped back from her sparring partner, pressed the tip of her thumb to her brow in colony's salute, and jogged toward Dante. Do you come to fight? she said. Or are you just here to watch while others fight for you? Seems to me like if I don't join in, more of you will have the chance to die on malish blades. Isn't that what you want most? The tall woman closed her eyes and inhaled deeply. I dream of it. Sometimes I can smell it. But why hurry? Someday the malish will kill me. Until then, I mean to kill as many of them as I can. She grinned and clapped his shoulder. That way, when they send me to face Aron, I'll have company. Dante blinked. You believe that when you die, you'll stand before Aron, not tame? Don't you? In Narastovic, that's what most of us believe. But I've never heard a coroner openly say the same. Cord laughed and gestured to the soldiers around them. If the Malish are on their way to kill us for our beliefs, why not finally speak them out loud? She rejoined her peers. A messenger dressed in palace yellow found Dante and informed him the despot wished another audience. An open-walled carriage awaited. Its team of horses were among the first Dante had seen used for travel. At the palace, Ron whisked him upstairs to the high hall where they'd first met. Jod stood over a table blanketed with papers and maps. Yesterday, you sounded hell-bent on snuffing Gladick's candle. Nothing's changed. You won't have to worry about him. We're preparing for a fight, but could be they're only here to give us a scare. Or maybe they're passing through on their way to bedevil someone else for once. If we aren't to fight, you aren't to go after Gladick. Not here. I'm not here to cause trouble for Colin. If this isn't war, I won't start one. The despot looked up from his maps, eyeing Dante. I've heard you're the type to grab your goals no matter what the cost to others. Give me your word. If you can't trust me, how can you trust my word? I can't. But if the gods give a damn... It'll be one more thing to punish you for in hell. Dante laughed. I swear it. If I hurt him without your permission, may I be damned by Aron himself. Wonderful. Jod nodded to the door. See you in the field. The sun climbed, slow but steady. The advance of the Malish was as methodical as the sun's ascent. 
The city streets were now as silent as the desert floor. Most of the citizens had remained. Rather than fear, the primary response to the approaching army was outrage, but they'd shuttered their windows and bolted their doors. At the cliffs above the path, though, over two thousand soldiers waited with weapons in hand. This is a new one, Blaze said, looking down as the Malish troops entered the fringes of the town below. The besieged outnumber the attackers. Dante homed in on Gladic near the head of the enemy column. In older times, it was common when the attackers had sorcerers, and the defenders didn't. A wall can't keep you safe from the shadows. A handful of ethermancers can collapse your flank in seconds. That's why Malin and Gask worked so hard to bring the sorcerers under the court's control. Like you do any different in Narashtivik? We need them for defense. Besides, they serve freely. Not like those caged bears in Gask. As the army neared the base of the cliffs, a trickle of citizens ran up the switchbacks, seeking shelter in the city. The gates remained open. Gladick came to a stop three hundred feet below. Jod walked to the edge of the cliffs, flanked by four of his generals. Gladick stepped forward from his troops, tall and lean. He was joined only by a portly young man, also in grey robes. I am Arden Gladick of Bressel. His voice cut through the dry air like a freshly stropped knife. I come on behalf of two kings, Charles, regent of Malin, and Tame, regent of the heavens and all that lays below them. Both of my masters will be displeased to hear that I have been met by a hostile force. George stared down at him. I don't care who you are. Don't care why you're here. You want to talk? Come on up. But your army stays down there. Your refusal to let us enter a city of the king's own realm will be considered an act of war. The despot planted his hands on his hips and laughed. An act of war? What do you call marching a thousand men up to my gates? Insurance that justice will be done. Gladick bit off each word. You will step back from the gates. You will lay down your arms and let us inside. You will then turn over all weapons longer than the king's forearm. You will also turn over all those associated with the attack on Cobb's fort and assist our investigation of the matter. If you satisfy each of these conditions, then you will preserve peace with Malin. Preserve peace? I'd like that. But there are others who don't think that'd be an honorable deal. Who could question the decision of the despot? The ancestors, whose remains you defiled at Cobb's fort. Jod bellowed down the cliffs, the cords in his neck as taut as the strings of a lyre. The only way you're entering this city is on a corpse wagon, you arrogant son of a bitch. Now get back to Bressel before you get sunburned. 
His soldiers cheered, hoisting spears and wheels. Far below, Gladick stared upward, head tilted back, motionless. Dante was wearing plain clothes and had been careful to keep himself separated from Jod, but he now wished he was peering from the cover of a shuttered window. In time, the cheering dwindled. Gladick spoke. His voice wasn't loud, yet it made its way to the top of the cliffs. Take the city. Jod turned to his generals and nodded. They hollered orders to their troops. Squads of infantry descended the top of the slopes, joined by the gold-ribboned wheelers. Archers took position on the bends in the road. Blaze nudged Dante in the ribs. If Gladick hangs back, do we have a plan to get at him? He'll have to stay close to support his infantry. If he stays out of range, his army won't last long. We'll follow his retreat and take him on the road. Below, Malish soldiers in blue advanced, shields and boards held above their heads. The archers, who bore armbands of orange and silver, devotees of Joris and Carvajal, fired a smatter of arrows, testing range. I don't like this, Naran said. Gladick doesn't strike me as one to be goaded into an attack he can't win. Blaze loosened his swords in their sheaths. Meaning he's planning to get ugly. Sorcerer stuff. You'll probably want to stand back. Naran stayed put. Dante wasn't sure if that was to his credit or demerit. Near the bottom of the road, a man screamed. The first casualty of the day. The colony's archers upped their rate of fire, but the enemy was on the move and far enough downhill that few arrows came close. Most were caught by Malish shields. Once the bluecoats had made it past the first few turns, the archers slowed, conserving fire. The Malish trotted onward, dressed in chain and boiled leather studded with iron. They advanced a quarter of the way up the road, then halfway. As they negotiated the turn there, the archers loosed a sudden, concentrated volley. Below, a sergeant barked out. The Malish stopped, hunkering down, shields locked above their heads. Arrows wrapped into their shields. As soon as the volley ceased, the soldiers stood and rushed forward. The colonists fired again. Again, the Malish turtled up. A single man fell. They moved on. Over the course of the next leg of the trail, the archers staggered their fire, forcing the bluecoats to slow, then come to a complete stop. The attackers pressed closer to the rock, hampering the archers' angle of fire, then moved on. The archers plinked away at them, but the Malish were now moving single file, sticking close to the cliff wall. They left little for the archers to fire on, except when they came to the next turn in the road. There, their cover shrank to nothing, leaving a hectic scramble to get behind the next ledge of rock. Two-thirds of the way up, with the wounded and dead littering the trail behind them, the Malish stopped their advance, tightened ranks, and lifted an interlocking shield wall over their heads. Four beads of light arced from the soldiers, blinding and terrible. Dante gawked. The monks are disguised as soldiers! The lights whipped forward, punching through the bodies of four archers. Vivid red viscera spattered the rock wall behind them. 
The coroners returned fire, but the arrows thunked into the shields without drawing a single scream. The priests launched a second volley of pearly light, then a third. One archer after another fell, blood soaking into the dust. Colin had no sorcerers of its own. Nothing to stop the awful light from piercing its soldiers. Dante had to clasp his hands together to prevent himself from tearing into the priests with all he had. He needed to save every drop of his powers for Gladic. The archers jogged higher up the trail, seeking angles of fire through the shield wall. Lights spun and slew. Without warning, the archers broke into a run, fleeing uphill. Lasted longer than I thought they would, Dante said, but no one exposed to the sorcerers can stand firm for long. Blaze tucked down the corner of his mouth. You almost sound proud of that. With the archers in ragged retreat, the Malish infantry rushed onward. Colin's generals called orders. A column of swordsmen moved downhill and stopped, digging in. The disguised ethermancers turned their attention to the infantry, blasting soldier after soldier to the ground. The front lines wavered. Gods damn it! Dante unsheathed his knife and slashed his arm. Nether rushed to his hands. He slung a ball of shadows downhill, intercepting the priest's incoming volley. Nether and Ether twinkled away in a blast of sparks. The priests fired again. Again, Dante swatted it down. One of the sergeants yelled out to Gladick, who remained with his advisers at the base of the road. Blaze socked Dante on the shoulder. I thought we weren't going to get involved. If we don't stop the priests, they'll punch right through the defences. They'll enter the city uncontested. But they'll run out of light eventually, won't they? Before or after they've slaughtered every colonist standing on this road. Blaze grimaced. Did Colin just forget that it was a good idea to have a few sorcerers kicking around for situations like this? It is illegal here, Naren said. If someone shows the talent and wishes to pursue it, they must do so in Malin. Leaving their homeland vulnerable to anyone who can pull a few sparkles out of the air. That's a fiendish little setup. After some yelling back and forth, the Malish priests fell back. The bluecoats climbed upward, shields and swords in hand. The ribboned colonists planted themselves, spears out. The Malish picked up speed, roaring as they charged. The two sides met with the clang and swash of steel. With the Malish halted, the colonists withdrew their front ranks. Wheelers jogged forward, spinning their long weapons. The weighted iron ends clubbed aside Malish shields. Spears darted through the gaps. With the shield wall in disarray, the wheelers backpedaled away and the colony's infantry surged forward, hacking and stabbing. The Malish retreated to reform their lines. In the space opened by the withdrawal, a ring of bones lay in the dirt, their pale surfaces painted with black sigils. Dante's eyes went wide. He turned toward Despot Jod and yelled, Pull back your soldiers! Pull them back! Beside him, Blaze whispered a curse. On the road between the two groups of soldiers, a man's shadow stretched across the dirt, but no one was there to cast it. The Andrak pulled itself from the ground, eyes shining like two fragments of a lost moon.
Chapter 15 On the slopes, both Malish and Colonus fell back as the Andrax stretched its thin arms wide. Long claws spread out from its hands. It opened its mouth. A light shined within its throat, silhouetting triangular teeth as black as pitch. It swiveled its head between the two groups of soldiers, considering, then lowered its arms and charged the Malish bluecoats. A demon! Gladick's clear voice cut through the clamor like a shard of broken glass. The defilers bring a demon to bear against us. Retreat! As his soldiers galloped away, he raced up the switchbacks. Blinding light swirled from his priests, striking the Andrak and winking out in flurries of sparks. The ether didn't so much as slow it. It raked its claws across the back of a malish soldier. The man wailed and dropped. Black steam gushed from his wounds. The demon's long strides easily overtook the retreating soldiers. It lashed about, felling five men in a span of seconds. Wherever it struck, the wounds blackened, belching smoke. Right, Blaze said. Now I'm very glad we ran from the first one of those. Dante stared, mouth hanging half open. It's going after the Malish. How much control over these things does he have? The Star Eater carved through the laggards, men limping from injuries sustained during the skirmish with the colonists. It stopped to tear apart the bodies and fling the pieces on the soldiers flowing down the switchback below it. The soldiers parted to allow Gladick through. He stopped thirty feet from the Andrak. His priests stood a safe distance behind him. Demon! Gladick lifted a white rod, a crystal glinting from its tip. Vile summons! Incarnation of filth! How dare you stand here in the sunlight of men? The demon stood from the remains of a corpse, blood sizzling from its black claws. It flexed its arms and stepped toward Gladick. He thrust the rod forward. Turn on those who brought you here. Turn on those who would use Aron's horrors to profane their fellow men. Turn! With this last word, white light gushed from the rod. It bathed the Andrak, outlining it in witch-fire. The demon swayed, fading to mist-like insubstantiality. Then its form hardened, black as a hole cut through the fabric of reality. It lunged straight up the steep slopes. Before the colonists had the chance to scream, it slashed the first of them down. The city soldiers turned and fled. A vanguard of wheelers formed before the Andrak, jabbing with their spear points. These slid right off its blank, black surface. A woman wound up and swung the clubbed end with all her might. When it struck the demon, the weapon's shaft broke into splinters. The beast lurched forward, Bodies spun away from its claws, tumbling down the hillside in puffs of dust. Down the hill, Gladick smiled. He spread his arms to his men. 
I have turned the darkness against its master. Sally forth. We will purify the city of this awful taint. His soldiers cheered, waving their swords high. They regrouped and jogged up the road in the company of the priests. This was a stunt, Dante murmured. Like a knife on a whetstone, anger made each word sharper and sharper. He summoned the Andrak, then made it attack his people to make it look like we'd call it here. And he had no problem sacrificing a dozen of his own men to put the blame on the colonists. Blaze grunted. Most of the soldiers he sacrificed were already wounded. No good in the fight. That man's mind is as cold as an iceberg. We already know Gladick's soul is lost, Naren said. And if we don't stop that demon, this city will be forfeit to him. Dante turned to run toward the despot, but Blaze grabbed his sleeve, pointing downhill. Look! Cord stood alone on the road, wheel angled behind her body. Her laughter boomed. Come then, demon! If you kill me, I die for my people. But if I kill you, what have you died for? The Andrak moved toward her, shoulders swaying. Cord, you idiot! Blaze cupped his hands to his mouth. Dying down there won't do anyone any good. She showed no sign of having heard. With the demon nearing, Dante reached into the road, softened the rock to mud, and let it slide downhill with a great whoosh, opening a deep gash between Cord and the Andrak. Cord looked uphill and down. What sorcery is this? She jogged backward from the gap. The demon crouched its legs and jumped. Cord's face went stony. As it sailed toward her, she turned and ran straight up the hill, rocks sliding from under her feet. The Andrak followed in bounds, closing quickly. Dante yanked away the rocks beneath it. Small landslides clattered away. The demon slipped repeatedly, but each time it looked ready to fall downhill, it found a small foothold and leaped upward again. The colony's infantry flooded back onto the butte. Despot Jod strode up beside Dante, flanked by generals and advisers. What is that thing? It's just as Gladick said, Dante said. It's a demon. Your soldiers can't harm it. He ran his hand down his beard. Can you? We're about to find out. The Andrak came to the top of the cliff. It paused there, arms extended from its sides, and flexed its claws. The colonists withdrew, forming a wide ring around it. The Malish had advanced most of the way up the road behind the creature, but they kept their distance too. Dante gathered fistfuls of nether to him. He fired it at the Andrak in little needles, probing. The Andrak slowed and brought its arms closer to its body. Every scrap of nether that touched its body disappeared, as if the beast was drinking it. The demon flexed its arms and bounded forward. Heart pounding like a war drum, Dante conjured every speck of ether he could condense from the air. He formed an icicle of light sharper than any spear and thrust it at the demon's heart. 
the point punched through the demon's chest. The Star Eater reeled back, shrieking like tearing metal. A two-inch hole gaped through its chest, the desert visible on the other side. The city seemed to hold its breath. The Andrak lowered its chin, regarding the wound. The patch of desert on the other side of its chest began to shrink. Bit by bit, the hole contracted until the demon's chest was a seamless patch of darkness. Oh, Dante said. We're screwed. Blaze unsheathed his swords. My turn. The demon took a step forward. Dante grabbed at Blaze's elbow. You can't possibly think you can hurt it with steel. According to that story of yours, Gott took on an Andrak with his sword. Blaze strolled toward the demon. Besides, you said they come from the shadows, right? Let's see how it likes being fought on its home turf. Blaze disappeared mid-step. As always, when people saw him shadow walk, the crowd gasped. The Andrak jerked back its head and fell into a fighting crouch. It skipped back a step. The air around it rippled. It swiped at the disturbance, then yanked back its arm, shaking it. The demon circled, slashing repeatedly, then darted to the side with preternatural quickness. Step by step, it backed toward the cliff. Without warning, it sprung forward, claws whisking through the air as it made attack after attack. Sometimes its arms stopped mid-strike, arrested by an invisible sword. After a ferocious exchange, Blaze was dumped bodily back into the visible world. He staggered backward. Blood coursed down his left arm. You're hurt! Dante ran toward him, waiting for his arm to blacken like all the others the demon had harmed. Backing away from the creature, Blaze touched the scratches on his arm. That thing fights like a demon. What happened? It looked wary of you. I was hurting it, but it was healing too fast for me to take it down. The demon rushed the nearest formation of soldiers. Archers fired, their arrows skidding off the Andrak's black skin. The front line fell before the Andrak's claws. The soldiers behind the dead broke, fleeing towards the buildings behind them. Malish soldiers poured from the road to the top of the butte. Seeing a target they could actually engage, the coloners ran to meet them. Metal crashed on metal. Galand, Jod called. Can you bring down the demon? Dante sprinted toward him, joined by Blaze and Naren. Do you have anyone here who can wield the ether? Jod questioned his generals, but none of them had a warrior talented with the light. I've already burned through what little I can use, Dante said. Blaze, you just fought it. Is there any point in trying again? Around them, Colin's soldiers held their ground wherever they faced a mundane enemy, but before the Andrak, or the priests now taking the field, they fell back step after step. I can't kill that thing, not by myself. Blaze spun the grip of his left-hand sword. But what if we kill the guy commanding it? Dante's eyebrows shot up. That could work. If a Nethermancer dies, so does any animations under his command. Jod glanced between them. You're talking about removing Gladic. We need your people to fall back. 
Let the Malish get a short way into the city. Enough that Gladick will feel safe enough to come up here. We have no choice but to fall back. That thing is ripping my soldiers to pieces. What a prick, Blaze said. Don't worry, I'll keep him distracted. When Gladick exposes himself, I'll engage him, Dante said. Shadow walk up behind him as fast as you can. Whichever one of us he turns on, the other will cut him down. Jard and his generals left to relay orders. Naren went with them, saber in hand. The colony's soldiers battling the Malish began an orderly retreat. Blaze jogged towards the Andrak, which had stopped killing for a minute in order to shred apart the bodies of its victims, an activity it appeared to relish. Blaze ran faster, hunched low, and vanished. The demon planted its foot on a corpse, grabbed its arm, and yanked it from the socket. It twirled the limb above its head and slung it twenty feet away. It bent down to grab a leg, then shot upright, whirling to slash at Blaze somewhere within the shadows. Keeping one eye on the duel, Dante backed away from the square. Dozens of bodies were strewn across the sets. Many wore the blackened wounds of the Star Eater. Across from the demon, Blaze flickered into being, rubbing a gash on his chest. He skipped backward. As the demon advanced, Blaze lifted his blades and disappeared again. Come on, Dante muttered. Your supposedly immortal pet is getting stabbed repeatedly. Get up here and give it a hand. The duel carried on. Just as Dante was about to go to the cliff's edge for a look, Gladick ascended the butte, accompanied by a few soldiers in blue. The Ordon's eyes locked on the Andrak. Light glittered around his hands. Dante jogged toward him, shadows flowing in dark storm clouds. Gladick glanced his way and stopped on the dusty stones. The priest's mouth bent in a frown. Dante Galand. His tone was musing. I thought this stank of your involvement. It is always nice to be proven correct. You're a liar and a hypocrite, Dante said. You're the one who brought the demon here and used the shadows to do so. What will your Eldor do with you when he hears that? Gladick's face reddened. His words were clipped, precise. He will support me against the latest of Colin's lies. My soldiers saw me turn the monster against its true master. Dante glanced at the Andrak, which continued to duel its invisible foe. That's what you'll write down as history, too, assigning Malin's crimes to Colin, just as you always have. Why do you insist on endangering your own kingdom? You have fought so hard to restore Narashtavik to its former glory. I can't say that I approve. Your beliefs sicken me. Yet I'm confused why you'd cast everything aside for this barren desert. Because, Dante said, I always win. He hurled a wave of shadows at Gladick. Gladick spread his feet and opened his hands, deflecting the darkness with a deft thrust of light. Sparks faded around him. The priest's smile was almost benevolent. He unshouldered a bulky pack and flipped it over, 
dumping a pile of bones onto the ground. Light flashed from his hands. On the ground, a man's shadow appeared, but there was no one there to cast it. A second Andrek collapsed in reverse, unfolding to a height of seven feet. It stared at Dante and flexed its limbs. Dante felt the blood drain from his face. Plays! The demon trotted toward him. Dante threw a globe of shadows around his fist and slammed it into the ground. The earth wrenched apart, the cracks shooting toward Gladick's feet. Dust boiled into the air. Screams went up from around the plaza. Even the Andrax stopped to watch. Mist glowed around Gladick's hands and rained to the ground. Dante could feel the cracking stone suddenly yearning to retake the shape it had just lost. The advance of the crevice, once lightning fast, slowed to a crawl. Gladick stepped aside, dust sifting onto his robe as he considered the cracks. Are you proud to destroy? Is that why you are here? Not to help, but to start a war and watch everything burn? Dante turned and ran. Gladick splayed his hand. Light winged toward Dante's back. He batted it down with a clumsy lump of shadows. Across the plaza, Blaze popped back into being, drenched with sweat and covered in cuts. His swords were spotted with black stains. He dovetailed to meet Dante. Well, that didn't work, Blaze said. What now? Dante glanced over his shoulder. The new demon was sticking close to Gladick. I am currently executing the only idea I've got left. Across the square, the coroners were being pushed back into the buildings. Jod was near their front, calling them to hold against the swords and ether of their foes. As Dante watched, he fell, lost within the melee. The first Andrak loped to join the battle. The city's lost. A cold weight sat in Dante's stomach. We have to get out. He veered to his right where a small group of wheelers and infantry were engaged in an all-out fight with a group of bluecoats. As Dante neared them, he brought the nether flocking to him like silent ravens. His fury forged the shadows into blades and spears, which he hurled into the backs of the malish soldiers. Limbs and heads fell in piles. The colonists cried out in shock, scrambling back. Dante's hold on the shadows was now shaky, close to depleted, but striking down the malish was the first time he'd felt good that day. Among the wheelers, Cord looked up from the bleeding pieces to stare at Dante. Sweaty strands of blonde hair swayed across her face. I thought it was my day to die. Not quite yet. Dante glanced back toward Gladick, but the priest had stopped near the road to the butte, and was engaged in a vigorous argument with a blue-clad officer. George's fallen. The city won't last much longer. We have to get out. But there's work for us to do first. I will die before I give my city over to the Malish. She was taller than him, and her shoulders were broader, but he stepped in her path, putting his face a foot from hers. Colin is lost. Nothing you can do here will stop that. Die, if that's your wish, but if you live and help me, we will return, and we will kill every last one of the invaders. 
Cord planted the blunt ball of the wheel on the ground. What do you need? To get the keeper of the reborn shrine out of here. We'll need a guide. A little extra muscle won't hurt either. The keeper? She gazed across the plaza. Her face and armor were spotted with blood. He's real. And we need to get them out of here. Send your friends to evacuate whoever else they can. As Cord relayed orders to the other soldiers, a figure ran toward them from the cover of the buildings. Naren was limping, blood trickling down his left leg. Dante escorted him behind a row of shops. Gladick lives, Naren said sadly. Time to ensure we do the same, Dante said. Are you strong enough to walk? Naren didn't so much as glance at his leg. I've suffered worse. I need to conserve what's left of my powers, but you tell me if you can't go on. Blaze and Cord came around the corner and jogged toward them. Cord's eyes smoldered like twin forges. This way, before I have the chance to remember my honor. She broke into a loose run. The others followed. Blaze glanced at Naren's leg, then turned to Dante. This hasn't been our best day, has it? One of my least favorite this year, he said. But it's going to get a lot better as soon as we're away from the Andrak. Screams echoed behind them, increasingly distant. Within a minute, the streets grew so quiet that two people standing at opposite ends of the block could have held a conversation without raising their voices. Cord, Dante said, is there another way out of here besides the road? She chuckled humorlessly. Do you think this is the first time someone in the city has had to sneak past an invading army? When they were halfway to the shrine, boots pounded down the street. The group took cover beneath a raised porch. A platoon of bluecoats ran through the intersection, swords drawn. As their steps receded, Cord rolled from beneath the porch. Her jaw jutted forward. There were only eight. We could have killed them in less time than it took to hide. Blaze glanced back. Could we have killed them before their screams alerted the demons to our whereabouts? She went silent and led on. Dante's mind churned. After Gladick had summoned the second Star Eater to protect him, he should have sent the first after Dante. Instead, it had pursued its own aims, chasing after the coloners, giving Dante and the others the chance to light out. Maybe Gladick was so confident in his conquering of the city that he thought he'd be able to hunt Dante down at his leisure. But maybe his command of the Andrek wasn't total. Maybe he couldn't point them at a specific target, but only in a general direction. Overall, it hadn't made a difference to the course of the battle, but it had absolutely saved their lives. The reborn shrine was deserted. The bronze doors were locked. Dante pounded on them until his fists grew sore. Just as he was summoning the shadows to cut through the lock, the latch clicked and the door cracked open. Dante! Hod's eyes darted between those who stood on the steps. Uh, is the battle over so quickly? And we lost, Dante said. I have to see the keeper before the Malish get here. Hod shrank away from the door, as if he could deny the unwelcome news from getting inside. But if they come here, will you protect the shrine? 
If we could protect the shrine, we wouldn't have to, because we'd have already kicked their asses down the cliffs. Hod, there's no time to waste. The young monk nodded, then again harder. He allowed them inside and brought them to the inner room where Dante had first met the keeper. Hod withdrew to send the message that there were visitors. Rather than being met by Treader to be escorted downstairs, the keeper herself entered through the side door. Her pale blue eyes moved between each of them. You shouldn't be here. Dante stepped toward her. Neither should you. Malin's taking the city. Their soldiers will be in this shrine by night's end. Their keeper stays. That's how it has always been. They destroy the shrine, and the keeper lives on. Gladick's going to rip this place to the ground. He's far too cunning to miss what's concealed beneath it. Or who? I must stay. That is my vow. To renounce it is to renounce my people. I don't think they'll consider themselves renounced by your departure after you've helped to save them. How will I do that? You might not know how to destroy the demons, Dante said, but we can figure that out together. We'll break Gladig's weapons and take back the city. The keeper drew back her lips, revealing gaps between her yellowed teeth. The keeper is supposed to stay outside of the events of the world. That is what allows her to remember those events clearly, without the distortions that arise from participating in them. And the high priest of Narashtivik isn't supposed to involve his people in wars that have nothing to do with them. Yet here I am. She closed her eyes. I always promised myself that if they found my rooms and burnt my books, our land's own history, then I would burn with them. That's an awful promise, Blaise said. Let's break it at once. Destroying the Andrak won't destroy the armies of Malin. I see four people before me. I know the famed Dante Galland is a great sorcerer, but as today proves, even he can't defeat an army by himself. I can't. Dante glanced at Cord. But I'm guessing the other towns in Colin will contribute to the cause. Cord bared her teeth. Any true Coloner will drop their plows and take up the sword. While we pursue that... I expect to be in touch with my city any day now. I'll bring down more sorcerers, troops if we need them. Colin doesn't have to be alone. The keeper frowned at him, the skin sagging from her ancient neck. Why would you do this for us? Because I'll do whatever it takes to keep Narashtivik safe. After what's happened today, if Malin takes Colin, they'll come for us next. Dante held her gaze but I don't think they'd ever reach our city. The real reason I'm here? Your people are in the same place mine were with Gask. I'll burn Bressel to ashes if that's what it takes to free you. She stared back, then began to laugh, the frog-like sound bouncing off the stone walls. You prey on people. Find their deepest wish and promise to make it come true, knowing they'll follow you off a cliff to pursue it. She tilted back her head to take in the high, arched ceiling. Wait here. The keeper shuffled through the door to the lower levels. 
So much for staying uninvolved, Blaze muttered. Promising to set Colin free from malish rule? I'm starting to think we should never leave home. I wanted to stay put, Dante said. You're the one who convinced me I had to go see my father before he died. If we hadn't gone to the plagued islands, none of this would be happening. You're right. Once again, devotion to family has ruined everything. Cord gave them an impressed look. You were in the plagued islands? That's what brought us here, Dante said. We may have fought a sort of war. Malin had turned the locals against each other in order to extract the island's treasures. That news wouldn't surprise a blind dog. Malin's eyes are restless for whatever they can take. How do you know about the islands? Blaze said. Last I checked, Colin was a little short on oceans. That is the point. Cord grinned, throwing her arms wide. The basin is landlocked, yet home to one of the most honored sea captains. Colin always finds a way. Naren rolled his lower lip beneath his teeth. Which captain is this? Mariola Twill, captain of the Sword of the South. She's bedeviled the Royal Navy for years. She glanced between them, grin fading away. Something is wrong? Naren lowered himself to one knee. I served with Captain Twill on her ship. When she fell ill with the weeping end, Dante saved her life. In exchange, she provided these men passage to the plagued islands. For this crime, Gladick arrested her and executed her with his own hand. Cord's hands curled into fists, face darkening like the clouds above her own's mill. This filth is in our city, and we're running from him? The gods will spit on our backs. We've pledged to kill him in revenge, Dante said. That's what brought us here in the first place. Then I'm glad I didn't claim my death right today. I can't die happy until I've seen Gladick's corpse rotting in the sun. She drew a knife and cut her palm, allowing her blood to drip down her fingers to the ground. As my blood waters this earth, this oath waters my soul. I will help you kill Gladick, and if I reach him first, I'll kill him myself. Blaze clapped. Excellent. It'll be a race, then. Except, when one person wins, we all do. After another minute, the side door reopened, revealing the keeper. My apprentices choose to remain here. Thus, if I don't return, there will be a new keeper. She headed towards the main doors, then glanced back at Dante. What are you waiting for, promise maker? Dante jogged to catch up with her. On their way through the main hall, Hod wandered out from a cell, blinking at them. Where are you going? We're leaving the city, Dante said. The invaders will come for this shrine tonight. We'll return when we're ready, but until then, you have to keep yourself safe. Ah, uh, safe? How do I do that? Dante hesitated mid-step. I don't know. Hod was still staring as they exited the shrine. In the courtyard, the keeper drew to a halt, lifting her face to the setting sun. Dante glanced up. 
something the matter. Her nostrils flared. I haven't felt the sun or smelled the open air since I made my vow to the past keepers. You're a talented woman. Walk and smell at the same time. She gave him a barbed look, then honked with laughter. And I haven't had someone speak to me that way in almost as long. She tottered forward. Cord took the lead, head swiveling to all sides. Naren's limp had worsened, but the keeper was no faster. Dante made himself match her pace. Cord, how far are we from the other exit? A long mile. It'll be even longer if we run into a patrol. She turned to the keeper. Are you one of those stuffy priests whose dignity is more important than doing what you need to do? I preserve the truth, the old woman replied. As long as it outlasts me, my dignity means nothing. Cord kneeled in front of her. Then climb aboard. The keeper climbed her back, hooking her bony heels around Cord's hips. Cord stood, shifted the keeper on her back, and stepped into a light jog. Naren kept up, swinging his wounded leg stiffly. The first time Dante saw a rat, he slew it with a needle of nether, then reanimated it and sent it bounding forward. After half a mile, it spotted a formation of bluecoats marching down the street in the general direction of their group. Dante alerted Cord, who changed course. As twilight took the city, Cord brought them to a structure that resembled the bones of a temple or shrine, with fifteen-foot stone posts supporting graceful arches. It was roofed in stone, but there were no walls besides the posts themselves. Cord crossed beneath an arch. On the other side, a wide stairway descended into darkness. The air flowing up from it was cool and smelled equally of mustiness, aquatic rot, and fresh water. This way, Cord said. Don't slip. She set the keeper on the ground and moved down the stairs, holding lightly to a rope on the wall that served as a banister. With each step they took down, the arches above loomed higher and higher. What is this place? Blaze whispered. The town well, Cord said. The rains are as fickle as young lovers' hearts. They stay away for months at a time. When they do come, we have to be ready to catch them. During the first twenty feet of the descent, the steps were dry and gritty. As they moved beneath the overhanging rock, the steps grew slick with mold. The air smelled like a stagnant pond. Ahead, the stairs split two ways. Cord took the left fork. Dante got out his torchstone, lighting the way forward. After another set of stairs, a pool of green water spread before them. Blaze leaned forward and sniffed, scowling. This is your reservoir. No wonder you people drink so much beer. Better to drink this than cups of nothing. Cord kneeled and touched the water's surface. At the bottom of this pool, there is a passage. It leads to another pool inside the butte. Past that... A dry tunnel leads to the caves on the road up the cliffs. We have to swim, Dante said. How far are we talking? No more than a few hundred feet.
no more than enough to repeatedly drown us. You complain about having to swim in the dry season. Cord tipped back her head and laughed, the noise echoing loudly. After the winter storms, swimming to the other side can only be done by those whose lungs are as big as their hearts. Naren leaned on his good leg. Are you sure the other side is clear? Am I dripping water everywhere? Do I look like I've been to the other side today? As with all things, to know you must do. With admirable swiftness, Cord stripped down until she was wearing nothing but her small clothes and a long knife. She flexed her copious muscles and waded down the steps into the pool. She swam to the far edge of the water, inhaled deeply several times, and plunged beneath the surface. Dante nudged Naren's shoulder. I think it's time I healed your leg. Would hate to lose you down there. I always imagined it would be the water that killed me. Naren eyed the stagnant pool. But in my imagination it was the ocean, not the town well. Nether lay thickly in the moss and mold. Dante brought it to the gash on Naren's leg, sealing it back together until no more than a light scar remained on his skin. Ten minutes later, with no sign of cord, Dante was beginning to think she'd succumbed to the waters. As he contemplated finding a minnow to kill and send to look for her, bubbles popped to the surface of the pool. Cord emerged, gasping, water spattering from her body. She carried a rope in her hand. The path is clear all the way to the road. She cast down the rope. Follow the rope and it'll show us to our freedom. She gathered her clothes and weapons, including her wheel. Okay, I'll say it, Lay said. Four of us are young and healthy. One of us, however, while no doubt wise and charming, is a ninety-year-old woman who had to be carried here. You expect her to hold her breath all that way? Cord shrugged her damp shoulders. So I will carry her again. Ah, and where would you like your remains to be buried? Or should we just leave them at the bottom of the pool? The keeper waved her gnarled hand. I've taken care of myself for more than a century, you numbskull. I can take care of myself for a few minutes more. Blaze blinked, thoroughly rebuffed. Light glowed around the keeper's fingertips, the ether condensing like warm wax. She spun it between her fingers, then inhaled. Tiny sparks fluttered into her mouth. Cord grinned and swam to the back of the pool, holding onto the rope all the way. Blaze followed her out. Dante came third, with Naren fourth, and the keeper bringing up the rear. The water was jarringly cold. Fully dressed, with a sword on his hip, Dante found it hard to stay above water. Then again, he wasn't supposed to. Cord and Blaze took deep breaths, then plunged under the water. Dante clamped the torchstone between his left ring finger and Pinky and followed them down. Bubbles fluttered past him. He pulled himself hand over hand along the rope, kicking his feet. Beneath him, Cord and Blaze disappeared into a tunnel at the bottom of the pool. Dante hauled himself after them, entering a tunnel of unknowable length.
Behind him, Naren kept pace, but the glow of the keeper's hands grew dimmer and dimmer. With his pulse thumping in his head and his lungs beginning to burn, Dante had no choice but to press on. By the time his lungs began to scream, cord and blaze vanished upward. The tunnel opened into a broad pool. The torchstone's light shimmered on the underside of the water. Dante kicked his way up and surfaced. Lyle's balls, he said, spitting water. Naren swam up beside him. Couldn't you have made your secret escape route a little less murderous? Cord scoffed. That sounds like a fine way for the Malish to find it and use it against us. Now get out of there. That water is for drinking, not swimming. Dante waded ashore and stripped off his shirt, wringing it dry. The four of them stood at the pool's edge, watching the water for signs of the keeper. At last, white light shined from the bottom of the pool. The old woman slogged up the stony bank, her robes trailing heavily behind her. I will remember this day. I haven't swum in even longer than I felt the sun. This way, Cord said, striding down the only way forward. The top of the cliffs are filled with the enemy, but the bottom is unguarded. The passage led out to a silent cobbler's shop. As the others gathered around the door, Blaze Shadow walked out for a look at the cliffs. He reappeared within a minute. It's like Cord said, nothing between us and the desert. Outside, night had fallen over the land, taking the warmth with it. On his way down the switchback, Dante shivered in his damp clothes. They reached the bottom of the road without drawing any shouts or alarms. The town at the base of the butte was eerily silent. They hurried through it, taking a southern fork in the road toward a town called Tanner, which Cord said was only a few miles away. Once the last shacks of Colin were behind them, Blaze turned, grunting. Atop the butte, fires crackled, casting sheets of smoke across the bare sky. <laughs>